Classical Economics, An Austrian Perspective on the History of Economic Thought, Volume 2, by Murray and Rothbard. Chapter 1. J.B. Say, The French Tradition in Smithian Clothing. 1. The Smithian Conquest of France. One of the great puzzles in the history of economic thought, as we have indicated in Volume 1, is why Adam Smith was able to sweep the field and enjoy the reputation of founder of economic science, when Cantillon and Turgot had been far superior, both as technical economic analysts and as champions of laissez-faire. The mystery is particularly acute for France, since in Britain the only schools competing with the Smithians were the mercantilists and the political arithmeticians. The mystery deepens when we realize that the great leader of French economics after Smith, Jean-Baptiste Say, 1767-1832, was really in the Cantillon-Turgot tradition, rather than that of Smith even though he greatly neglected the former and proclaimed that economics began with Adam Smith. He, say, was supposedly only systematizing the wonderful but inchoate truths found in the wealth of nations. We shall see below the precise nature of Say's thought and his contributions, as well as his decidedly French, non-Smithian, and pre-Austrian logical clarity and emphasis on the praxeologic, axiomatic, deductive method, on utility as the sole source of economic value, on the entrepreneur, on the productivity of the factors of production, and on individualism. Specifically, in his brief treatment of the history of thought in his great Treatise on Political Economy, Say makes no mention whatever of Cantillon. Despite the considerable influence of Turgot on his doctrine, he brusquely dismisses Turgot as sound on politics but of no account in economics, and asserts that political economy in effect began with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. This curious and willful neglect of his own forebears is made obscure by the scandalous fact that there is not a single biography of Say in the English language, and precious little even in French. Perhaps we can understand this development given the following. In France, economics had long been associated with the physiocrats, les économistes, the ouster from the controller generalship of the great Turgot in 1776, and the consequent demise of his liberal reforms, served to discredit the entire physiocratic movement. For Turgot was unfortunately considered in the public eye as merely a fellow traveler of physiocracy, and its most influential follower in government. After this loss of political influence, the French philosophes and the leading intelligentsia felt free to heap mockery and ridicule upon the physiocrats. Some of the fanatical cult aspects of physiocracy left it vulnerable to scorn, and the encyclopedists, though themselves generally pro-laissez-faire, led the attack. The advent of the French Revolution accelerated the demise of physiocracy. 
In the first place, the revolution was itself too intensely political to allow much sustained interest in economic theory. Second, the physiocrats' strategic devotion to absolute monarchy tended to discredit them in an era when the monarch had been toppled and destroyed. Moreover, the physiocrats, with their emphasis on the exclusive productivity of land, were associated with devotion to the landed aristocratic interest. The French Revolution against aristocratic rule and against feudal landholding had no patience for physiocracy. The impatience was aggravated by the emergence of industrialism and the Industrial Revolution, which increasingly rendered obsolete the physiocratic devotion to the land. All these factors served to discredit physiocracy totally, and since Turgot was unfortunately identified as a physiocrat, his reputation was dragged down at the same time. This situation was aggravated by the fact that Turgot's former aide and close friend, editor and biographer, was the last of the physiocrats, the statesman Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours, 1739-1817, who added to the problem by deliberately distorting Turgot's views to make them appear as close to physiocracy as possible. Originally, Smith's wealth of nations was poorly received in France. The then-dominant physiocrats scorned it as a vague and poor imitation of Turgot. However, the great libertarian Condorcet, who had been a close friend and biographer of Turgot, wrote admiring notes appended to several French translations of The Wealth of Nations and Condorcet's widow, Madame de Grouchy, continued the family interest in Smithian studies by preparing a French translation of the theory of moral sentiments. Later, in the 1790s, the physiocratic remnants latched gratefully onto the Smithian coattails. Smith, after all, favored laissez-faire, and he was almost outlandishly pro-agriculture, holding that agricultural labor was the chief source of wealth. As a result, most of the later physiocrats became early Smithians in France, led by the Marquis Germain Garnier, 1754-1821, the first French translator of The Wealth of Nations, who presented Smithian doctrine to France in his Abrège élémentaire des principes de l'économie politique, 1796. 2. Say, de Tracy, and Jefferson the leadership of the French Smithians was quickly gained by Jean-Baptiste Say when the first edition of his great Treatise on Political Economy was published in 1803. Say was born in Lyon to a Huguenot family of textile merchants, and he spent most of his early life in Geneva and then in London, where he became a commercial apprentice. Finally, he returned to Paris as an employee of a life insurance company, and the young Say quickly became a leader of the laissez-faire group of philosophes in France. In 1794, Say became the first editor of the major journal of this group, La Décade Philosophique. 
a champion not only of laissez-faire, but also of the burgeoning industrialism of the Industrial Revolution, Say was hostile to the absurdly pro-agricultural physiocracy. The Descartes group called themselves the ideologists, later sneeringly dubbed by Napoleon the ideologues. Their concept of ideology simply meant the discipline studying all forms of human action, a study meant to be a respecter of individuals and their interaction, rather than a positivistic or scientistic manipulating of people as mere fodder for social engineering. The ideologues were inspired by the views and the analysis of the late Condillac. Their leader in physiological psychology was Dr. Pierre-Jean-Georges Cabanis, 1757-1808, who worked closely with other biologists and psychologists at the École de Médecine. Their leader in the social sciences was the wealthy aristocrat Antony Louis-Claude Destout Comte de Tracy, 1754-1836, Destut de Tracy originated the concept of ideology, which he presented in the first volume, 1801, of his five-volume Elements of Ideology, 1801-1815. De Tracy first set forth his economic views in his Commentary on Montesquieu in 1807, which remained in manuscript due to its boldly liberal views. In the commentary, de Tracy attacks hereditary monarchy and one-man rule, and defends reason and the concept of universal natural rights. He begins by refuting Montesquieu's definition of freedom as willing what one ought, to the far more libertarian definition of liberty as the ability to will and do what one pleased. In the commentary, de Tracy gives primacy to economics in political life, since the main purpose of society is to satisfy, in the course of exchange, man's material needs and enjoyments. Commerce, de Tracy hails, as the source of all human good, and he also lauds the advance of the division of labor as a source of increasing production, with none of the complaints about alienation raised by Adam Smith. He also stressed the fact that, in every act of commerce, every exchange of merchandise, both parties benefit or possess something of greater value than what they sell. Freedom of domestic trade is, therefore, just as important as free trade among nations. But, de Tracy lamented, in this idol of free exchange and commerce, and of increasing productivity, comes a blight, government. Taxes, he pointed out, are always a tax on private property, and are used for positively wasteful, unproductive expenditures. At best, all government expenditures are a necessary evil, and most, such as public works, could be better performed by private individuals. De Tracy bitterly opposed government creation of and tampering with currency. Debasements are simply robbery, and paper money is the creation of a commodity worth only the paper on which it is printed. De Tracy also attacked public debts and called for a specie, preferably a silver, standard. 
The fourth volume of de Tracy's Elements, The Treatise on the Will, was, despite its title, de Tracy's Treatise on Economics. He had now arrived at economics as part of his grand system. Completed by the end of 1811, the treatise was finally published at the overthrow of Napoleon in 1815, and it incorporated and built upon the insights of the commentary on Montesquieu. Following his friend and colleague J. B. Say, de Tracy now heavily emphasized the entrepreneur as the crucial figure in the production of wealth. De Tracy has been sometimes called a labor theory of value theorist, but labor was instead upheld as highly productive as compared to land. Furthermore, labor for de Tracy was largely the work of the entrepreneur in saving and investing the fruits of previous labor. The entrepreneur, he pointed out, saves capital, employs other individuals, and produces a utility beyond the original value of his capital. Only the capitalist saves part of what he earns to reinvest it and produce new wealth. Dramatically, de Tracy concluded, industrial entrepreneurs are really the heart of the body politic, and their capital is its blood. Furthermore, all classes have a joint interest in the operations of the free market. There is no such thing, de Tracy keenly pointed out, as unpropertied classes. For, as Emmett Kennedy paraphrases him, all men have at least their most precious of all properties, their faculties, and the poor have as much interest in preserving their property as do the rich. At the heart of de Tracy's central emphasis on property rights was thus the fundamental right of every man in his own person and faculties. Abolition of private property, he warned, would only result in an equality of misery by abolishing personal effort. Moreover, while there are no fixed classes in the free market, and every man is both a consumer and a proprietor, and can be a capitalist if he saves, there is no reason to expect equality of income, since men differ widely in abilities and talents. De Tracy's analysis of government intervention was the same as in his commentary. All government expenditures are unproductive, even when necessary, and all embody living off the income of the producers and are therefore parasitic in nature. The best encouragement government can give to industry is to let it alone, and the best government is the most parsimonious. On money, de Tracy took a firm, hard-money position. He lamented that the names of coins are no longer simple units of weight of gold or silver. Debasement of coins he saw clearly as theft, and paper money as theft on a grand scale. Paper money, indeed, is simply a gradual and hidden series of successive debasements of the money standard. The destructive effects of inflation were analyzed, and privileged monopoly banks were attacked as radically vicious institutions. While following J.B. Say in his emphasis on the entrepreneur, de Tracy anticipated his friend in rejecting the use of mathematics or statistics in social science. 
As early as 1791, de Tracy was writing that much of reality and human action is simply not quantifiable, and warned against the charlatan application of statistics to the social sciences. He attacked the use of mathematics in his Memoir on the Faculty of Thought, 1798, and in 1805 broke with his late friend Condorcet's stress on the importance of social mathematics. Perhaps influenced by Say's treatise two years earlier, de Tracy stated that the proper method in the social sciences is not mathematical equations, but the drawing forth, or deduction, of the implicit properties contained in basic original or axiomatic truths. In short, the method of praxeology. To de Tracy, the fundamental true axiom is that man is a sensitive being, from which truths can be obtained through observation and deduction, not through mathematics. For de Tracy, this science of human understanding is the basic foundation for all the human sciences. Thomas Jefferson, 1743-1826, had been a friend and admirer of the philosophes and ideologues since the 1780s, when he served as minister to France. When the ideologues achieved some political power in the consular years of Napoleon, Jefferson was made a member of the Brain Trust, Institut National, in 1801. The ideologues, Cabani, Dupont, Volney, Say, and de Tracy, all sent Jefferson their manuscripts and received encouragement in return. After he finished the commentary on Montesquieu, de Tracy sent the manuscript to Jefferson and asked him to have it translated into English. Jefferson enthusiastically translated some of it himself, and then had the translation finished and published by the Philadelphia newspaper publisher William Duane. In this way, the commentary appeared in English, 1811, eight years before it could be published in France. When Jefferson sent the published translation to de Tracy, the delighted philosopher was inspired to finish his Traité de la Volonté, and sent it quickly to Jefferson, urging him to translate that volume. Jefferson was highly enthusiastic about the Traité, even though he himself had done much to prepare the way for war with Great Britain in 1812, Jefferson was disillusioned by the public debt, high taxation, government spending, flood of paper money, and burgeoning of privileged bank monopolies that accompanied the war. He had concluded that his beloved Democratic-Republican Party had actually adopted the economic policies of the despised Hamiltonian Federalists, and de Tracy's bitter attack on these policies prodded Jefferson to try to get the traité translated into English. Jefferson gave the new manuscript to Duane again, but the latter went bankrupt, and Jefferson then revised the faulty English translation Duane had commissioned. Finally, the translation was published as The Treatise on Political Economy in 1818. Former President John Adams, whose ultra-hard money and 100% specie banking views were close to Jefferson's, hailed the de Tracy treatise as the best book on economics yet published. 
He particularly lauded de Tracy's chapter on money as advocating the sentiments that I have entertained all my lifetime. Adams added that banks have done more injury to the religion, morality, tranquility, prosperity, and even wealth of the nation than they ever will do good. Our whole banking system I ever abhorred, I continue to abhor, and shall die abhorring. Every bank of discount, every bank by which interest is to be paid, or profit of any kind made by the deponent, is downright corruption. As early as 1790, Thomas Jefferson had hailed the wealth of nations as the best book in political economy, along with the work of Turgot. His friend, Bishop James Madison, 1749-1812, who was president of William and Mary College for thirty-five years, was the first professor of political economy in the United States. A libertarian who had emphasized early that we were born free, Bishop Madison had used the wealth of nations as his textbook. Now, in his preface to de Tracy's treatise, Thomas Jefferson expressed the hearty prayer that the book would become the basic American text in political economy. For a while, William and Mary College adopted de Tracy's treatise under Jefferson's prodding, but this status did not last long. Soon, Say's treatise surpassed de Tracy in the race for popularity in the United States. The calamitous panic of 1819 confirmed Jefferson in his stern, hard-money views on banking. In November of that year, he elaborated a remedial proposal for the Depression, which he characteristically asked his friend, William C. Reeves, to introduce to the Virginia legislature without disclosing his authorship. The goal of the plan was stated bluntly the eternal suppression of bank paper. The proposal was to reduce the circulating medium gradually to the pure specie level. The state government was to compel the complete withdrawal of banknotes in five years, one-fifth of the notes to be called and redeemed in specie each year. Furthermore, Virginia would make it a high offense for any bank to pass or accept the banknotes of any other states. Those banks who balked at the plan would have their charters forfeited, or else be forced to redeem all their notes in specie immediately. In conclusion, Jefferson declared that no government, state or federal, should have the power of establishing a bank. Instead, the circulation of money should consist solely of specie. 3. The Influence of Say's Treatise J. B. Say was made a member of the governing tribunate during the Napoleonic consulate regime in 1799. Four years later, his treatise was published, soon establishing him as the outstanding interpreter of Smithian thought on the continent of Europe. The treatise went through six editions in Say's lifetime, the last in 1829, then double in size from the original edition. 
In addition, says Cours Complet d'Economie Politique, 1828-1830, was reprinted several times, and the extract from the treatise, printed as The Catechism of Political Economy, 1817, was reprinted for the fourth time shortly after Say's death. Every great European nation translated Say's treatise into its own language. In 1802, Napoleon cracked down on the ideologues, a group he had once courted, but had always detested for its liberal, economic, and political views. He recognized the ideologues as the staunchest opponents, in theory and practice, of his intensifying dictatorship. Napoleon forced the Senate to purge itself and the tribunate of the ideologues, thus ousting J. B. Say from his tribunal post. The ideologues were philosophers, and the Bonapartists saw philosophy itself as a threat to dictatorial rule. As Joseph Fivet, editor of the Bonapartist Journal de l'Empire, put it, Philosophy is a means of complaining about the government, of threatening it when it departs from the principles and the men of the revolution. Two years later, shortly after becoming emperor, Napoleon again went after Say, refusing to allow a second edition of the treatise to be published unless Say changed an offending chapter. When Say refused to do so, the new edition was suppressed. Ousted from the French government, Say became a successful cotton manufacturer for ten years. In fact, Say became one of the leading new-style manufacturers in France. As his biographer writes, Say was intimately involved in the emergence of large-scale industry. He was, in effect, one of the most remarkable types of these manufacturers of the consulate and of the empire, of these first great entrepreneurs who sought to place the new technological processes in operation. After Napoleon's fall in 1814, the second edition of the treatise was finally published, and in 1819, Say embarked on a new professorial career, first at the Conservatoire National, and finally at the Collège de France. The admiring Jefferson, himself steeped in laissez-faire economic thought, assured Say that he would find a hospitable climate in the United States. Jefferson was joined in those wishes by President Madison. Indeed, Jefferson wanted to offer Say the professorship of political economy at his newly founded University of Virginia. Say's treatise exerted great influence in Italy. At first, Smith's wealth of nations had little impact on Italian economics. Italy had already had a flourishing free trade tradition, notably in the systematic Meditations on Political Economy, 1771, of the Milanese Count Pietro Veri, 1728-1797. There was no mention of Smith in the 1780 work of the Neapolitan Gaetano Falangieri, 1752-1788, in the writings of Count Giovanni Battista Gerardo d'Arco, 1785, or even as late as Francesco Mengotti's free trade work Il Colbertismo, 1792, and even though the wealth of nations had been translated into Italian in 1779. 
The spread of the French revolutionary regime into Italy brought Adam Smith's influence along with the soldiers. Smith became the leading economic authority during the early Napoleonic years. After 1810, Say and de Tracy swept Italian economics into their camp. The views of Say were propounded in the lucid treatise The Elementi di Economy Politica, 1813, by Luca de Samuele Cagnazzi of Altamura, 1764-1852, and in the treatise by Carlo Bossolini of Modena, Nuovo Esame delle Sorgenti della Privata e della Pubblica Ricchezza, 1816. The courageous Abate Paolo Balsamo, 1764-1816, spread Smithian and, later, Say's views throughout Sicily, calling for free trade in agriculture and for the freeing of Sicilian agriculture from the restrictions of feudalism, particularly in his Memori Economice ed Agrari, Palermo, 1803, and his Memori Inedite di Publica Economia, Palermo, 1845. Say's friend and colleague, Destute de Tracy, also wielded enormous influence in Italy. His Elements was translated into a ten-volume edition, Milan, 1817-1819, by the former priest, Giuseppe Compagnoni, 1754 to 1833. Furthermore, high up in the revolutionary government of Naples in the 1820s were the elderly statesman and philosopher Melchiori del Fico, head of the provisional revolutionary junta and correspondent and admirer of de Tracy, and the follower of de Tracy, Pasquale Borelli, head of the Neapolitan revolutionary parliament. Spain and the new Latin American countries were also influenced by de Tracy. One of the leaders of the liberal Spanish Revolution of 1820 against absolute monarchy was Dom Manuel Maria Gutierrez, the translator of the treatise into Spanish, 1817, and professor of political economy at Malaga. Furthermore, a member of the revolutionary Spanish Cortes of 1820 was Ramon de Salas, the translator of de Tracy's commentary, who returned from exile in France to take part in the struggle. And still another member of the Cortes, J. Justo Garcia, had translated de Tracy's book on logic. In Latin America, de Tracy's admirer and follower, Berardino Rivadavia, became president of the newly independent Republic of Argentina. Tracy also became highly popular in Brazil as well as Argentina, and in Bolivia his ideology became the official doctrine of the state schools in the 1820s and 1830s. It is hardly surprising that the second wave of Smithian writers in Germany were strongly influenced by J. B. Say's treatise. Ludwig Heinrich von Jakob, 1759-1827, was, like Krauss, a Kantian philosopher as well as economist. Studying at the University of Halle, he became professor of philosophy there. Von Jakob published a Smithian treatise on general economic principles, Principles of Economics, Halle, 1805. 
Later editions up to the third, published in 1825, incorporated Sayite emendations. Furthermore, von Jacob was so impressed with Say's work that he translated the treatise into German, 1807, and into Russian. Von Jacob indeed helped spread enlightened views in Russia in more ways than by publishing a translation of Say. He taught for a while at the University of Kharkov and was a consultant to several official commissions at St. Petersburg. The most interesting and thoroughgoing Sayite in Germany was Gottlieb Hufeland, 1760-1817. Hufeland was born in Danzig, where he became mayor, and studied at Göttingen and Jena, where he became professor of political economy. In his Neue Grundlegung der Staatswirtschaft Kunst, Gießen, 1807-1813, Hufeland adopted all the important innovations of J.B. Say, or rather, his return to the French continental pre-Smithian tradition. Thus, Hufeland brought back the entrepreneur and carefully separated his pure profits from confronting risk, from his interest return, and from the rent or wage for his managerial abilities. Furthermore, Hufeland adopted a utility-scarcity theory of value, stressing the cause of value as the valuations of a stock of goods by individual consumers. The influence of Say and de Tracy in Russia strikes an ironic note. In 1825, one of the leading liberal decembrants, Pavel Ivanovich Pestel, who considered de Tracy's commentary as his Bible, tried to assassinate the absolute ruler, Tsar Nicholas I. Nicholas, in turn, proceeded to have Pestel hanged, even though he himself was educated in the Smithian and Sayite Cour d'Economie Politique of Heinrich Freiherr von Storch. The English translation of the fourth edition of Say's treatise appeared in London in 1821 as The Treatise on Political Economy. The Free Trade Boston Journal, the North American Review, reissued the treatise in the United States the same year with American annotations by the free trade champion Clement C. Biddle. Say's treatise quickly became and remained the most popular textbook on economics in the United States down through the Civil War. Indeed, it was still being reprinted as a college text in 1880. During that period, the treatise had gone through 26 American printings, in contrast to only eight in France. The untranslated writings of the ideologues had an unexpected influence in Great Britain. Thomas Brown, friend and successor to Dugald Stewart in the chair of moral philosophy at Edinburgh, was fluent in French, and was heavily influenced by the philosophy of de Tracy. Furthermore, James Mill was a philosophic disciple of Dr. Brown, and was himself an admirer of Helvetius, Condillac, and Cabanis. It is not surprising, therefore, that Mill should have been the first in Great Britain to appreciate the importance of Say's law of markets. It is no wonder that the Say version of Smithianism became the most popular economics work on the European continent and in the United States. 
not being able to call himself a physiocrat, Say called himself a Smith follower. But he was one largely in name only. As we shall see, his views were really post-Cantillon and pre-Austrian, rather than Smithian classical. One crucial difference between Say and Smith was in the limpid clarity and lucidity of Say's treatise. Say quite justly called the wealth of nations a vast chaos and a chaotic collection of just ideas thrown indiscriminately among a number of positive truths. At another point, he calls Smith's work a promiscuous assemblage of the soundest principles, an ill-digested mass of enlightened views and accurate information. And, again, with great perceptiveness, Say charges that almost every portion of it, the wealth of nations, is destitute of method. Indeed, it was precisely Say's great clarity which, while winning him worldwide popularity, lowered his stock among the British writers who unfortunately ruled the roost of economic thought. The fact that he was not British himself doubtless added to this deprecation. In contrast to the inchoate Smith, or to the tortured and virtually unreadable Ricardo, Say's clarity and felicity, the very ease of reading him, made him suspect. Schumpeter puts it very well. His argument flows along with such easy limpidity that the reader hardly ever stops to think, and hardly ever experiences a suspicion that there might be deeper things below this smooth surface. This brought him, say, sweeping success with the many. It cost him the good will of the few. He sometimes did see important and deep-seated truths, but when he had seen them, he pointed them out in sentences that read like trivialities. Because he was a splendid writer, because he avoided the rough and tortured prose of a Ricardo, because, in Jefferson's phrase, his book was shorter, clearer and sounder than the wealth of nations, economists then and later tended to confuse smoothness of surface with superficiality, just as they so often confound vagueness and obscurity with profundity. Schumpeter adds, Thus he never got his due. The huge textbook success of the treatise, nowhere greater than in the United States, only confirmed contemporaneous and later critics in their diagnosis that he was just a popularizer of a Smith. In fact, the book got so popular precisely because it seemed to save hasty or ill-prepared readers the trouble of wading through the wealth of nations. This was substantially the opinion of the Ricardians, who put him down as a writer, see McCullough's comments upon him in the literature of political economy, who had been just able to rise to Smithian, but had failed to rise to Ricardian wisdom. For Marx, he is simply the insipid say. 4. The Method of Praxeology a particularly outstanding feature of J. B. Say's treatise is that he was the first economist to think deeply about the proper methodology of his discipline, and to base his work as far as he could upon that methodology. 
From previous economists and from his own study, he arrived at the unique method of economic theory, what Ludwig von Mises was, over a century later, to call praxeology. Economics, say realized, was not based on a mass of inchoate particular statistical facts. It was based instead on very general facts, faits généraux, facts so general and universal and so deeply rooted in the nature of man and his world that everyone, upon learning or reading of them, would give his assent. These facts were based, then, on the nature of things, la nature des choses, and on the deductive implications of these facts so broadly rooted in human nature and in natural law. Since these broad facts were true, their logical implications must be true as well. In his introduction to the treatise, which sets forth the methodological nature and implications of his work, Say begins by being critical of the physiocrats and of Dugald Stewart for confounding the sciences of politics and of political economy. Say saw that if economics or political economy was to progress, it must stand on its own feet as a discipline without being intimately mixed from the start with political science, or the science which sets forth the correct principles of the political order. Political economy, wrote Say, is the science of wealth, its production, distribution, and consumption. Say goes on to mention the popularity of the Baconian method of induction from a mass of facts in the formation of a science, but then adds that there are two kinds of facts, objects that exist and events that take place. Clearly, objects that exist are primary, since events that take place are only movements or interactions of existing objects. Both classes of facts, noted say, constitute the nature of things, and a careful observation of the nature of things is the sole foundation of all truth. Facts may also be grouped into two kinds, general or constant, and particular or variable. About the same time as Stuart, but far more comprehensively, Say then launched into a brilliant critique of the statistical method and of the difference between it and political economy. Political economy deals with general facts or laws. Political economy, from facts always carefully observed, makes known to us the nature of wealth from the knowledge of its nature, deduces the means of its creation, unfolds the order of its distribution, and the phenomena attending its destruction. It is, in other words, an exposition of the general facts observed in relation to this subject. With respect to wealth, it is a knowledge of effects and of their causes. It shows what facts are constantly conjoined with, so that one is always the sequence of the other. Say then added an important point, that economics does not resort for any further explanation to hypothesis. In short, unlike the physical sciences, the assumptions of economics are not tentative hypotheses, which, or the deductions from which, must be tested by fact. 
On the contrary, each step of the logical chain rests on definitely true, not hypothetical general facts. It might be added that it is precisely this crucial difference between the method of economics and of physical sciences that has brought so much contumely on the head of praxeology during the twentieth century. Instead of framing hypotheses, economic science must perceive connections and regularities from the nature of particular events and must conduct us from one line to another, so that every intelligent understanding may clearly comprehend in what manner the chain is united. It is this, Say concludes, which constitutes the excellence of the modern method of philosophizing. In contrast, statistics exhibit particular facts of a particular country at a designated period. They are a description in detail. Statistics, say added, may gratify curiosity, but they can never be productive of advantage if they do not indicate the origin and consequences of the collected facts, and this can only be accomplished by the separate discipline of political economy. It is precisely the confounding of these two disciplines that made Smith's wealth of nations, in Say's perceptive words, an immethodical and irregular mass of curious and original speculations and of known demonstrated truths. A crucial difference between statistics and political economy, Say goes on, is that the latter's general principles or general facts may be discovered and therefore may be known with certainty. The principles of political economy, wherever they rest on the rigorous deductions of undeniable general facts, rest upon an immovable foundation. They are what von Mises would later call apodictic. Political economy, indeed, is composed of a few fundamental principles and of a great number of corollaries or conclusions drawn from these principles. The particular facts of statistics, on the other hand, are necessarily uncertain, incomplete, inaccurate, and imperfect. And even when true, say correctly notes, they are only true for an instant. Again, on statistics, how small a number of particular facts are completely examined, and how few among them are observed under all their aspects. And in supposing them well examined, well observed, and well described, how many of them either prove nothing, or directly the reverse of what is intended to be established by them. And yet, the gullible public is often dazzled by a display of figures and calculations, as if numerical calculations alone could prove anything, and as if any rule could be laid down from which an inference could be drawn without the aid of sound reasoning. Say goes on to a blistering critique of the use of statistics without theory. Hence there is not an absurd theory or an extravagant opinion that has not been supported by an appeal to facts, and it is by facts also that public authorities have been so often misled. 
But a knowledge of facts without a knowledge of their mutual relations, without being able to show why the one is a cause and the other a consequence, is really no better than the crude information of an office clerk. Say then denounces the idea that a good theory is not practical, and that the practical is somehow superior to the theoretical. Nothing can be more idle than the opposition of theory to practice. What is theory, if it be not a knowledge of the laws which connect effects with their causes, facts with facts? And who can be better acquainted with facts than the theorist who surveys them under all their aspects, and comprehends their relation to each other? And what is practice without theory, but the employment of means without knowing how or why they act? Say then brilliantly points out why it is impossible for peoples or nations to learn from experience and to adopt or discard theories correctly on that basis. Since the early modern era, he notes, wealth and prosperity have increased in Western Europe, while at the same time nation-states have compounded restrictions of trade and multiplied the interference of taxation. Most people then superficially conclude that the latter caused the former, that trade and production increased as a result of the interference of government. On the other hand, Say and the political economists argue the reverse, that the prosperity of the same countries would have been much greater had they been governed by a more liberal and enlightened policy. How can facts or experience decide between these two clashing interpretations? The answer is that they cannot, that only correct theory, theory deducible from a few universal general facts or principles, can do so. And that is why, notes say, nations seldom derive any benefit from the lessons of experience. To do so, the community at large must be enabled to seize the connection between causes and their consequences, which at once supposes a very high degree of intelligence and a rare capacity for reflection. Thus, to arrive at the truth, only the complete knowledge of a few essential general facts is important. Every other knowledge of facts, like the erudition of an almanac, is a mere compilation from which nothing results. Furthermore, in arguments about public policies, when facts are allegedly set against the system of economic theory, it is actually one theoretical system poised against another, and again, only theoretical refutation can prevail. Thus, said Say, if you talk about how free trade between nations is advantageous to all the participants, this is accused of being a system, to which is opposed worry about deficits in the balance of trade, itself a system, but a fallacious one. Those who assert, as had the physiocrats, that luxury fuels trade, whereas thrift is ruinous, are setting forth a system. 
and then, in an exact prefiguring of the Keynesian multiplier, some will assert that circulation enriches a state, and that a sum of money by passing through twenty different hands is equivalent to twenty times its own value. Also, a system. In a surprising and perceptive prefigurement of modern controversies, Say goes on to explain why the logical deductions of economic theory should be verbal rather than mathematical. The intangible values of individuals with which political economy is concerned are subject to continuing and unpredictable change, subject to the influence of the faculties, the wants and the desires of mankind. They are not susceptible of any rigorous appreciation, and cannot, therefore, furnish any data for absolute calculations. The phenomena of the moral world, noted say, are not subject to strict arithmetical computation. Thus we may know absolutely that in any given year the price of wine will depend on the interaction of its supply or stock to be sold with the demand. But to calculate the two mathematically, these two elements would have to be decomposed precisely into the separate influence of each of their elements, and this would be so complex as to be impossible. Thus, it is not only necessary to determine what will be the product of the succeeding vintage, while yet exposed to the vicissitudes of the weather, but the quality it will possess, the quantity remaining on hand of the preceding vintage, the amount of capital that will be at the disposal of the dealers, and require them more or less expeditiously to get back their advances. We must also ascertain the opinion that may be entertained as to the possibility of exporting the article, which will altogether depend upon our impressions as to the stability of the laws and government that vary from day to day, and respecting which no two individuals exactly agree. All these data, and probably many others besides, must be accurately appreciated solely to determine the quantity to be put in circulation, itself but one of the elements of price. To determine the quantity to be demanded, the price at which the commodity can be sold must already be known, as the demand for it will increase in proportion to its cheapness. We must also know the former stock on hand, and the tastes and means of the consumers, as various as their persons. Their ability to purchase will vary according to the more or less prosperous condition of industry in general, and of their own in particular. Their wants will vary also in the ratio of the additional means at their command of substituting one liquor for another, such as beer, cider, etc. I suppress an infinite number of less important considerations, more or less affecting the solution of the problem. In short, the enormous number of imprecise, changing, and quantitatively unknown determinants make the application of the mathematical method in economics impossible. And therefore, those who have pretended to do it 
have not been able to enunciate these questions into analytical language without divesting them of their natural complication by means of simplifications and arbitrary suppressions of which the consequences, not properly estimated, always essentially change the condition of the problem and pervert all its results so that no other inference can be deduced from such calculations than from formula arbitrarily assumed. Mathematics, seemingly so precise, inevitably ends in reducing economics from the complete knowledge of general principles to arbitrary formulas which alter and distort the principles and hence corrupt the conclusions. But how then is the political economist, knowing the general principles with certainty, to apply these principles to specific problems such as the condition of the wine market? Here, too, Say anticipated the brilliant conclusions of Ludwig von Mises on the proper relationship between theory and history, theory and specific application, Such applied theory in economics, Say indicated, is an art rather than a strict science. What course is then to be pursued by a judicious inquirer in the elucidation of a subject so much involved? The same which would be pursued by him under circumstances equally difficult, which decide the greater part of the actions of his life. He will examine the immediate elements of the proposed problem, and after having ascertained them with certainty, which in political economy can be effected, will approximately value their mutual influences with the intuitive quickness of an enlightened understanding, itself only an instrument by means of which the mean result of a crowd of probabilities can be estimated, but never calculated with exactness. J. B. Say then relates the fallacies of the mathematical method in economics to the teachings of his great mentor, the physiologist Cabanis. He quotes Cabani on how writers on mechanics grievously distort matters when they deal with the problems of biology and medicine. Citing Cabani, the terms they employed were correct, the process of reasoning strictly logical, and nevertheless all the results were erroneous. It is by the application of this method of investigation to subjects to which it is altogether inapplicable that systems the most whimsical, fallacious, and contradictory have been maintained. Say then adds that whatever has thus been pointed out about the fallacies of the mechanistic method in biology is, a fortiori, applicable to the moral sciences, which is why we are always being misled in political economy, whenever we have subjected its phenomena to mathematical calculation. In such case, it becomes the most dangerous of all abstractions. Finally, Say perceptively points to another problem that, then as now, leads learned people to dismiss the principles and conclusions of economics. For they are too apt to suppose that absolute truth is confined to the mathematical and to the results of careful observation and experiment in the physical sciences. 
imagining that the moral and political sciences contain no invariable facts or indisputable truths, and therefore cannot be considered as genuine sciences, but merely hypothetical systems, more or less ingenious, but purely arbitrary. To bolster this view, the critics of economics point to a great many differences of opinion in that discipline. But so what? Say asks. After all, the physical sciences have always been rent by controversy, sometimes clashing with as much violence and asperity as in political economy. The mathematical method was not the only system of abstraction to suffer a trenchant demolition by J.B. Say. For Say was also sharply critical of verbal methods of logic that took off into the Empyrean without continuing groundwork in and repeated checking by reference to general and universal facts. This was Say's main methodological stricture against the physiocrats. Instead of first observing the nature of things, or the manner in which they take place, of classifying these observations and deducing from them general propositions, that is, instead of being praxeologists, the physiocrats commenced by laying down certain abstract general propositions which they styled axioms, from supposing them to contain inherent evidence of their own truth. They then endeavored to accommodate the particular facts to them, and to infer from them their laws, thus involving themselves in the defense of maxims evidently at variance with common sense and universal experience. In short, a system of economic theory must not only be axiomatic deductive, it must always make sure to ground those axioms in common sense and universal experience. In his introduction to the fourth edition, Say leveled similar structures against David Ricardo and the Ricardian system. Ricardo, too, sometimes reasons upon abstract principles to which he gives too great a generalization. Ricardo, he charged, begins with observations founded on facts, but then pushes his reasonings to their remotest consequences, without comparing their results with those of actual experience. After a certain point in the reasoning, the facts differ very far from our calculation— and from that instant nothing in the author's work is represented as it really occurs in nature. It is not sufficient, Say concludes, to set out from facts. They must be brought together, steadily pursued, the consequences drawn from them constantly compared with the effects observed so that the science of political economy must show in what manner that which in reality does take place is the consequence of other facts equally certain. It must discover the chain which binds them together, and always, from observation, establish the existence of the two links at their point of connection. 5. Utility, Productivity, and distribution. In contrast to the Smith-Ricardo mainstream of Smithians, who set forth the labor theory, or at very best the cost of production theory of value, J.B. Say firmly re-established the scholastic, continental, 
French utility analysis. It is utility and utility alone that gives rise to exchange value, and Say settled the value paradox to his own satisfaction by disposing of use value altogether as not being relevant to the world of exchange. Not only that, Say adopted a subjective value theory, since he believed that value rests on acts of valuation by the consumers. In addition to being subjective, these degrees of valuation are relative, since the value of one good or service is always being compared against another. These values, or utilities, depend on all manner of wants, desires, and knowledge on the part of individuals, upon the moral and physical nature of man, the climate he lives in, and on the manner and legislation of his country. He has wants of the body, wants of the mind, and of the soul, wants for himself, others for his family, others still as a member of society. Political economy, say sagely pointed out, must take these values and preferences of people as givens, as one of the data of its reasonings, leaving to the moralist and the practical man the several duties of enlightening and of guiding their fellow creatures, as well in this as in other particulars of human conduct. At some points, Say went up to the edge of discovering the marginal utility concept without ever quite doing so. Thus, he saw that relative valuations of goods depends on degrees of estimation in the mind of the valuer. But since he did not discover the marginal concept, he could not fully solve the value paradox. In fact, he did far less well at solving it than his continental predecessors. And so, Say simply dismissed use-value and the value paradox altogether, and decided to concentrate on exchange-value. As a result, however, he could no more than Smith and his British successors devote much energy to analyzing consumption or consumer behavior. But whereas Say simply discarded use-value, Ricardo made the value paradox and the unfortunate split between use and exchange value the key to his value theory. For Ricardo, iron was worth less than gold because the labor cost of digging and producing gold was greater than the labor cost of producing iron. Ricardo admitted that utility is certainly the foundation of value, but this was apparently of only remote interest, since the degree of utility can never be the measure by which to estimate its value. All too true, but Ricardo failed to see the absurdity of looking for such a measure in the first place. His second absurdity, as we shall see further below, was in thinking that labor cost provided such a true and invariable measure of value. As Say wrote in his annotations on the French translation of Ricardo's principles, an invariable measure of value is a pure chimera. Smith and still more Ricardo were pushed into their labor-cost theory by concentrating on the long-run natural price of products. Say's analysis was aided greatly by his realistic concentration on the explanation of real market price.
Costs, of course, are intimately related to the pricing of factors of production. One question that cost-value theorists have difficulty answering is if, indeed, costs are determining, where do they come from? Are they mandated by divine revelation? One of the anomalies of Say's discussion is that, even though a subjective value and utility theorist, he uncomprehendingly rejected the insight of Genovese and of his own ideologue forebear, Condillac, that people exchange one thing for another because they value the thing they acquire more than what they give up, so that exchange always benefits both parties. And in denying this mutual gain, Say is inconsistent with much of his own position on utility. In spurning Condillac, Say is being not only ungenerous, but almost willfully obtuse. First, he notes that Condillac maintains that commodities, which are worth less to the seller than to the buyer, increase in value from the mere act of transfer from one hand to another. But Condillac insists, for example, that equal value is really given for equal value, so that when Spanish wine is bought in Paris, the money paid by the buyer and the wine he receives are worth one another. To which we might ask, to whom? He then admits that the self-same wine is worth more in Paris than it had been when grown in Spain but he insists that the increase in the value of the wine took place not at the moment of handing over the wine to the consumer, but comes from the transport. But St. Clair trenchantly takes Say to task. In reality, the transfer to the consumer is the essence of the transaction. The long transport is subsidiary to this purpose. The change of locality is merely a means to this end, and would not have been necessary if consumers willing to buy the same quantity and pay the same price could have been found on the spot. Say continues obstinately to assault Condillac's insight. The seller is not a professional cheat, nor the buyer a dupe and Condillac is not justified in saying that if the values exchanged were always equal, neither party would gain anything by exchange. But in reality, of course, Condillac was perfectly right. Why should anyone bother exchanging X for Y of equal value? St. Clair reacts brilliantly in exasperation. Lord, how these economists do misunderstand one another! Condillac does not suggest that the wine merchant is a rogue and the customer a fool. He does not suggest that the merchant robs either the consumer or the producer. His doctrine is that products increase in utility and value by being transferred from the producer to the consumer and that both parties benefit by the intervention of the merchant who brings about the exchange. To the producer, the merchant is a consumer finder. To the consumer, he is a commodity finder. With the merchant as medium of exchange, the producer gets a better price for his produce, and the buyer better value for his money. One of Say's great contributions was to apply utility theory to the theory of distribution, 
in brief by discovering the productivity theory of the pricing and hence the income accruing to factors of production. In the first place, Say pointed out that in contrast to Smith, all labor, not just labor embodied in material objects, is productive. Indeed, Say brilliantly pointed out that all the services of factors of production, whether they be land, labor, or capital, are immaterial, even though they might result in a material product. Factors, in short, provide immaterial services in the process of production. That process, as Say pointed out clearly for the first time, was not the creation of material products. Man cannot create matter. He can only transform it into different shapes and molds in order to satisfy his wants more fully. Production is this very transformation process. In the sense of such transformation, all labor is productive because it concurs in the creation of a product, or, metaphorically, in the creation of utilities. If, as can happen, labor has been expended to no ultimate benefit, then the result is error, folly or waste in the person bestowing the labor. One example of unproductive labor is crime, not only a non- but an anti-market activity. There, trouble, effort, is directed to the stripping another person of the goods in his possession by means of fraud or violence. It degenerates to absolute criminality, and there results no production, but only a forcible transfer of wealth from one individual to another. J.B. Say also put clearly for the first time the insight that wants are unlimited. Wrote Say, There is no object of pleasure or utility whereof the mere desire may not be unlimited since every body is always ready to receive whatever can contribute to his benefit or gratification. Say denounced the proto-Galbraithian position of the British mercantilist Sir James Stewart in extolling an ascetic reduction of wants as a solution to desires outpacing production. Say heaps proper scorn on this doctrine. Upon this principle, it would be the very acme of perfection to produce nothing and to have no wants, that is to say, to annihilate human existence. Unfortunately, Say proceeds to fall prey to this very Galbraithian trap by attacking luxury and ostentation, and by maintaining that real wants are more important to the community than artificial wants. Say hastens to add, however, that government intervention is not the proper road to achieving proper affluence. On the valuing or pricing of the services of the factors, or, as Say would put it, agents of production, Say adopted the Proto-Austrian in direct contrast to the Smith-Ricardo tradition. For since subjective human desire for any object creates its value and reflects its utility, productive factors receive value because of their ability to create the utility wherein originates that desire. Ricardo, writes Say, believes that the value of products is founded upon that of productive agency, 
That is, that the value of products is determined by the value of their productive factors, or their cost of production. In contrast, Say declares, the current value of productive exertion is founded upon the value of an infinity of products compared one with another, which value is proportionate to the importance of its cooperation in the business of production. In contrast to consumer goods, Say points out, the demand for productive factors does not originate in immediate enjoyment, but rather in the value of the product they are capable of raising, which itself originates in the utility of that product, or the satisfaction it may be capable of affording. In short, the value of factors is determined by the value of their products, which in turn is conferred by consumer valuations and demands. The causal chain, for say, as for the later Austrians, is from consumer valuations to consumer goods prices to the pricing of productive factors, that is, to costs of production. In contrast, the Smithian, and especially the Ricardian causal chain, is from cost of production, and especially labor cost, to consumer goods prices. By speaking of the proportionate value of each factor, Say once again comes to the edge of a marginal productivity theory of imputation of consumer to factor valuations, and to the edge of a variable proportions analysis. But he does not reach it. Say did not rest content with a general, even if pioneering, analysis of the pricing of productive factors. He goes on to virtually create the famous triad of classical economics, land, or natural agents, labor, or industry, for say, and capital. Labor works on or employs natural agents to create capital, which is then used to multiply productivity in collaboration with land and labor. Although capital is the previous creation of labor, once in existence it is used by labor to increase production. If there are classes of factors of production, what easier trap to fall into than to maintain that each class receives the kind of income attributed to it in common parlance? That is, labor receives wages, land receives rent, and capital receives interest. Surely a common-sense approach. And so, Say adopted it. While useful as a first attempt, accepting the forgotten Turgot to clarify production theory out of Adam Smith's muddle, this superficial clarity comes at the expense of deep fallacy that would not be uncovered until the Austrians. In the first place, these three rigidly separated categories already begin to break down in Say's interesting insight that laborers lend their services to owners of capital and land, and earn wages thereby. That landowners lend their land to capital and labor, and earn rent. And that capitalists lend their capital to earn interest. For how exactly do these payments differ? How does rent as a loan price compare with interest as a loan? 
and how do wages differ from interest or rent? In fact, the muddle is even worse, for workers and landowners don't lend their services, they are not creditors. On the contrary, in a deep sense, capitalists lend them money by giving them money in advance of selling the product to the consumers. And so workers and landowners are debtors to the capitalists and pay them a natural rate of interest. And finally, this classical triad rests on a basic equivocation, as Bombaverk would eventually point out, between capital and capital goods. Capital as a fund of savings or lending may earn interest. But capital goods, which are the real physical factors of production rather than money funds, do not earn interest. Like all other factors, capital goods earn a price, a price per unit of time for their services. If you will, capital goods, land, and laborers all earn such prices, in the sense of rents, defining a rental price as a price of any good per unit of time. This price is determined by the productivity of each factor. But then, where does interest on capital funds come from? Thus, in grappling with the problem of interest, Say criticizes Smith and the Smithians for focusing on labor as the sole factor of production and neglecting the cooperating role of capital. Tackling the Smith-Ricardian and what would later be the Marxian riposte, that capital is simply accumulated labor, Say replies, yes, but the services of capital once built are there and continue anew and must be paid for. While satisfactory enough on one level, the answer does not solve the problem of where the net return on capital funds comes from, a return which Turgot and then the Austrians explained as the price of time preference, of the fact, in short, that capital is not only accumulated labor, but also accumulated time. Despite the lack of resolution of the problem of interest, Say set forth an excellent analysis of capital in the sense of capital goods and its crucial role in production and in increasing economic wealth. Man, he pointed out, transforms natural agents into capital to work further with nature to arrive at consumer goods. The more he has built capital goods, the more tools and machinery, the more can man harness nature to make labor increasingly productive. More machinery means an increase in productivity of labor and a fall in the cost of production. Such increase in capital is particularly beneficial to the mass of consumers, for competition lowers the price of product as well as the cost of production. Furthermore, increased machinery permits a superior quality of product and allows the creation of new products which would not have been available under handicraft production. The enormous increase in production and rise in the standard of living releases human energies from the scramble for subsistence to permit cultivation of the arts, even of frivolity, and, most importantly, for the cultivation of the intellectual faculties.
Say follows Smith in his discussion of the division of labor and in pointing out that the degree of that division is limited by the extent of the market. But Say's discussion is far sounder. He shows first that expanding the division of labor needs a great deal of capital, so that investment of capital becomes the crucial point rather than its division per se. He also points out that in contrast to Smith, the crucial specialization of labor is not simply within a factory, as in Smith's famous pin factory, but ranges over the entire economy and forms the basis for all exchange between producers. Say also saw that the essence of investing capital is advancing money payments to factors of production, an advance that is repaid later by the consumer. Thus, the capital employed on a productive operation is always a mere advance made for payment of a productive service and reimbursed by the value of their resulting product. Here he captured the essence of the Austrian insight into capital as a process over time and one that involves payment in advance for production. Say also anticipated the Austrian concept of stages of production. He pointed out that instead of waiting a long time for reimbursement by the consumer, the capitalist at each stage of production purchases the product of the previous stage and thereby reimburses the previous set of capitalists. As Say lucidly puts it, the miner extracts the ore from the bowels of the earth. The iron founder pays him for it. Here ends the miner's production, which is paid for by an advance out of the capital of the iron founder. This latter next smelts the ore, refines and makes it into steel, which he sells to the cutler. Thus is the production of the founder paid, and his advance reimbursed by a second advance on the part of the cutler, made in the price of the steel. This again the cutler works up into razor blades, the price for which replaces his advance of capital, and at the same time pays for his productive agency. Generalizing, each successive producer makes the advance to his precursor of the then value of the product, including the labor already expended upon it. His successor in the order of production reimburses him in turn, with the addition of such value as the product may have received in passing through his hands. Finally, the last producer, who is generally the retail dealer, is compensated by the consumer for the aggregate of all these advances, plus the concluding operation performed by himself upon the product. In the end, the money paid by the consumers for the final product, say razor blades, repays capitalists for their previous advances for the various services of the factors of production. Turning to wages and the labor market, Say pointed out that wages will be highest relative to the price of capital and land, where labor is scarcest relative to the other two factors. This will be either whenever land is virtually unlimited in supply and or when an abundance of capital creates a great demand for labor. 
Furthermore, wage rates will be proportionate to the danger, trouble, or obnoxiousness of the work, to the irregularity of the employment, to the length of training, and to the degree of skill or talent. As Say puts it, every one of these causes tends to diminish the quantity of labor in circulation in each department, and consequently to vary its wage rate. In recognizing the differences of natural talent, Say advanced far beyond the egalitarianism of Adam Smith and of neoclassical economics since Smith's day. In the long run, capital will earn the same return in all firms and industries. But this is only true in the long run, since for one thing there are inevitable immobilities of land, labor, and capital. To say the profits or interest on capital stems from its productive services. Again, a fundamental confusion between capital as a fund, which earns interest, and capital goods, which are productive factors and earn prices and incomes for their productivity. But despite this basic error, Say had many shrewd things to say about interest. He was possibly the first economist, for example, to show that risk premiums are added to the basic interest rate, so that riskier debtors will pay higher interest. Risk, he pointed out, depends on expected safety of the investment, the personal credit and character of the borrower, the past record of the borrower, and the ability or willingness of the government of the debtor's country to enforce the payment of debt. Furthermore, Say introduced an innovation theory of profit by stating that since new methods of employing capital are more uncertain, they are especially risky, and hence they will tend to be more profitable. Thus, innovation profits are subsumed under risk. Say was also insistent that interest on the loan market is determined by the demand for capital, to which it is directly proportional, and the supply of capital, inversely proportional. A champion of freedom of the loan market, usury is no worse morally than rent or wages, he also demonstrated that it was a fallacy that the quantity of money either lowers or raises the rate of interest. Say perceptively pointed out that it is an abuse of words to talk of the interest of money. It is really interest on savings, not money, and loans can and do occur in kind as well as in money. Wrote Say, The abundance or scarcity of money or of its substitutes no more affects the rate of interest than the abundance or scarcity of cinnamon or wheat or of silk. 6. The Entrepreneur If Adam Smith purged economic thought of the very existence of the entrepreneur, J.B. Say, to his everlasting credit, brought him back. Not quite as far back, to be sure, as in the days of Cantillon and Turgot, but enough to continue fitfully and underground in continental economic thought, even though absent from the dominant mainstream of British classicism. Emphasis on the real world rather than on long-run equilibrium almost forced a return to the study of the entrepreneur. 
For, say, the entrepreneur, the linchpin of the economy, takes on himself the responsibility, the conduct, and the risk of running his firm. He almost always owns some of the firm's capital, say, being familiar with the fact that the dominant entrepreneur and risk-taker in the economy is the one who is also a capitalist, an owner of capital. The owner of capital or land or personal service hires these services out to the renter or entrepreneur. In return for fixed payments to these factors, the entrepreneur takes upon himself the speculative risk of gaining profit or suffering loss. It is a sort of speculative bargain wherein the renter takes the risk of profit and loss according to the revenue he may realize, or the product obtained by the agency transferred shall exceed or fall short of the rent or hire he is to pay. The entrepreneur, say adds, acts as a broker between sellers and buyers, applying productive factors proportionate to the demand for the products. The demand for the products, in turn, is proportionate to their utilities and to the quantity of other products exchanging for them. The entrepreneur constantly compares the selling prices of products with their costs of production. If he decides to produce more, his demand for productive factors will rise. Part of the profits accruing to the capitalist entrepreneur will be the standard return on capital. But apart from that, Say declared, there will be a return to the peculiar character of the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is a manager of the business, but his role is also broader in Say's view. The entrepreneur must have judgment, perseverance, and a knowledge of the world as well as of business, as he applies knowledge to the process of creating consumer goods. He must employ laborers, purchase raw material, attempt to keep costs low, and find consumers for his product. Above all, he must estimate the importance of the product, the probable demand for it, and the availability of the means of production. And, finally, he must have a ready knack of calculation to compare the charges of production with the probable value of the product when completed and brought to market. Those who lack these qualities will be unsuccessful as entrepreneurs and suffer losses and bankruptcies. Those who remain will be the skillful and successful ones earning profits. Say was critical of Smith and the Smithians for failing to distinguish the category of entrepreneurial profit from the profit of capital, both of which are mixed together in the profits of real-world enterprises. Say also appreciated entrepreneurship as the driving force of the allocations and adjustments of the market economy. He summed up those workings of the market by stating that the wants of consumers determine what will be produced. The product most wanted is most in demand, and that which is most in demand yields the largest profit to industry, capital, and land which are therefore employed in raising this particular product in preference, and vice versa. When a product becomes less in demand, there is a less profit to be got by its production. It is, therefore, no longer produced.
Such astute analysts as Schumpeter and Hébert are critical of Say as having a view of the entrepreneur as a static manager and organizer rather than as a dynamic bearer of risk and uncertainty. We cannot share that view. It seems to us that Say is instead four-square in the Cantillon-Turgot tradition of the entrepreneur as forecaster and risk-bearer. From his analysis of capital, entrepreneurship, and the market, J.B. Say concluded for laissez-faire, the producers themselves are the only competent judges of the transformation, export, and import of these various matters and commodities, and every government which interferes, every system calculated to influence production, can only do mischief. 7. Say's Law of Markets While J.B. Say has been almost totally ignored by mainstream economists and historians of economic thought, this is not true for one relatively minor facet of his thought that became known as Say's Law of Markets. The one point of his doctrine that the active and aggressive British Ricardians got out of Say was this law. James Mill, the Lenin of the Ricardian movement, appropriated the law in his Commerce Defended, 1808, and Ricardo adopted it from his discoverer and mentor. Say's law is simple and almost truistic and self-evident, and it is hard to escape the conviction that it has stirred up a series of storms only because of its obvious political implications and consequences. Essentially, Say's law is a stern and proper response to the various economic ignoramuses, as well as self-seekers, who, in every economic recession or crisis, begin to complain loudly about the terrible problem of general overproduction, or, in the common language of Say's day, a general glut of goods on the market. Overproduction means production in excess of consumption, that is, production is too great in general compared to consumption, and hence products cannot be sold in the market. If production is too large in relation to consumption, then obviously this is a problem of what is now called market failure, a failure which must be compensated by the intervention of government. Intervention would have to take one or both of the following forms— reduce production, or artificially stimulate consumption. The American New Deal in the 1930s did both, with no success in relieving the alleged problem. Production can be reduced, as in the case of the New Deal, by the government's organizing compulsory cartels of business to force a cut in their output. Stimulating consumer demand has long been the particularly favored program of interventionists. Generally, this is done by the government and its central bank inflating the money supply, and or by the government incurring heavy deficits, its spending passing for a surrogate consumption. Indeed, government deficits would seem to be ideal for the overproduction under consumptionists. For if the problem is too much production and or too little consumer spending, then the solution is to stimulate a lot of unproductive consumption. And who is better at that than government, 
which by its very nature is unproductive and even counterproductive. Say understandably reacted in horror to this analysis and to the prescription. In the first place, he pointed out, the wants of man are unlimited and will continue to be until we achieve genuine general superabundance, a world marked by the prices of all goods and services falling to zero. But at that point there would be no problem of finding consumer demand, or indeed any economic problem at all. There would be no need to produce, to work, or to worry about accumulating capital, and we would all be in the Garden of Eden. Thus, Say postulates a situation where all costs of production are at last reduced to zero, in which case it is evident there can no longer be rent for land, interest upon capital, or wages on labor, and consequently no longer any revenue to the productive classes. What will happen then? What, then, I say, these classes would no longer exist? Every object of human want would stand in the same predicament as the air or the water, which are consumed without the necessity of being either produced or purchased. In like manner, as everyone is rich enough to provide himself with air, so would he be to provide himself with every other imaginable product. This would be the very acme of wealth, Political economy would no longer be a science. We should have no occasion to learn the mode of acquiring wealth, for we should find it ready-made to our hands. Since, apart from the Garden of Eden, production always falls short of man's wants, this means that there is no need to worry about any lack of consumption. The problem that limits wealth and living standards is a deficiency of production. On the market, Say points out, producers exchange their products for money, and they use the money to buy the products of others. That is the essence of the exchange or market economy. Therefore, the supply of one good constitutes, at bottom, the demand for other goods. Consumption demand is simply the embodiment of the supply of other products, whose owners are seeking to purchase the products in question. Far better to have demand emerging from the supply of other products, as on the free market, than for the government to stimulate consumer demand without any corresponding production. For the government to stimulate consumption by itself is no benefit to commerce. For the difficulty lies in supplying the means, not in stimulating the desire for consumption, and we have seen that production alone furnishes the means. Since genuine demand only comes from the supply of products, and since the government is not productive, it follows that government spending cannot truly increase demand. A value once created is not augmented by being seized and expanded by the government instead of by an individual. The man that lives upon the productions of other people originates no demand for those productions. He merely puts himself in the place of the producer, to the great injury of production. But, if there can be no general overproduction short of the Garden of Eden, then why do businessmen and observers so often complain about a general glut? In one sense, a surplus of one or more commodities simply means that 
too little has been produced of other commodities for which they might exchange. Looked at in another way, since we know that an increased supply of any product lowers its price, then if any unsold surplus of one or more goods exists, this price should fall, thereby stimulating demand so that the full amount will be purchased. There can never be any problem of overproduction or underconsumption on the free market, because prices can always fall until the markets are cleared. While Say did not always put the matter in these precise terms, he saw it clearly enough, particularly in his letters to Malthus, in his controversy with the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus over Say's law. Those who complain about overproduction or underconsumption rarely talk in terms of price, yet these concepts are virtually meaningless if the price system is not always held in mind. The question should always be, production or sales at what price? Demand or consumption at what price? There is never any genuine unsold surplus or glut, whether specific or general, over the whole economy, if prices are free to fall to clear the market and eliminate the surplus. Moreover, Say wrote in his letters to Malthus, if the quantity sent in the slightest degree exceeds the want, it is sufficient to alter the price considerably. It is this notion of what we would now call elasticity and resulting sharp changes in price that, for say, leads many people to mistake a slight excess of supply for an excessive abundance. The policy implications of attending to the price system are crucial. It means that to cure a glut, whether specific or pervasive, the remedy is not for the government to spend or create money. It is to allow prices to fall so that the market will be cleared. In his letters to Malthus, Say offers the following example. One hundred sacks of wheat are produced and exchanged for one hundred pieces of cloth or rather, each is exchanged for money and then for the other commodity. Suppose that productivity and output of each is doubled, and now two hundred sacks of wheat are exchanged for two hundred pieces of cloth. How is superabundance or overproduction going to affect either or both commodities? And if, by producing one hundred units of each product, the producer made thirty francs profit, why couldn't the resulting increase of production and fall in the price of each product still reap thirty francs profit for each seller? And how can general glut arise? Yet Malthus would have to maintain that part of the new production of cloth would find no buyers. Say then notes that Malthus in a sense conceded the point about prices falling due to increased production, and then fell back on a second line of defense, that productions will fall to too low a price to pay for the labor necessary to their production. Here we come to the nub of the overproductionist, underconsumptionist complaints, 
If we can get past their foggy aggregative concepts and their real or seeming neglect of the fact that a lower price of any product can always clear the market. In reply, Say noted that Malthus, having unfortunately adopted the labor theory of value, neglected to add the productive services of land and capital to labor in the costs of production, so that the assertion is that selling prices will fall below the costs of production. But where do costs come from? And why are they somehow fixed, exogenous to the market system itself? How are they determined? Although Ricardo joined with Say on the question of overproduction, it was easy for a British follower of Smith and Ricardo, such as Malthus, on cost theories of value, to fall into this trap, and to assume that costs are somehow fixed and invariant. Say, believing as we have seen that costs are determined by selling price rather than the other way round, was impelled to a far clearer and more correct picture of the entire matter. Returning to his example, Say points out that if the wheat and cloth producers double the quantity produced with the same productive services, this means not only that the prices of wheat and cloth will fall, but also that factor productivity has risen in both industries. A rise of factor productivity means a lowering of cost. But this means that an increase in output will not only lower selling price, it will also lower costs. So there is no reason to assume grievous losses or even a lessening of profit if prices fall. Apparently, Say continued, Malthus is worried about the prices of productive services remaining high and therefore keeping costs too high as production increases. But here, Say brings in a brilliantly perceptive point. Prices of productive factors must be high for a reason. They are not preordained to be high. But this high wage or rent in itself precisely denotes that what we seek for exists. That is to say, that there is a mode of employing them so as to make the produce sufficient to repay what they cost. In short, factor prices being high means that they have been bid up to that height by alternative uses for them. If the costs of these factors seriously impinge upon or erase the profits of a firm or industry, this is because these factors are more productive elsewhere and have been bid up to reflect that vital fact. Say's reasoning is strikingly similar to the modern free trade reply to the cheap labor argument for protective tariffs. The reason why labor is more expensive, say in the United States or other industrialized countries, is that other American industries have bid up these labor costs. These industries are therefore more efficient than the industry suffering from competition, and hence the latter should cut back or shut down, and allow resources to shift to more efficient and productive fields. In more peripheral but still relevant areas, J.B. Say engaged in some lovely and powerful examples of reductio ad absurdum argument. 
thus on the importance of demand vis-à-vis supply and on the question of gluts, he asked what would have happened if a merchant shipped a current cargo to the site of New York City in the early 17th century. Clearly, he wouldn't have been able to sell his cargo. Why not? Why this glut? Because no one in the New York area was producing enough other goods to exchange for this cargo. And why would this merchant be sure to sell his cargo nowadays in New York City? Because there are now enough producers in the New York area to make and import products by the means of which they acquire that which is offered to them by others. It would have been absurd to state that the problem about the 17th century cargo was there were too many producers and not enough consumers. Say adds that the only real consumers are those who produce on their part, because they alone can buy the produce of others, while barren consumers can buy nothing except by the means of value created by producers. He concludes eloquently that it is the capability of production which makes the difference between a country and a desert. The other potent reductio, also in his letters to Malthus, is part of his defense of innovation and machinery against charges of overproduction. Malthus, say notes, concedes that machinery is beneficial when the production of the product is so increased that employment in that field increases also. But, say adds, new machinery is advantageous even in the seeming worst case, when production of the particular good is not increased and laborers are discharged. For, first, in the latter case, as well as the former, productivity increases, selling prices fall, and standards of living rise. Besides, writes Say, bringing in the reductio, tools are vital to mankind. To propose, as Malthus does, to limit and restrain the introduction of new machinery, is to argue implicitly that we ought, retrograding rather than advancing the career of civilization, successively to renounce all the discoveries we have already made, and to render our arts more imperfect in order to multiply our labor by diminishing our enjoyments. As to laborers disemployed by the introduction of new machinery, Say writes that they can and will move elsewhere. After all, he adds caustically, the employer who brings in new machinery does not compel them, the laborers, to remain unemployed, but only to seek another occupation. And many employment opportunities will open up for these laborers, since income in society has increased due to the new machinery and product. Echoing Turgot, Say also counters the Malthus-Sismondi worry about the leaking out of savings from vital spendings, pointing out that savings do not remain unspent. They are simply spent on other productive or reproductive factors rather than consumption. Rather than injuring consumption, saving is invested and thereby increases future consumer spending. Historically, savings and consumption thereby grow together, and just as there is no necessary limit to production, so there is no limit to investment and the accumulation of capital. 
a produce created was a vent opened for another produce, and this is true whether the value of it is spent on consumption or added to savings. Conceding that sometimes the savings might be hoarded, Say was for once less than satisfactory. He pointed out correctly that eventually the hoard will be spent, either on consumption or investment, since, after all, that is what money is for. Yet he admitted that he too deplored hoarding, and yet, as Turgot had hinted, hoarded cash balances that reduce spending will have the same effect as overproduction at too high a price. The lower demand will reduce prices all round. Real cash balances will rise, and all markets will again be cleared. Unfortunately, Say did not grasp this point. Say, however, was again powerful and hard-hitting in his critique of Malthus' belief in the importance of maintaining unproductive consumption by government. Income and consumption by government officials, soldiers, and state pensioners. Say argued that these people live off production, whereas productive consumers add to the supply of goods and services. Say continued sardonically, I cannot think that those who pay taxes would be at a loss what to do with their money if the collector did not come to their assistance. Either their wants would be more amply satisfied, or they would employ the same money in a reproductive manner. In contrast to his opponents who wished the government to stimulate consumer demand, Say believed that problems of glut, as well as poverty in general, could be solved by increasing production. And so he inveighed in many passages against excessive taxation, which raised the costs and prices of goods, and crippled production and economic growth. In essence, J.B. Say countered the statist proposals of the underconsumptionists Malthus and Sismondi by an activist program of his own, the libertarian one of slashing taxation. Say combined his anti-tax insights with his critique of Malthus' fondness for government spending via a trenchant attack on Malthus and the public debt, Say noted that Malthus, still convinced that there are classes who render service to society simply by consuming without producing, would consider it a misfortune if the whole or a great part of the English national debt were paid off. On the contrary, rebutted Say, this would be a highly beneficial event for England. For the result would be that the stockholders, government bondholders being paid off, would obtain some income from their capital. That those who pay taxes would themselves spend the forty million sterling which they now pay to the creditors of the state. That the forty millions of taxes being taken off, all productions would be cheaper, and the consumption would considerably increase that it would give work to the laborer in place of saber cuts, which are now dealt out to them. And I confess that these consequences do not appear to me of a nature to terrify the friends of public welfare. 8. Recession and the Storm Over Say's Law We come now to a final critical question about Say's Law. Why did the storm over the law appear only in two massive clusters? 
for the timing of the swirling controversy over the law is no accident. J. B. Say coined the law in 1803, and James Mill brought it to Britain in 1808, converting Ricardo and his disciples. But why was there no particular controversy over the law until much later? Specifically, the storm erupted in 1819, when the French-Swiss economist Jean-Charles-Léonard Simon de Sismondi, 1773-1842, published his New Principles of Political Economy. Sismondi's book was followed the next year by the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, 1766-1834, Principles of Political Economy, 1820. The odd point is that both these men had been ardent Smithians for two decades. Why publish these heretical, under-consumptionist views at virtually the same moment? Sismondi's aristocratic Florentine family had settled in France only as Huguenots to be driven by persecution to settle in Geneva, the Calvinist heartland. Sismondi was born in Geneva, the son of a Calvinist clergyman. When the radical influence of the French Revolution reached Geneva, the Sismondis moved to London, where young Sismondi had a chance to study and participate in English business affairs. Sismondi settled down as a farmer in Tuscany in the late 1790s, publishing a physiocratic tract on Tuscan agriculture in 1801. Soon after, he became an ardent follower of Adam Smith and published his two-volume Smithian work on commercial wealth in Geneva in the same year, 1803, that Say published his famous treatise. While Say skyrocketed to influence and fame, Sismondi's work was ignored and remained totally unknown outside France. Perhaps resentment at this fate played a role in Sismondi's radical conversion, embodied in his new principles. But the timing, the prompting for this conversion, was critical— namely, the end in 1815 of a generation of massive war and inflation in Europe, led quickly and inevitably to a post-war deflation and depression. Recessions, especially on such a grand scale, were new phenomena in Europe. There was, therefore, no body of theoretical explanation, and hence the typical business cry of glut or overproduction struck a chord among many observers. In the case of Sismondi, it led him straight away and permanently into a thoroughgoing and lifelong statism, including the advocacy of a comprehensive welfare state a deep hostility to capitalism and the factory system, and a call for return to a simple agrarian economy. In the second edition of his New Principles in 1827, Sismondi, in his preface, proclaims the new economics or new liberalism, which invokes government intervention instead of laissez-faire. Sismondi was offered a professorship of political economy at the University of Vilna on the strength of his first book. The new principles brought him an offer from the Sorbonne. 
but Sismondi preferred to remain in Geneva, churning out a remarkably prolific series of historical works, including a 16-volume history of the Italian republics in the Middle Ages and a 31-volume history of the French, and tending to the life of a gentleman farmer. On his farm he fought against overproduction in his own dotty way, making sure that production would be as low as possible by choosing the feeblest workers for employment on the farm, and deliberately having his house repaired by an incompetent worker. One wonders why he did not go all the way in his living the exemplary life of underproduction and stop working or producing altogether. Thoroughly embittered at the lack of recognition of his socialistic views, Sismondi wrote shortly before his death in 1842, I leave this world without having made the slightest impression, and nothing will be done. Would that he had been right. Far more of an impact at the time was made by the simultaneous conversion to under-consumptionism by the Reverend Malthus. Malthus, son of an aristocratic country gentleman, graduated from Cambridge with honors in mathematics, and was ordained in the Anglican clergy. After serving as a fellow of a college in Cambridge, Malthus became a country curate, writing his famous Essay on Population in 1798. Malthus was more than the gloomy population theorist that made his name. He was also an ardent Smithian economist. In 1804, Malthus became the first academic economist in England, taking up a chair of history and political economy at the new, small, East India College of Haleybury, established by the East India Company to train future employees. Not only was he the first, Malthus was to remain the only academic political economist in England for the next two decades. Malthus was a firm friend of Ricardo, and his break with the Smith-Ricardo tradition on underconsumption did not mar their close friendship. The controversy gave rise to a famous correspondence between them, and when Ricardo died in 1823, he left Malthus a small legacy as a token of their camaraderie. More important is the fact that Malthus lost interest in his under-consumptionist heresy after 1824, and quickly reverted to being a leader of Smithian classical economics. Clearly, the reason for Malthus' loss of interest was the fact that Britain recovered from the post-Napoleonic Depression after 1823, and the first storm over Say's law was over. Despite the fact that Malthus' interest in his under-consumption theory was generated and maintained solely by the post-war recession, his doctrine was, oddly enough, not a cyclical theory at all, but an alleged tendency of free markets to a permanent depression. It should also be noted that Malthus was not worried about savings leaking out into hoarding and remaining unspent. He was an overproductionist as well as an underconsumptionist, so that invested savings only made matters worse by increasing production. If commodities are already so plentiful that an adequate portion of them is not profitably consumed, to save capital can only be still further to increase the plenty of commodities, and still further to lower already low profits.
While Say, in reply to critics, did not, of course, come up with a full-fledged theory to explain the general recession and overproduction in relation to a profitable selling price, he did offer some remarkably prescient insights which have been completely overlooked by historians, perhaps because they were presented in his letters to Malthus rather than in his treatise. First, Say takes up the post-war depression in the United States. For Malthus had claimed in response to Say that since the United States enjoyed low taxes and free markets, their absence could not be the reason for the glut suffered there. Say very sensibly attributes the basic problems in the United States to the great prosperity that country had enjoyed as a neutral during most of the Napoleonic Wars so that, unburdened by blockade, its exports and its commerce enjoyed unusual prosperity. Thus, with the end of the wars in 1815 and the swift return of European maritime trade in both hemispheres, the United States was found to have over-expanded its mercantile products, and, in contrast, under-produced agricultural or manufactured goods. So, in a deep sense, the problem is not general overproduction, but an overproduction of some goods and underproduction of others. What the United States is suffering from, then, is underproduction of these other goods. The Americans could have used the increased production to exchange for more of the goods offered by the resurgent European maritime trade. Prophetically, Say predicted that a few years more, and their American industry altogether will form a mass of productions, amongst which will be found articles fit to make profitable returns, or at least profits, which the Americans will employ in the purchase of European commodities. And then, Americans and Europeans will each produce whatever they are best and most efficient at. Those commodities which the Europeans succeed in making at least expense will be carried to America, and those which the American soil and industry succeed in creating at a lower rate than others will be brought back. The nature of the demand will determine the nature of the productions. Each nation will employ itself in preference about those productions in which they have the greatest success that is, which they produce at least expense, and exchanges mutually and permanently advantageous will be the result. And how about European business? What is the problem there? Why is it depressed? Here, Say put his finger on the heart of the problem. Costs of production multiplied to excess. In short, the problem with the European Depression was not that there was a general overproduction, but that entrepreneurs had bid up costs of production, factor prices, too high, so that consumers were not willing to purchase the products at prices high enough to cover costs. The problem, in fact, was neither the producing of too many goods, nor not buying enough, but a bidding up of costs to too high a level. Say goes on to say that these excessive costs created disorders in the production, distribution, and consumption of value produced, disorders which frequently bring into the market quantities greater than the want,
keeping back those that would sell and whose owner would employ their price in the purchase of the former. In short, the bidding up of excess costs in some way distorted the production structure so as to cause a massive overproduction of some goods and an underproduction of others. After these passages, pregnant with hints of the later Austrian theory of the trade cycle, Say unfortunately goes off on a tangent in ascribing the excess costs to the taxation of industry and the market. But then he returns with a remarkably perceptive passage, attributing seeming superabundance to massive ignorance and error on the part of the entrepreneurs. This superabundance depends also upon the ignorance of producers or merchants of the nature and extent of the want in the places to which they send their commodities. In later years there have been a number of hazardous speculations on account of the many fresh connections with different nations. There was everywhere a general failure of that calculation which was requisite to a good result. In short, the problem centers on a general failure of entrepreneurial forecasting and calculation, leading to what turns out to be an excessive bidding up of costs. Unfortunately, Say does not pursue this crucial point to query why such an unusual entrepreneurial failure should have taken place. But he does go on to anticipate von Hayek's important point about entrepreneurs and producers employing the market as a learning experience to become better at estimating costs and demands on the market. Say writes, But because many things have been ill done, does it follow that it is impossible with better instruction to do better? I dare predict that as the new connections grow old, and as reciprocal wants are better appreciated, the excess of commodities will everywhere cease, and that a mutual and profitable intercourse will be established. With the recovery of Europe from the post-war depression, Say's law, at least in the rather vulgarized form adopted by the British classical school, became absorbed into the mainstream of economic thought and was challenged only by cranks and crackpots who properly constituted what Keynes later called the underworld of economics. These denizens were resurrected by John Maynard Keynes in his General Theory, which, written during the depths of another and even more intense depression, 1936, hailed them all, from Malthus to later underconsumptionists, and to the egregious German-Argentinian merchant Silvio Gesell, 1862-1930, who urged that the government force everyone to spend money in a brief period of time after receiving it. Gesell's objective, as in the case of the most flagrant money cranks, was to lower the rate of interest to zero, a goal Keynes was later to echo in his call for the euthanasia of the rentier, bondholder. It is perhaps fitting that this gazelle, whom Keynes called the strange, unduly neglected prophet, capped his dubious career by becoming the finance minister of the short-lived revolutionary Soviet Republic of Bavaria in 1919. 
Cain's own doctrine followed in the line of Malthus and the others, except that underspending in general was substituted for underconsumption as the allegedly critical economic problem. Keynes made a denunciation of Say's law the centerpiece of his system. In stating it, Keynes badly vulgarized and distorted the law, leaving out the central role of price adjustments, and had the law saying simply that total spending on output will equal total incomes received in production. Since Keynes' day, economists have managed to obfuscate Say's rather simple notion, with a welter of turgid discussions, of Say's alleged principle, or identity, made all the more obscure by a plentiful use of mathematics, a form of alleged explication particularly out of place when dealing with such an anti-mathematical theorist as J.B. Say. 9. The Theory of Money Say's excellent discussion of money, like most of the rest of his doctrine, has been grievously neglected by historians of thought. He begins by setting forth a theory of how money originates that was later to be developed in a famous article by Carl Menger and would form the basis of the first chapter in every money and banking text for generations. Money, he pointed out, originates out of barter. To facilitate exchanges and overcome the difficulties of barter, people on the market begin to use particularly marketable commodities as media of exchange. Specifically, under barter, everyone, in order to buy a product, must find someone who desires his own specific product, and this soon becomes very difficult. Thus, the hungry cutler must offer the baker his knives for bread. Perhaps the baker has knives enough, but wants a coat. He is willing to purchase one of the tailors with his bread, but the tailor wants not bread, but butcher's meat, and so on, to infinity. How to overcome this problem of what later came to be called the double coincidence of wants? By finding a more generally marketable commodity which the seller will take in exchange. By way of getting over this difficulty, the cutler, finding he cannot persuade the baker to take an article he does not want, will use his best endeavors to have a commodity to offer which the baker will be able readily to exchange again for whatever he may happen to need. If there exist in the society any specific commodity that is in general request, not merely on account of its inherent utility, but likewise on account of the readiness with which it is received in exchange for the necessary articles of consumption, that commodity is precisely what the cutler will try to barter his knives for because he has learnt from experience that its possession will procure him without any difficulty by a second act of exchange, bread, or any article he may wish for. That commodity is precisely the money in that society. Say then goes on into a by now familiar analysis of which commodities are most likely to be chosen on the market as monies. A money commodity must have a high inherent value, that is, value in its pre-monetary use. 
It must also be physically easily divisible, preserving a proportionate quota of its value when divided. It should have a high value per unit weight, so that it will be both scarce and valuable, and easily portable, and it must be durable, so it can be retained as value for a long time. Of course, once a commodity is chosen as a general medium of exchange, its value becomes much higher than it had been in the pre-monetary state. Say follows the continental tradition of assimilating money to all other commodities. That is, the value of money, as of all other commodities, is determined by the interaction of its supply and its demand. Its value, its purchasing power on the market, moves directly with its demand and inversely with its supply. While he lacked the marginal approach, Say pointed the way to the eventual integration of a utility theory of goods with money. Since money, too, is an object of desire, its utility is the basis for its demand on the market. Say also criticized Ricardo and the British classical school for attempting to explain the value of money not by utility or supply and demand, but, as in the case of all other goods, by its cost of production. In the case of money, only the supply of money and not the demand was considered important, and the supply was supposedly governed by the cost of mining gold or silver. Say was a hard money man, insistent that all paper must be instantly convertible into specie. Irredeemable paper expands rapidly in quantity and depreciates the value of the currency, and Say pointed to the recent issue by the revolutionary French government of the Assignat, inconvertible paper that depreciated eventually to zero. Say was thus able to analyze one of the first examples of runaway inflation. If the national money is deteriorated, it becomes an object to get rid of it in any way and exchange it for commodities. This was one of the causes of the prodigious circulation that took place during the progressive depreciation of the French assignat. Everybody was anxious to find some employment for a paper currency whose value was hourly depreciating. It was only taken to be reinvested immediately, and one might have supposed it burnt the fingers it passed through. Say also pointed out that inflation systematically injures creditors for the benefit of debtors. Say was highly critical of the Smith-Ricardo yen to find an absolute and invariable measure of the value of money. He pointed out that while the relative values of money to other prices can be estimated, they are not susceptible to measurement. The value of gold or silver or coin is not fixed, but variable, as is that of any commodity. One of the splendid parts of Say's theory of money was his trenchant critique of bimetallism. He was insistent that the government's fixing the ratio of the weights of the two precious metals was doomed to failure, and only caused perpetual fluctuations and shortages of one or the other metals. Say called for parallel standards, that is, for freely fluctuating exchange rates between gold and silver,
As he pointed out, gold and silver must be left to find their own mutual level in the transactions in which mankind may think proper to employ them. And again, the relative value of gold and silver must be left to regulate itself, for any attempt to fix it would be in vain. While at one point Say inconsistently looks with favor on Ricardo's plan for a central bank redeeming its notes only in gold bullion and not even coin, the general thrust of his discussion is for ultra-hard money. On the whole, Say comes out for 100% specie money, for a money where paper is only a certificate backed fully by gold or silver, a medium composed entirely of either silver or gold, bearing a certificate, pretending to none but its real intrinsic value, and consequently exempt from the caprice of legislation, would hold out such advantages to every department of commerce that it would be adopted by all nations. So insistent was Say on separating money from government that he called for changing the national names of monies to actual units of weight of gold or silver, for example, grams instead of francs. In that way there would be a genuinely worldwide commodity money, and the government could not impose legal tender laws for paper money or debase currency standards. The entire current monetary system, say writes happily, would thenceforth fall to the ground, a system replete with fraud, injustice, and robbery, and moreover so complicated as rarely to be thoroughly understood even by those who make it their profession. It would ever after be impossible to effect an adulteration of the coin. In short, Say concludes eagerly, the coinage of money would become a matter of perfect simplicity, a mere branch of metallurgy. Indeed, the only role that Say would inconsistently reserve for government is a monopoly of the coinage, since that coinage was to be this simple branch of metallurgy that government could presumably not cripple or destroy. There is not a great deal of analysis of banking in Say's treatise, but despite his aberration in being favorable to the Ricardo plan for a central bank bullion standard, the main thrust of his discussion is, once again, to separate government from bank credit expansion, either by a 100% reserve banking system or by freely competitive banking, which would presumably approximate that condition. Thus Say writes highly favorably of the 100% reserve banks of Hamburg and Amsterdam. Free banks of circulation, issuing banknotes, he holds to be far better than a monopoly central bank, for the competition obliges each of them to court the public favor by a rivalship of accommodation and solidity and if these banks are not to be based on 100% specie reserve, which Say indicates would be the best system, competition would keep them investing in sound, very short-term credit, which could easily be used to redeem their banknotes. 10. The State and Taxation 
Amidst the morass of bland economic writings on taxation, Jean-Baptiste Say stands out like a beacon light. It is true that he was unusually devoted, even in that generally liberal era, to laissez-faire and the rights of private property, and only waffled a very few times in that creed. But for some reason, most laissez-faire and libertarian thinkers in history have not really considered taxation to be an invasion of the rights of private property. In J.B. Say, however, an implacable hostility to taxation pervades his work. He tended to make it responsible for all the economic evils of society, even, as we have seen, for recessions and depressions. Say's discussion of taxation was brilliant and unique, and yet, as with almost all his work, it has received no attention whatever from the historians of economic thought. In contrast to almost all other economists, Say had an astonishingly clear-sighted view of the true nature of the state and of its taxation. In Say there was no mystical quest for some truly voluntary state, nor any view of the state as a benign, semi-business organization supplying services to a public grateful for its numerous benefits. No, Say saw clearly that the services government indubitably supplies are to itself and to its favorites, and that all government spending is therefore consumption spending by the politicians and the bureaucracy. He also saw that the tax funds for that spending are extracted by coercion at the expense of the taxpaying public. As Say points out, the government exacts from a taxpayer the payment of a given tax in the shape of money. To meet this demand, the taxpayer exchanges part of the products at his disposal for coin, which he pays to the tax-gatherers. The money is then spent for the government's consumption needs, so that the portion of wealth which passes from the hands of the taxpayer into those of the tax-gatherer is destroyed and annihilated. Were it not for taxes, the taxpayer would have spent his own money on his own consumption. As it is, the state enjoys the satisfaction resulting from that consumption. Say goes on to attack the prevalent notion that tax monies are no burden on the economy, since they simply return to the community via the expenditures of government. Say is indignant. This is gross fallacy, but one that has been productive of infinite mischief, inasmuch as it has been the pretext for a great deal of shameless waste and dilapidation. The value paid to government by the taxpayer is given without equivalent or return. It is expended by the government in the purchase of personal service, of objects of consumption. Thus, in contrast to the naive Smith's purblind assumption that taxation always confers proportional benefit, we see J.B. Say treating taxation as very close to sheer robbery, Indeed, at this point, Say revealingly quotes with approval Robert Hamilton's likening of government to a large-scale robber. Hamilton had been refuting this very point. Taxation is harmless because the money is recirculated into the economy by the state. 
Hamilton had likened such impudence to the forcible entry of a robber into a merchant's house, who should take away his money and tell him he did him no injury, for the money, or part of it, would be employed in purchasing the commodities he dealt in, upon which he would receive a profit. Hamilton might have added a Keynesian touch, that the robber's spending would benefit his victim many-fold by the benign operations of the magical multiplier. Say then comments on Hamilton's point that the encouragement afforded by the public expenditure is precisely analogous. Say then bitterly goes on to denounce the false and dangerous conclusion of writers who claim that public consumption, government expenditures, increases general wealth. But the damage is not really in the writing. If such principles were to be found only in books, and had never crept into practice, one might suffer them without care or regret to swell the monstrous heap of printed absurdity. But unfortunately, these precepts have been put into practice by the agents of public authority, who can enforce error and absurdity at point of the bayonet or mouth of the cannon. In short, once again, Say sees the uniqueness of government as the exercise of force and coercion, particularly in the way it extracts its revenue. Taxation, then, is the coercive imposition of a burden upon the members of the public for the benefit of the government, or, more precisely, of the ruling class in command of the government. Thus Say writes, Taxation is the transfer of a portion of the national products from the hands of individuals to those of the government, for the purpose of meeting the public consumption or expenditure. It is virtually a burden imposed upon individuals, either in a separate or corporate character by the ruling power, for the purpose of supplying the consumption it may think proper to make at their expense. In short, an impost, in the literal sense. He is not impressed with the apologetic notion, properly ridiculed in later years by Schumpeter, that all society somehow voluntarily pays taxes for the general benefit. Instead, taxes are a burden coercively imposed on society by the ruling power. Neither is Say impressed if the taxes are voted by the legislature. To him, this does not make taxes any more voluntary, for what avails it that taxation is imposed by consent of the people or their representatives, if there exists in the state a power that by its acts can leave the people no alternative but consent? Moreover, taxation cripples rather than stimulates production, since it robs people of resources that they would rather use differently. Taxation deprives the producer of a product which he would otherwise have the option of deriving a personal gratification from if consumed, or of turning to profit if he preferred to devote it to a useful employment. Therefore, the subtraction of a product must needs diminish instead of augmenting productive power. Say engages in an instructive critique of Ricardo, which reveals the crucial difference over the latter's long-run equilibrium approach and the great difference in their respective attitudes toward taxation. 
Ricardo had maintained in his principles that since the rate of return on capital is the same in every branch of industry, taxation cannot really cripple capital. For, as Say puts it, the extinction of one branch by taxation must needs be compensated by the product of some other, towards which the industry and capital thrown out of employ will naturally be diverted. Here is Ricardo, blind to the real processes at work in the economy, stubbornly identifying a static comparison of long-run equilibrium states with the real world. Say replies forcefully and trenchantly. I answer that whenever taxation diverts capital from one mode of employment to another, it annihilates the profits of all who are thrown out of employ by the change, and diminishes those of the rest of the community. For industry may be presumed to have chosen the most profitable channel. I will go further and say that a forcible diversion of the current or production annihilates many additional sources of profit to industry. Besides, it makes a vast difference to the public prosperity whether the individual or the state be the consumer. A thriving and lucrative branch of industry promotes the creation and accumulation of new capital whereas, under the pressure of taxation, it ceases to be lucrative. Capital diminishes gradually instead of increasing. Wealth and production decline in consequence, and prosperity vanishes, leaving behind the pressure of unremitting taxation. Say then adds a charming sentence, taking a praxeological slap at Ricardo's fondness for what might be called his method of utterly unrealistic verbal mathematics. Ricardo has endeavored to introduce the unbinding maxims of geometrical demonstration in the science of political economy. There is no method less worthy of reliance. Say then goes on to heap scorn on the argument that taxes can positively stimulate people to work harder and produce more. Work harder, he replies, to furnish funds to allow the state to tyrannize still further over you? Thus, to use the expedient of taxation as a stimulative to increased production is to redouble the exertions of the community for the sole purpose of multiplying its privations rather than its enjoyments. For if increased taxation be applied to the support of a complex, overgrown, and ostentatious internal administration, or of a superfluous and disproportionate military establishment, that may act as a drain of individual wealth, and of the flower of the national youth, and an aggressor upon the peace and happiness of domestic life. Will not this be paying as dearly for a grievous public nuisance as if it were a benefit of the first magnitude? What, then, is the bottom line? What is Say's basic prescription for taxation? Indeed, what is his prescription for total public spending? Basically, it is what one might expect from a man who believed the state to be a grievous public nuisance and an aggressor upon the peace and happiness of domestic life. Quite simply, the best scheme of public finance is to spend as little as possible, and the best tax is always the lightest. 
In the next sentence, he amends the latter clause to say, the best taxes, or rather, those that are least bad. In short, J.B. Say, unique among economists, offered us a theory of total government spending as well as a theory of overall taxation, and that theory was a lucid and remarkable one, amounting to, that government is best, or least bad, that spends and taxes least. But the implications of such a doctrine are stunning, whether or not Say understood them or followed them through. For if, in the Jeffersonian phrase, that government is best that governs least, then it follows that least least is zero, and therefore, as Thoreau and Benjamin R. Tucker were later to point out, that government is best that governs, or, in this case, spends and taxes, not at all. Chapter 2. Jeremy Bentham, the Utilitarian as Big Brother 1. From Laissez-Faire to Statism Jeremy Bentham, 1748-1832, began as a devoted Smithian, but more consistently attached to laissez-faire. During his relatively brief span of interest in economics, he became more and more statist. His intensified statism was merely one aspect of his major and highly unfortunate contribution to economics, his consistent philosophical utilitarianism. This contribution, which opens a broad sluice-gate for state despotism, still remains as Bentham's legacy to contemporary neoclassical economics. Bentham was born in London, the son of a wealthy lawyer, whiled away his youth at Oxford, and was admitted to the bar in 1772. But it soon became clear that Bentham was not interested in a career as an attorney, Rather, he settled down for life with his inherited wealth to become a cloistered philosopher, legal theorist, and projector, or crank, eternally grinding out schemes for legal and political reform which he urged upon the great and powerful. Bentham's first and enduring interest was in utilitarianism, which we shall examine further below, and which he launched with his first published work at the age of twenty-eight, The Fragment on Government, 1776. Most of his life Bentham functioned as the great man, scribbling chaotically on endless and prolix manuscripts, elaborating on his projected reforms and law codes. Most of the manuscripts remained unpublished until long after his death. The affluent Bentham lived in a capacious house, surrounded by flunkies and disciples, who copied revision after revision of his illegible prose to get ready for eventual publication. He conversed with his disciples in the same made-up jargon with which he peppered his writings— while a cheery conversationalist, Bentham brooked no argument from his aides and disciples. As his precocious young disciple John Stuart Mill later recalled with kindly understatement, Bentham failed in deriving light from other minds. Because of this trait, Bentham was surrounded not by alert and knowledgeable disciples, but by largely uncomprehending aides, 
who, in the perceptive words of Professor William Thomas, looked on his work with a certain resigned skepticism, as if its faults were the result of eccentricities beyond the reach of criticism or remonstrance. As Thomas continues, the idea that he was surrounded by a band of eager disciples who drew from his system a searching critique of every aspect of contemporary society, which they were later to apply to various institutions in need of reform, is the product of later liberal myth-making. So far as I know, Bentham's circle is quite unlike that of any other great political thinker. It consisted not so much of men who found in his work a compelling explanation of the social world around them, and gathered about him to learn more of his thoughts, as of men caught in a sort of expectant bafflement at the progress of a work which they would have liked to help on to completion, but which remained maddeningly elusive and obscure. What Bentham needed desperately were sympathetic and candid editors of his work, but his relationship with his followers precluded that from happening. For this reason, adds Thomas, the steadily accumulating mass of manuscripts remained largely a terra incognita, even to the intimate members of our circle. As a result, for example, such a major work in manuscript, of laws in general, astonishingly remained unedited, let alone unpublished, until our own day. If anyone could have played this role, it was Bentham's outstanding follower, James Mill, whom we will deal with more fully below, chapter 3. In many ways, Mill had the capacity and personality to perform the task, but there were two fatal problems. First, Mill refused to abandon his own intellectual work in order to subordinate himself exclusively to aiding the master. As Thomas writes, sooner or later all Bentham's disciples faced the choice of absorption or independence. Though he was a devoted follower of Benthamite utilitarianism, Mill's personality was such that absorption for him was out of the question. Second, the slipshod and volatile Bentham desperately needed shaping up, and the brisk, systematic, didactic, and hectoring James Mill was just the man to do the shaping. But, unsurprisingly, Bentham, the great man, was not about to be shaped up by anyone. The personality clash was too great for their relationship to be anything but arm's length, even at the height of Mill's discipleship, before Mill achieved economic independence from his wealthy patron. Thus, in exasperation, Mill wrote to a close mutual friend about Bentham, the pain he seems to feel at the very thought of being called upon to give his mind to the subject, you can have but little conception of. At the same time, Bentham, even long afterwards, confided his lingering resentment of Mill to his last disciple, John Boring. He will never willingly enter into discourse with me. When he differs, he is silent. He expects to subdue everybody by his domineering tone, to convince everybody by his positiveness. His manner of speaking is oppressive and overbearing. There is no better way to summarize the personality clash between them.
Bentham's first published work, The Fragment on Government, 1776, gained young Bentham an entree into leading political circles, particularly the friends of Lord Shelburne. These included Whig politicians like Lord Camden and William Pitt the Younger, and two men who were quickly to become Bentham's close friends and earliest disciples, the Genevan Etienne Dumont and Sir Samuel Romilly. Dumont was to be the main carrier of Benthamite doctrine to the continent of Europe. While utilitarian political and legal reform continued to be his main interest throughout his life, Bentham read and absorbed the wealth of nations in the late 1770s or early 1780s, quickly becoming a devoted disciple. Although Bentham praised practically no other author, he habitually referred to Adam Smith as the father of political economy, a great master, and a writer of consummate genius. In the early 1780s, Bentham's brother Samuel, a wealthy engineer, was engaged by the Empress Catherine the Great to organize various industrial projects. Samuel invited Jeremy to stay with him in Russia which he did from the mid-1780s to the end of 1787, with a view to presenting an all-comprehensive legal code to enable that despot to govern her realm more efficiently. Bentham characteristically never completed the code for Catherine, but while in Russia he learned, falsely as it turned out, that William Pitt, now Prime Minister, was preparing to urge a reduction in the legal maximum rate of interest from 5 to 4 percent. Agitated, Bentham wrote and soon published in 1787 his first and only well-known work on economics, the scintillating and hard-hitting Defense of Usury. Trying to bring more consistency into Smithian laissez-faire, Bentham argued against all usury laws whatever. He grounded his views squarely on the concept of freedom of contract, declaring that no man of ripe years and of sound mind, acting freely and with his eyes open, ought to be hindered from making such a bargain in the way of obtaining money as he thinks fit. The presumption in any situation is for freedom of contract. You who fetter contracts, you who lay restraints on the liberty of man, it is for you to assign a reason for your doing so. Furthermore, how can usury be a crime when it is exchanged by mutual consent of lender and borrower? Usury, Bentham concludes, if it must be an offense, is an offense committed with consent, that is, with the consent of the party supposed to be injured, cannot merit a place in the catalogue of offenses, unless the consent were either unfairly obtained or unfreely. In the first case it coincides with defraudment, in the other with extortion. In his appendix to the defense of usury, Bentham restates and sharpens the Turgot-Smith defense of savings. Savings results in capital accumulation. Whoever saves money, as the phrase is, adds proportionately to the general mass of capital. The world can augment its capital in only one way, that is, by parsimony. This insight leads to the principle that capital limits trade, 
that the extent of trade or production is limited by the amount of capital that has been accumulated. In short, the trade of every nation is limited by the quantity of capital. The laissez-faire implication, as Bentham saw, is that government action or spending cannot increase the total amount of capital in society. It can only divert capital from free market to less productive uses. As a result, no regulations nor any efforts whatsoever, either on the part of subjects or governors, can raise the quantity of wealth produced during a given period to an amount beyond what the productive powers of the quantity of capital in hand are capable of producing. Defense of usury had a great impact in Britain and elsewhere. Dr. Thomas Reed, the distinguished Scottish common-sense philosopher who succeeded Adam Smith to the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow, strongly endorsed the book. The great Comte de Mirabeau, the leading force in the early stages of the French Revolution, had the work translated into French. And in the United States, the tract went into several editions, and it inspired several states to repeal their laws against usury. In the course of the defense, there are hints of valuable analysis. Lending is defined as exchanging present money for future, and other intimations of the time preference or waiting as a key to saving include such phrases as the saver having the resolution to sacrifice the present to the future. Bentham also intimates that part of interest charged includes a risk premium, a kind of insurance premium for the risk of loss incurred by the lender. During the 1780s, Bentham was also writing his Essay on Reward, published only a half-century later as The Rationale of Reward. In it, Bentham expounded enthusiastically on competition as rewards, and hailed the advantages resulting from the most unlimited freedom of competition. It was on this principle of free competition and opposition to governmental monopolies that the father of political economy had, in Bentham's over-enthusiastic words, created a new science. In his next economic work, the unpublished Manual of Political Economy, 1795, Bentham continued the laissez-faire theme of no more trade than capital. The government, he emphasized, can only divert investment funds from the private sector. It cannot raise the total level of investment. Whatever is given to any one branch is so much taken from the rest. Every statesman who thinks by regulation to increase the sum of trade is the child whose eye is bigger than his belly. Towards the end of the same work, however, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand appeared that would eventually take charge of Bentham's economic analysis. For Bentham began his rapid slide down the inflationist chute. In a kind of appendix to the work, he states that government paper money could increase capital if resources were not fully employed. There is no analysis, as of course there never is in the inflationist canon, of why these resources were unemployed in the first place, that is, why their owners withheld them from use. 
The answer must be, because the resource owner demanded an excessively high price or wage. Inflation is therefore a means of fooling resource owners into lowering their real demands. It did not take long for Jeremy Bentham to slide down the slippery slope from Adam Smith and what would be Say's Law back to mercantilism and inflationism. Shortly afterwards, in an unpublished proposal for the circulation of a new species of paper currency, 1796, Bentham happily wedded his projecting and constructivist spirit to his newfound inflationism. Instead of floating bonds and paying interest on them, the government, he proposed, should simply monopolize all issue of paper notes in the kingdom. It could then issue the notes, preferably non-interest-bearing, ad libitum, and save itself the interest. Bentham was scarcely at his best answering the question of what limit there might be to this government paper issue. The limit, he answered, would obviously be the amount of paper currency in the country. Bentham's modern editor is properly scornful of this patent claptrap. It is like saying, the sky's the limit, when we do not know how high the sky may be. In his later writings on the subject, Bentham searched for some limits to paper issue, if unsuccessfully but his commitment to a broadly inflationist course deepened further. In his unfinished Circulating Annuities, 1800, he developed his government paper scheme further and hailed the serviceability of inflation in wartime. Indeed, Bentham makes an all-out assault on the Turgot-Smith-Say insights and actually declares that employment of labor is directly proportional to the quantity of money. No addition is ever made to the quantity of labor in any place, but by an addition made to the quantity of money in that place. In this point of view, then, money, it should seem, is the cause, and the cause sine qua non, of labor and general wealth. Quantity of money is all. So much for Smithian doctrine. In fact, Bentham went further in circulating annuities, heaping scorn on his alleged mentor for denouncing the mercantilist preoccupation with the state's piling up of gold and silver and with a favorable balance of trade. There is no absurdity, averred Bentham, in the exaltation testified by public men at observing how great a degree of what is called the balance of trade is in favor of this country. Seduced by the pride of discovery, Adam Smith, by taking his words from the kitchen, has attempted to throw an ill-grounded ridicule on the preference given to gold and silver. After once again calling for the elimination of bank paper for the benefit of a government monopoly of paper issue, in the fragmentary Paper Mischief Exposed, 1801, Bentham reached the acme of inflationism in his The True Alarm, 1801. In this unpublished work, Bentham not only continued the full employment motif, but also grumbled about the allegedly dire effects of hoarding, of money saved from consumption that went into hoards instead of investment. In that case, disaster, a fall in prices, profits, and production. 
Nowhere does Bentham recognize that hoarding and a general fall in prices also means a fall in costs, and no necessary reduction in investment or production. Indeed, Bentham worked around to the Mandeville fallacy about the beneficial and uniquely energizing effects of luxurious spending. In the mercantilist and proto-Keynesian manner, saving is evil hoarding, while luxury consumption animates production. How capital can be maintained, much less increased, without saving, is not explained in this bizarre model. James Mill and David Ricardo have been considered loyal Benthamites, and this they were in utilitarian philosophy and in a belief in political democracy. In economics, however, it was a far different story, and Mill and Ricardo, sound as a rock on Say's Law and the Turgot-Smith analysis, were firm in successfully discouraging the publication of The True Alarm. Ricardo scoffed at almost all of later Benthamite economics, and in the case of money and production, asked the proper questions. Why should the mere increase of money have any other effect than to lower its value? How would it cause any increase in the production of commodities? Money cannot call forth goods, but goods can call forth money. Bentham's major theme, that money is the cause of riches, Ricardo rejected firmly and flatly. In his penultimate work of importance on economics, Jeremy Bentham came full circle. He had launched the economic part of his career with a hard-hitting attack on usury laws. He ended it by defending maximum price control on bread. Why? because the mass of the public would favor cheap bread, assuredly so, and so there would then be a rational and determinate standard for the good and moral price of bread, a standard which apparently free contract and free markets cannot set. What would such a standard be? Showing that for Bentham his ad hoc utilitarianism and cost-benefit analysis had totally driven any sound economics out of his purview, he answered that it would have to be empirical and ad hoc. Casting economic logic to the winds, Bentham maintained that the authorities should set a moderate maximum price, which would weigh the costs and benefits, the advantages and disadvantages of each possible price and Bentham assured his readers of his moderation. He did not mean it, his proposal, as a whip or scorpion for the punishment of the growers or vendors of corn. But that would be the inevitable result. Ad hoc empiricism was now rampant in Bentham. Admitting that all previous attempts at maximum price control were disasters, like any later institutionalist or historicist, Bentham denied any relevance, since the circumstances of each particular time and place are necessarily different. In short, Bentham denied economics altogether, that is, denied the possibility of laws abstracting from particular circumstances and applying to all exchanges or actions everywhere. In arguing against the opponents of price control, Bentham often used reasoning that was tortuous and even absurd. 
For example, to the charge that maximum price control would lead to attempted consumption exceeding supply, one of the greatest problems with price control, Bentham insisted that this could not happen in Britain, where the poor law ensured welfare payment to the poor with an increase in the price of bread. The opinion that, at some time or other, the demand curve can be vertical and not falling, is in every century the hallmark of an economic ignoramus. And Bentham now passed that test. For centuries, writers and theorists knew that demand increased as price fell, and Bentham was now writing as if economics had never existed and could never exist. Since consistency was the realm of despised deductive logic, Bentham denied that his opposition to usury laws had any relation to his defense of price control on bread. But while he still maintained that his earlier analysis had been correct, he now offered a crucial revision. He had overlooked that a notable advantage of a usury law is that the government can then borrow more cheaply, at the expense, of course, of squeezing out marginal private borrowers. And he went on to admit that he now found this advantage decisive, so that now he would place usury laws on the governmental agenda. I should expect to find the advantages of it in this respect predominant over its disadvantages in all others. In short, Bentham, the alleged individualist and exponent of laissez-faire, finds that advantage to government outweighs all private disadvantage. Again, treating his earlier views on usury, Bentham denied that he had ever believed in any self-adjusting and equilibrating tendencies of the market, or that interest rates properly adjust saving and investment. He went on in a revealing diatribe against laissez-faire and natural rights to demonstrate to one and all the incompatibility between utilitarianism on the one hand and laissez-faire or property rights on the other. I have not, I never had, nor shall have, any horror, sentimental or anarchical, of the hand of government. I leave it to Adam Smith and the champions of the rights of man to talk of invasions of natural liberty, and to give as a special argument against this or that law an argument the effect of which would be to put a negative upon all laws. The interference of government, as often as in my jumbled view of the matter the smallest balance on the side of advantage is the result, is an event I witness with altogether as much satisfaction as I should its forbearance, and with much more than I should its negligence. One wonders by what mystical standard the scientific Bentham managed to weigh the advantages and disadvantages of every particular law. Three years later, in 1804, Jeremy Bentham lost interest in economics, a fact for which we must be forever grateful. It is only unfortunate that this waning of zeal had not occurred a half-decade before. The case of Jeremy Bentham, however, should be instructive to that host of economists that attempt to weld utilitarian philosophy with free-market economics. 
One would think that the master of utilitarianism would have contributed to utility analysis in economics. But oddly enough, Bentham proved to be interested only in the macro-realms of economic thought. The only exception came in the largely unfortunate True Alarm, 1801, in which Bentham not only declared that all value is founded on utility, but also enters into a cogent critique of Adam Smith's alleged value paradox. Water, Bentham noted, can and does have economic value, while diamonds do have value in use as a foundation of their economic value. Continuing on, Bentham approaches the marginalist refutation of the value paradox. The reason why water is not found to have any value with a view to exchange is that it is equally devoid of value with a view to use. If the whole quantity required is available, the surplus has no kind of value. It would be the same in the case of wine, grain, and everything else. Water, furnished as it is by nature without any human exertion, is more likely to be found in that abundance which renders it superfluous. But there are many circumstances in which it has a value in exchange superior to that of wine. 2. Personal Utilitarianism as we have seen, Jeremy Bentham's strictly economic views, especially when he slid back to mercantilism, had no impact on economic thought, even upon his own philosophic disciples, such as James Mill and Ricardo. But his philosophic views, introduced into economics by these same disciples, left an unfortunate and permanent impact on economic thought. They provided economics with its underlying and dominant social philosophy, and that dominance would be no less powerful for being generally implicit and unexamined. Utilitarianism provided economists with the ability to square the circle, to allow them to make pronouncements and take firm positions on public policy, while still pretending to be hard-headed, scientific, and therefore value-free. As the nineteenth century proceeded and economics began to become a separate profession, a guild with its own code and practices, it became possessed of an overwhelming desire to ape the success and the prestige of the hard physical sciences. But scientists are supposed to be objective, disinterested, unbiased in their scientific work. It was therefore assumed that for economists to espouse moral principles or political philosophy was somehow introducing the virus of bias, prejudice, and an unscientific attitude into the discipline of economics. This attitude of crude imitation of the physical sciences ignored the fact that people and inanimate objects are crucially different. Stones or atoms don't have values or make choices, whereas people inherently evaluate and choose. Still, it would be perfectly possible for economists to confine themselves to analyzing the consequences of such values and choices, provided they took no stand on public policy. But economists burn to take such stands. In fact, interest in policy is generally the main motivation for embarking on a study of economics in the first place.
and advocating policy, saying that the government should or should not do A, B, or C, is ipso facto taking a value position and an implicitly ethical one to boot. There is no way of getting around this fact and the best that can be done is to make such ethics a rational inquiry of what is best for man in accordance with his nature. But the pursuit of value-free science precluded that path, and so economists, by adopting utilitarianism, were able to pretend or to delude themselves that they were being strictly scientific, while smuggling unanalyzed and shaky ethical notions into economics. In that way, economics embraced the worst of both worlds, implicitly smuggling in fallacy and bias in the name of hard-nosed value freedom. The Benthamite infection of economics with the bacillus of utilitarianism has never been cured, and remains as rampant and as predominant as ever. Utilitarianism consists in two fundamental parts, personal utilitarianism and social utilitarianism, the latter being built upon the former. Each is fallacious and pernicious, but social utilitarianism, which we are more interested in here, adds many fallacies and would be unsound even if personal utilitarianism were to be upheld. Personal utilitarianism, as launched by David Hume in the mid-eighteenth century, assumes that each individual is governed only by the desire to satisfy his emotions, his passions, and that these emotions of happiness or unhappiness are primary and unanalyzable givens. The only function of man's reason is use as a means to show someone how to arrive at his goals. There is no function for reason in setting man's goals themselves. Reason, for Hume and for later utilitarians, is only a handmaiden, a slave to the passions. There is no room, then, for natural law to establish any ethic for mankind. But what, then, is to be done about the fact that most people decide about their ends by ethical principles, which cannot be considered reducible to an original personal emotion? Still more embarrassing for utilitarianism is the obvious fact that emotion is often a handmaiden of such principles, and is patently not an ultimate given, but rather determined by what happens to such principles. Thus, someone who fervently adopts a certain ethical or political philosophy will feel happy whenever such philosophy succeeds in the world, and unhappy when it meets a setback. Emotions are, then, a handmaiden to principles, instead of the other way round. In grappling with such anomalies, utilitarianism, priding itself on being anti-mystical and scientific, has to go against the facts and introduce mystification of its own. For it then has to say either that people only think they have adopted governing ethical principles, and or that they should abandon such principles and cleave only to unanalyzed feelings. In short, utilitarianism has either to fly in the face of facts obvious to everyone, a methodology that is surely blatantly unscientific, 
and or to adopt an unanalyzed ethical view of its own in denunciation of all other ethical views. But this is mystical, value-laden, and self-refuting of its own anti-ethical doctrine, or rather, of any ethical doctrine that is not a slave to unanalyzed passions. In either case, utilitarianism is self-refuting in violating its own axiom of not going beyond given emotions and valuations. Furthermore, it is common human experience, once again, that subjective desires are not absolute, given, and unchanging. They are not hermetically sealed off from persuasion, whether rational or otherwise. One's own experience and the arguments of others can and do persuade people to change their values. But how could that be if all individual desires and valuations are pure givens, and therefore not subject to alteration by the intersubjective persuasion of others? But if these desires are not givens, and are changeable by the persuasion of moral argument, it would then follow that, contrary to the assumptions of utilitarianism, suprasubjective ethical principles do exist that can be argued and can have an impact on others and on their valuations and goals. Jeremy Bentham added a further fallacy to the utilitarianism that had grown fashionable in Great Britain since the days of David Hume. More brutally, Bentham sought to reduce all human desires and values from the qualitative to the quantitative. All goals are to be reduced to quantity, and all seemingly different values, for example, pushpin and poetry, are to be reduced to mere differences of quantity and degree. The drive to reduce quality drastically to quantity again appealed to the scientific passion among economists. Quantity is uniformly the object of investigation in the hard physical sciences. So doesn't concern for quality in the study of human action connote mysticism and a sloppy, unscientific attitude? But once again, economists forgot that quantity is precisely the proper concept for dealing with stones or atoms, for these entities do not possess consciousness, do not value, and do not choose. Therefore, their movements can be and should be charted with quantitative precision. But individual human beings, on the contrary, are conscious and do adopt values and act on them. People are not unmotivated objects always describing a quantitative path. People are qualitative, that is, they respond to qualitative differences, and they value and choose on that basis. To reduce quality to quantity, therefore, gravely distorts the actual nature of human beings and of human action and by distorting reality, proves to be the reverse of the truly scientific. Jeremy Bentham's dubious contribution to personal utilitarian doctrine, in addition to being its best-known propagator and popularizer, was to quantify and crudely reduce it still further. Trying to make the doctrine still more scientific, 
Bentham attempted to provide a scientific standard for such emotions as happiness and unhappiness, quantities of pleasure and pain. All vague notions of happiness and desire for Bentham could be reduced to quantities of pleasure and pain, pleasure good, pain bad. Man, therefore, simply attempts to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. In that case, the individual and the scientist observing him can engage in a replicable calculus of pleasure and pain, what Bentham termed the philosophic calculus, that can be churned out to yield the proper result in counseling action or non-action in any given situation. Every man, then, can engage in what neo-Benthamite economists nowadays call a cost-benefit analysis. In whatever situation, he can gauge the benefits, units of pleasure, weigh it against the costs, units of pain, and see which outweighs the other. In a discussion which Professor John Plaminatz aptly says parodies reason, Bentham tries to give objective dimensions to pleasure and pain, so as to establish the scientific soundness of his philosophic calculus. These dimensions, Bentham asserts, are sevenfold, intensity, duration, certainty, propinquity, fecundity, purity, and extent. Bentham claims that, at least conceptually, all these qualities can be measured and then multiplied together to yield the net resultant of pain or pleasure from any action. Simply to state Bentham's theory of seven dimensions should be enough to demonstrate its sheer folly. These emotions or sensations are qualitative and not quantitative and none of these dimensions can be multiplied or weighted together. Again, Bentham raised an unfortunate scientistic analogy with physical objects. A three-dimensional object is one where each object is linear, and therefore where all these linear units can be multiplied together to yield units of volume. In human valuation, even with pleasure and pain, there is no unit common to each of their dimensions, and therefore there is no way to multiply such units. As Professor Plaminatz trenchantly points out, the truth is that even an omniscient God could not make such calculations, for the very notion of them is impossible. The intensity of a pleasure cannot be measured against its duration, nor its duration against its certainty or uncertainty, nor this latter property against its propinquity or remoteness. Plaminatz adds that it is true, as Bentham states, that people often compare courses of action and choose those they find most desirable. But this simply means that they decide between alternatives, and not that they engage in quantitative calculations of units of pleasure and pain. But one thing can be said for Bentham's grotesque doctrine. At least Bentham attempted, no matter how fallaciously, to ground his cost-benefit analysis on an objective standard of benefit and cost, Later utilitarian theorists, along with the body of economics, eventually abandoned the pleasure-pain calculus, 
but in doing so, they also abandoned any attempt to provide a standard to ground ad hoc costs and benefits on some sort of intelligible basis. Since then, the appeal to cost and benefit, even on a personal level, has necessarily been vague, unsupported, and arbitrary. Moreover, John Wilde eloquently contrasts utilitarian personal ethics with the ethics of natural law. Utilitarian ethics makes no clear distinction between raw appetite or interest and that deliberate or voluntary desire which is fused with practical reason. Value or pleasure or satisfaction is the object of any interest, no matter how incidental or distorted it may be. Qualitative distinctions are simply ignored, and the good is conceived in a purely quantitative manner as the maximum of pleasure or satisfaction. Reason has nothing to do with the eliciting of sound appetite. One desire is no more legitimate than another. Reason is the slave of passion. Its whole function is exhausted in working out schemes for the maximizing of such interests as happen to arise through chance or other irrational causes. As against this, the theory of natural law maintains that there is a sharp distinction between raw appetites and deliberate desires elicited with the cooperation of practical reason. The good cannot be adequately conceived in a purely quantitative manner. Random interests which obstruct the full realization of essential common tendencies are condemned as anti-natural. When reason becomes the slave of passion, human freedom is lost and human nature thwarted. The ethics of natural law sharply separates essential needs and rights from incidental rights. The good is not adequately understood as a mere maximizing of qualitatively indifferent purposes, but a maximizing of those tendencies which qualitatively conform to the nature of man, and which arise through rational deliberation and free choice. There is a stable universal standard, resting on something firmer than the shifting sands of appetite, to which an appeal can be made even from the maximal agreements of a corrupt society. This standard is the law of nature which persists as long as man persists, which is, therefore, incorruptible and inalienable, and which justifies the right to revolution against a corrupt and tyrannical social order. Finally, in addition to the problems of the pleasure-pain calculus, personal utilitarianism counsels that actions be judged not on their nature, but on their consequences. But, in the non-Benthamite mere cost-benefit rather than objective pleasure-pain analysis, how is anyone to gauge the consequences of any action? And why is it considered easier, let alone more scientific, to judge consequences than to judge an act itself by its nature? Furthermore, it is often very difficult to figure out what the consequences of any contemplated action will be. How are we to find the secondary, tertiary, etc., consequences, let alone the more immediate ones? 
We suspect that Herbert Spencer, in his critique of utilitarianism, was correct. It is often easier to know what is right than what is expedient. 3. Social Utilitarianism In extending utilitarianism from the personal to the social, Bentham and his followers incorporated all the fallacies of the former, and added many more besides. If each man tries to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, then the social-ethical rule for the Benthamites is to seek always the greatest happiness of the greatest number, in a social philosophic calculus in which each man counts for one, no more and no less. The first question is the powerful one of self-refutation, for if each man is necessarily governed by the rule of maximizing pleasure, then why in the world are these utilitarian philosophers doing something very different, that is, calling for an abstract social principle, the greatest happiness of the greatest number? And why is their abstract moral principle, for that is what it is, legitimate, while all others, such as natural rights, are to be brusquely dismissed as nonsense? What justification is there for the greatest happiness formula? The answer is none whatever. It is simply assumed as axiomatic, above and beyond challenge. In addition to the self-refuting nature of the utilitarians clinging to an overriding and unanalyzed abstract moral principle, the principle itself is shaky at best. For what is so good about the greatest number? Suppose that the vast majority of people in a society hate and revile redheads and greatly desire to murder them. Suppose further that there are only a few redheads extant at any time, so that their loss would entail no discernible drop in general production or in the real incomes of the non-redheads remaining. Must we then say that it is good, after making our social philosophic calculus, for the vast majority to cheerfully slaughter redheads and thereby maximize their pleasure or happiness? And if not, why not? As Felix Adler wryly put it, utilitarians pronounce the greatest happiness of the greatest number to be the social end, although they fail to make it intelligible why the happiness of the greater number should be cogent as an end upon those who happen to belong to the lesser number. Furthermore, the egalitarian presumption of each person counting precisely for one is hardly self-evident. Why not some system of waiting? Again, we have an unexamined and unscientific article of faith at the heart of utilitarianism. Finally, while utilitarianism falsely assumes that the moral or the ethical is a purely subjective given to each individual, it on the contrary assumes that these subjective desires can be added, subtracted, and weighed across the various individuals in a society so as to result in a calculation of maximum social happiness. But how in the world can an objective or calculable social utility or social cost emerge out of purely subjective desires, especially since subjective desires or utilities are strictly ordinal and cannot be compared or added or subtracted among more than one person.
The truth, then, is the opposite of the core assumptions of utilitarianism. Moral principles, which utilitarianism claims to reject as mere subjective emotion, are intersubjective and can be used to persuade various persons, whereas utilities and costs are purely subjective to each individual and therefore cannot be compared or weighed between persons. Perhaps the reason why Bentham quietly shifts from maximum pleasure in personal utilitarianism to happiness in the social realm is that talking about the greatest pleasure of the greatest number would be too openly ludicrous, since the emotion or sensation of pleasure is quite clearly not addable or subtractable between persons. Substituting the vaguer and looser happiness enabled Bentham to fuzz over such problems. Bentham's utilitarianism led him to an increasingly numerous agenda for government intervention in the economy. Some of this agenda we have seen above. Other items include a welfare state, taxation for at least a partial egalitarian redistribution of wealth, government boards, institutes, and universities, public works to cure unemployment as well as to encourage private investment, government insurance, regulation of banks and stockbrokers, guarantee of quantity and quality of goods. 4. Big Brother, the Panopticon Utilitarian economists have often been, in my view properly, accused of trying to substitute efficiency for ethics in advocating or developing public policy. Efficiency, in contrast to ethics, sounds unsentimental, hard-nosed, and scientific. Yet extolling efficiency only pushes the ethical problem under the rug, for in whose interests and at whose expense shall social efficiency be pursued? In the name of a spurious science, efficiency often becomes a mask for exploitation, for plundering one set of people for the benefit of another. Often utilitarian economists have been accused of being willing to advise society on how to build the most efficient concentration camps. Those who have held this charge to be an unfair reductio ad absurdum should contemplate the life and thought of the prince of utilitarian philosophers, Jeremy Bentham. In a profound sense, Bentham was a living reductio ad absurdum of Benthamism, a living object lesson of the results of his own doctrine. It was in 1768, at the age of twenty, when Jeremy Bentham, returning to his alma mater, Oxford, for an alumni vote, chanced upon a copy of Joseph Priestley's Essay on Government, and came across the magical phrase that changed and dominated his life from then on, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. But, as Gertrude Himmelfarb points out in her scintillating and devastating essays on Bentham, of all his numerous schemes and tinkerings in pursuit of this elusive goal, the one closest to Jeremy's heart was his plan for the Panopticon. In visiting his brother Samuel in Russia in the 1780s, Bentham found that his brother had designed such a Panopticon as a workshop, 
and Bentham immediately got the idea of the Panopticon as the ideal physical site for a prison, a school, a factory, indeed, for all of social life. Panopticon in Greek means all-seeing, and the name was highly suitable for the object in view. Another Benthamite synonym for the Panopticon was the Inspection House. The idea was to maximize the supervision of prisoners, schoolchildren, paupers, employees, by the all-seeing inspector, who would be seated at a tower in the center of a circular spider web, able to spy on all the cells in the periphery. By mirrors and other devices, each of the spied upon could never know where the inspector was looking at any given time. Thus the panopticon would accomplish the goal of a 100% inspected and supervised society without the means, since everyone could be under inspection at any time without knowing it. Bentham's apologists have reduced his scheme to merely one of prison reform, but Bentham tried to make it clear that all social institutions were to be encompassed by the panopticon, that it was to serve as a model for houses of industry, workhouses, poorhouses, manufactories, madhouses, lazarettos, hospitals, and schools. An atheist hardly given to scriptural citation, Bentham nevertheless waxed rhapsodic about the social ideal of the panopticon, quoting from the Psalms, Thou art about my path, and about my bed, and spies out all my ways. As Professor Himmelfarb aptly puts it, Bentham did not believe in God, but he did believe in the qualities apotheosized in God. The panopticon was a realization of the divine ideal, spying out the ways of the transgressor by means of an ingenious architectural scheme, turning night into day with artificial light and reflectors, holding men captive by an intricate system of inspection. Bentham's goal was to approach or simulate the ideal perfection of complete and continuous inspection of everyone, because of the inspector's invisible eye, each inmate would conceive himself in a state of total and continuing inspection, thus achieving the apparent omnipresence of the inspector. Consistent with utilitarianism, the social arrangement was decided upon by the social despot, who acts scientifically in the name of the greatest happiness of all. In that name, his rule maximizes efficiency. Thus, in Bentham's original draft, every inmate would be kept in solitary confinement, since this would maximize his being safe and quiet, without chance of unruly crowds or planning of escape. In arguing for his panopticon, Bentham at one point acknowledges the doubts and reservations of people who appear to want maximum inspection of their children or other charges, he recognizes a possible charge that his inspector would be excessively despotic, or even that the incarceration and solitary confinement of all might be productive of an imbecility, so that a formerly free man would no longer, in a deep sense, be fully human. And whether the result of this high-wrought contrivance might not be constructing a set of machines under the similitude of men? 
To this critical question, Jeremy Bentham gave a brusque, brutal, and quintessentially utilitarian reply. Who cares, he said. The only pertinent question was, would happiness be most likely to be increased or diminished by this discipline? To our scientist of happiness, there were no doubts of the answer. Call them soldiers, call them monks, call them machines. So they were but happy ones, I should not care. There speaks the prototypical humanitarian with the guillotine, or, at least, with the slave pen. Bentham was only willing to modify the solitary confinement of each inmate in the panopticon because of the great expense of constructing an entire cell for each person. Economy was an overriding concern in running the panopticon, economy and productivity. Bentham was concerned to maximize the coerced labor of the inmates. After all, industry is a blessing. Why paint it as a curse? Seven and a half hours a day sufficed for sleep, and an hour and a half total for meals. For, after all, he admonished, let it not be forgotten, meal times are times of rest. Feeding is recreation. There is no reason why inmates should not be forced to work fourteen or even fifteen hours a day, six days a week. Indeed, Bentham wrote to a friend that he had been afraid of revealing many of his proposed savings for fear of being beat down. He had in mind working the inmates no less than sixteen and a half profitable hours a day, dressing them without stockings, shirts, or hats, and feeding them exclusively on potatoes, which at that time were regarded even by the poorest citizens as fit only for animal fodder. Bedding was to be as cheap as possible, with sacks used instead of sheets and hammocks instead of beds. Bentham's overriding concern with economy and productivity is made understandable by a crucial element in his panopticon plan, an element often neglected by later historians. For the great inspector was to be none other than Bentham himself. Prisons of the realm, and presumably eventually schools and factories, were to be contracted out to Bentham, who would be contractor, inspector, and profit-maker from the scheme. It is no wonder, then, that Bentham had such supreme confidence in the ability of the inspector to maximize his own happiness, along with the happiness of the greatest number of panopticon inmates, at the same time. Bentham's long-term gain, if not the greatest happiness of the prisoners, was also to be ensured by long-run provisions that would keep released prisoners in the almost permanent thrall of the inspector. In Bentham's final plan for his panopticon, no prisoner would be released unless he enlisted in the army, enlisted in the navy, or had a bond of fifty pounds posted for him by a responsible householder. It must be realized that fifty pounds was a handsome sum at a time when the average unskilled laborer received a wage of about ten shillings a week, or about two years' salary. The bond was to be renewed annually, and any failure to renew would subject the prisoner to be shipped back to the panopticon, though it should be for life. Why would any responsible householder be interested in posting a fifty-pound bond for an ex-prisoner? 
To Bentham, the answer was clear. Only if the prisoner was willing to contract his labor to that householder with the understanding that the householder would have the same power over the laborer as that of a father over his child, or of a master over his apprentice. Since this mammoth bond had to be renewed every year, the ex-prisoner was envisioned by Bentham as a perpetual slave to the householder. If there was no bond, the prisoner would have to be shipped to a subsidiary establishment, also run on panopticon principles. And who better to run such establishments than the main prison contractor, that is, Bentham himself? Indeed, all the conditions of the panopticon were designed to induce the prisoners or other inmates to be enslaved to the contractor, Bentham, virtually for life. In view of Bentham's overriding concern with the panopticon and of his explicit identification of himself as the contractor, we must remark on what Himmelfarb points to as the strange, almost willing inattentiveness of biographers and historians to the most striking feature of the plan and the decisive cause of its rejection. To them, Bentham was a philanthropist who sacrificed years of his life and most of his fortune to the exemplary cause of penal reform, and who was, inexplicably, as one biographer put it, not to be allowed to benefit his country. Most books on Bentham, and even some of the most respectable histories of penal reform, do not so much as mention the contract system in connection with the Panopticon, let alone identify Bentham as the proposed contractor. Finally, Bentham's Panopticon was supposed to be intimately connected with a woodworking machine that his brother Samuel had invented in Russia about the same time as the Panopticon workshop. What better use for thousands, if not many thousands, of inmates than to be busily and cheaply at work making an enormous amount of wood? Samuel's woodworking machine proved to be too costly to be built and powered by a steam engine. So, why not, in Bentham's own terms, human labor to be extracted from a class of person on whose part neither dexterity nor good will were to be reckoned upon? now substituted to the steam engine. That Bentham scarcely aimed to confine the panopticon to the class of prisoners is shown particularly by his panopticon poorhouse scheme. Written originally in 1797 and reissued in 1812, Bentham's pauper management improved, envisioned a joint stock company, like the East India Company, contracted by the government to operate 250 industry houses, each to house 2,000 paupers subject to the absolute authority of a contractor-inspector-governor in a building and suffering under a regimen very similar to the Panopticon prison. Who would constitute the class of paupers living under the slave labor regime of the Panopticon poorhouse? To Bentham, the company, of which he, of course, would be the head, would be assigned coercive powers to seize anyone having neither visible livelihood or assignable property, nor honest and sufficient means of livelihood. 
On that rather elastic definition, the average citizen would be legally encouraged to aid and abet the coercive powers of the poorhouse company by seizing anyone he considered of insufficient livelihood and trundling him off to the Panopticon poorhouse. Bentham's envisioned scale of the network of Panopticon poorhouses was nothing if not grandiose. The houses were to confine not only 500,000 poor, but also their children, who were to continue bound to the company even if their parents were discharged as apprentices until their early twenties, even if married. These apprentices would be confined in an additional 250 Panopticon houses, bringing the total number of inmates in the industry houses up to no less than one million. If we consider that the total population of England at the time was only nine million, this means that Bentham envisioned the confining in slave labor, regimented and exploited by himself, of at least eleven percent of the nation's population. Indeed, sometimes Bentham envisioned his panopticons as incarcerating up to three-fifths of the British population. Jeremy Bentham conceived of his Panopticon in 1786 at the age of 38. Five years later, he published the scheme and fought hard for it for two more decades, also urging France and India in vain to adopt the scheme. Parliament finally rejected the plan in 1811. For the rest of his long life, Bentham mourned the defeat. Near the end of his life, at the age of eighty-three, Bentham wrote a history of the affair, paranoically convinced that King George III had sabotaged the plan out of a personal vendetta arising from Bentham's opposition during the 1780s to the king's projected war against Russia. The book's title is History of the War Between Jeremy Bentham and George III, 1831, by one of the belligerents. Bentham lamented, Imagine how he hated me, but for him all the paupers in the country, as well as all the prisoners in the country, would have been in my hands. A tragedy indeed. Jeremy Bentham started out in life as a Tory, a typical eighteenth-century believer in enlightened despotism. He looked to the enlightened despots, whether Catherine the Great of Russia or George III, to put his reforms and crank schemes for the greatest happiness of the greatest number into effect. But the failure to push through the Panopticon soured him on absolute monarchy. As he wrote, I never suspected that the people in power were against reform. I suppose they only wanted to know what was good in order to embrace it. Disillusioned, Bentham allowed himself to be converted, partially by his great disciple James Mill, to radical democracy, and to the panoply of what came to be known as philosophic radicalism. As Himmelfarb summed up the new radicalism, its innovation was to make the greatest happiness of the greatest number dependent upon the greatest power of the greatest number the greatest power to be lodged in an omnicompetent legislature. And if, as Himmelfarb puts it, the greatest happiness of the greatest number might require the greatest misery of the few, then so be it.
It seems scarcely an exaggeration when Douglas Long compares Bentham's social outlook with that of the modern scientific totalitarian B.F. Skinner. Bentham wrote toward the end of his life that the words liberty and liberal were among the most mischievous in the English language, because they obscured the genuine issues, which are happiness and security. For Bentham, the state is the necessary cradle of the law, and every individual citizen's duty is to obey that law. What the public needs and wants is not liberty, but security, for which the power of the sovereign state must be unbounded and infinite. And who is to guard the citizen from his sovereign? For Bentham, as Long puts it, by its very nature, the idea of liberty more than any other concept posed a continual threat to the completeness and stability Bentham sought in his Science of Human Nature. The indeterminate, open-ended quality of the libertarian view of man was alien to Bentham. He sought, rather, the perfection of a neo-Newtonian social physics. It is certainly apt, if grandiloquent, that Bentham saw himself as the Newton of the moral world. The philosophic radicals, despite their proclaimed devotion to laissez-faire, adopted not only Bentham's later democratic creed, but also his devotion to the Panopticon. John Stuart Mill, even when most anti-Benthamite in the course of his eternally wavering career, never criticized the Panopticon. More starkly, Bentham's brilliant Lenin, James Mill, despite his eagerness to bury Bentham's statist economic views, admired the Panopticon with the extravagance of the master himself. In an article on Prisons and Prison Discipline written for the Encyclopedia Britannica in 1822 or 1823, Mill praised the Panopticon to the skies as perfectly expounded and proved on the great principle of utility. Every aspect of the Panopticon received Mill's plaudits, the architecture, the hammocks instead of beds, the all-seeing inspection, the labor system, the contract system, the perpetual slavery of the released prisoners. Mill's lavish praise was private as well as public, for in a letter to the editor of the encyclopedia, Mill insisted that the Panopticon appears to me to approach perfection. Chapter 3. James Mill, Ricardo, and the Ricardian System 1. James Mill, the Radicals Lenin James Mill, 1771-1836, was surely one of the most fascinating figures in the history of economic thought, and yet he is among the most neglected, Mill was perhaps one of the first persons in modern times who might be considered a true cadre man, someone who, in the Leninist movement of the next century, would have been hailed as a real Bolshevik. Indeed, he was the Lenin of the radicals, creating and forging philosophical radical theory and the entire philosophical radical movement. A brilliant and creative, but an insistently number two man, Mill began as a Lenin seeking his marks. In fact, he simultaneously found two Marxes, Jeremy Bentham and David Ricardo. He met both at about the same time, at the age of thirty-five. 
Bentham in 1808, and Ricardo around the same date. Bentham became Mill's philosophic Marx, from whom Mill acquired his utilitarian philosophy and passed it on to Ricardo and to economics generally. But it has been largely overlooked that Mill functioned creatively in his relationship with Bentham, persuading the older man, formerly a Tory, that Benthamite utilitarianism implied a political system of radical democracy. David Ricardo, 1772-1823, was an unsophisticated, young, but retired wealthy stockbroker, actually bond dealer, with a keen interest in monetary matters. But Mill perceived and developed Ricardo as his marks in economics. Until he acquired his post at the East India Company in 1818 at the age of 45, Mill, an impoverished Scottish émigré and freelance writer in London, lived partially off Bentham, and managed to keep on good enough formal terms with his patron, despite their severe personality conflicts. An inveterate organizer of others as well as himself, Mill tried desperately to channel Bentham's prolific but random scribblings into a coherent pattern. Bentham, meanwhile, wrote privately to friends complaining of the impertinent interference of this young whippersnapper. Mill's publication of his massive History of India in 1818 won him immediate employment to an important post at the East India Company, where he rose to the head of the office in 1830 and continued there until his death. As for David Ricardo, self-taught and diffident, he scarcely acted as a great man. To the contrary, his admiration for Mill, his intellectual mentor and partly his mentor in economic theory, allowed him to be molded and dominated by Mill. And so Mill happily hectored, cajoled, prodded, and bullied his good friend into becoming the Marx, the great economist, that Mill felt, for whatever reason, he himself could or should not be. He pestered Ricardo into writing and finishing his masterpiece, The Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, 1817, and then into entering Parliament to take an active political role as leader of the Radicals. Mill was then delighted to become the leading and highly devoted Ricardian in economics. As a Lenin, then, James Mill had a far more active intellectual role than the real Lenin would ever enjoy. Not only did he integrate the work of two Marxes, he contributed substantially to the system itself, Indeed, in endless conversations, Mill instructed Ricardo on all manner of topics, and Mill looked over, edited, and undoubtedly added to many drafts of Ricardo's principles. We have already seen, for example, that it was Mill who first absorbed and adopted Say's law and passed it on to his pupil Ricardo. Recent researches indicate that James Mill may have played a far more leading role in developing Ricardo's magnum opus than has been believed, for example, in arriving at and adopting the law of comparative advantage. Mill's stance is surely unique in the history of social thought. 
Very often, theorists and writers are anxious to proclaim their alleged originality to the skies, Adam Smith being an aggravated, though not untypical, case. But what other instance is there of a man far more original or creative than he liked to claim? How many others have insisted on appearing to be a mere number two man, when in many ways they were number one? It is possible, it should be noted, that the explanation for this curious fact is simple and materio-economic, rather than depth-psychological. Mill, son of a Scottish shoemaker, was an impoverished Scot, without steady employment, trying to make his way and raise a family in London. Bentham was a wealthy aristocrat who functioned as Mill's patron. Ricardo was a wealthy retired stockbroker. It is certainly possible that Mill's posture as devoted disciple was a function of a poor man keeping his wealthy mentor disciples happy, as well as maximizing the public's reception for their common doctrines. As a preeminent cadre man, Mill possessed all the strengths and weaknesses of that modern type. Humorless, eternally the didact, but charismatic and filled with prodigious energy and determination, Mill found enough time to carry on an important full-time job at the East India House, while yet functioning as a committed scholar-activist on many levels. As a scholar and writer, Mill was thorough and lucid, committed strongly to a few broad and overriding axioms—utilitarianism, democracy, laissez-faire. On a scholarly level, he wrote important tomes on the history of British India, on economics, on political science, and on empiricist psychology. He also wrote numerous scholarly reviews and articles— but strongly committed, as Marx would be, to changing the world as well as understanding it, Mill also wrote countless newspaper articles and strategic and tactical essays, as well as tirelessly organizing the philosophic radicals and maneuvering in Parliament and in political life. With all that, he had the energy to preach and instruct everyone around him, including his famous and failed attempt to brainwash his young son, John. But it must be noted that Mill's fierce and fervent education of John was not simply the crotchet of a Victorian father and intellectual. The education of John Stuart was designed to prepare him for the presumptively vital and world-historical role of James' successor as leader of the radical cadre, as the new Lenin. There was a method in the madness. James Mill's evangelical Calvinist spirit was tailor-made for his lifelong cadre role. Mill was trained in Scotland to be a Presbyterian preacher— during his days as a literary man in London, he lost his Christian faith and became an atheist. But, as in the case of so many later evangelically trained atheist and agnostic intellectuals, he retained the grim, puritanical, and crusading habit of mind of the prototypical Calvinist firebrand. As Professor Thomas perceptively writes, this is why Mill, a skeptic in later life, always got on well with Protestant dissenters from the Anglican Church. 
He may have come to reject belief in God, but some form of evangelical zeal remained essential to him. Skepticism in the sense of non-commitment, indecision between one belief and another, horrified him. Perhaps this accounts for his long-standing dislike of Hume. Before he lost his faith, he condemned Hume for his infidelity, but even when he had come to share that infidelity, he continued to undervalue him. A placid skepticism which seemed to uphold the status quo was not an attitude of mind Mill understood. Or, perhaps, Mill understood Hume all too well, and therefore reviled him. Mill's Calvinism was evident in his conviction that reason must keep stern control over the passions, a conviction which hardly fitted well with Benthamite hedonism. Cadre men are notorious Puritans, and Mill puritanically disliked and distrusted drama or art. The actor, he charged, was the slave of the most irregular appetites and passions of his species, and Mill was hardly the one to delight in sensuous beauty for its own sake. Painting and sculpture Mill scorned as the lowest of the arts, only there to gratify a frivolous love of ostentation. Since Mill, in a typically Benthamite utilitarian manner, believed that human action is only rational if done in a prudent, calculating manner, he demonstrated in his History of British India a complete inability to understand anyone motivated by mystical religious asceticism or by a drive for military glory or self-sacrifice. If Emil Cowder is right, and Scottish Calvinism accounts for Smith's introduction of the labor theory of value into economics, then Scottish Calvinism even more accounts for James Mill's forceful and determined crusade for the labor theory of value, and perhaps for its playing a central role in the Ricardian system. It also might explain the devoted adherence to the labor theory by Mill's fellow Scot and student of Dugald Stewart, John R. McCullough. A prime and particularly successful example of Mill the cadre man at work was his role in driving through Parliament the Great Reform Bill of 1832. The centerpiece of Mill's political theory was his devotion to democracy and universal suffrage but he was sensibly willing to settle temporarily for the Reform Bill, which decisively expanded British suffrage from an aristocratic and gerrymandered to a large middle-class base. Mill was the behind-the-scenes Lenin and master manipulator of the drive for the Reform Bill. His strategy was to play on the fear of the timorous and centrist Whig government that the masses would erupt in violent revolution if the bill were not passed. Mill and his radicals knew full well that no such revolution was in the offing. But Mill, through friends and allies placed strategically in the press, was able to orchestrate a deliberate campaign of press deception that fooled and panicked the Whigs into passing the bill. The campaign of lies was engaged in by important sectors of the press, by the Examiner, a leading weekly owned and edited by the Benthamite radical Albany Fun Blank, 
by the widely read Morning Chronicle, a Whig daily edited by Mill's old friend John Black, who made the paper a vehicle for the utilitarian radicals, and by The Spectator, edited by the Benthamite S. Rintoul. The Times was also friendly to the radicals at this point, and the leading Birmingham radical, Joseph Parks, was owner and editor of the Birmingham Journal. Not only that, Parks was able to have his mendacious stories on the allegedly revolutionary public opinion of Birmingham printed as factual reports in the Morning Chronicle and the Times. So well did Mill accomplish his task that most later historians have been taken in as well. Ever the unifier of theory and praxis, James Mill paved the way for this organized campaign of deception by writing in justification of lying for a worthy end. While truth was important, Mill conceded, there are special circumstances in which another man is not entitled to the truth. Men, he wrote, should not be told the truth when they make bad use of it ever the utilitarian. Of course, as usual, it was the utilitarian who was to decide whether the other man's use was going to be good or bad. Mill then escalated his defense of lying in politics. In politics, he claimed, disseminating wrong information, or as we would now say, disinformation, is not a breach of morality, but on the contrary a meritorious act when it is conducive to the prevention of misrule. In no instance is any man less entitled to right information than when he would employ it for the perpetuation of misrule. A decade and a half later, John Arthur Roebuck, one of Mill's top aides in the campaign, and later a radical member of Parliament and historian of the drive for reform, admitted that, to attain our end, much was said that no one really believed, much was done that no one would like to own. Often, when there was no danger, the cry of alarm was raised to keep the House of Lords and the aristocracy generally in what was termed a state of wholesome terror. In contrast to the noisy orators who appeared important in the campaign, Roebuck recalled, were the cool-headed, retiring, sagacious, determined men who pulled the strings in this strange puppet show. One or two ruling minds to the public unknown manipulated and stage-managed the entire movement. They used the others as their instruments, and the most cool-headed, sagacious, and determined was the master puppeteer of them all, James Mill. Although he worked as a high official for the East India Company and could not run for Parliament himself, James Mill was the unquestioned cadre leader of the group of ten to twenty philosophic radicals who enjoyed a brief day in the sun in Parliament during the 1830s. Mill continued to be their leader until he died in 1836, and then the others attempted to continue in his spirit. While the philosophic radicals proclaimed themselves Benthamites, the aging Bentham had little to do personally with this million group. 
most of the parliamentary philosophic radicals had been converted personally by Mill, beginning with Ricardo over a decade earlier, and also including his son, John Stuart, who for a while succeeded his father as radical leader. Mill, along with Ricardo, also converted the official leader of the radicals in Parliament, the banker and later classical historian George Grote, 1794-1871. Grote, a self-educated and humorless man, soon became an abject tool of James Mill, whom he greatly admired as a very profound thinking man. As Mill's most faithful disciple, Grote, in the words of Professor Joseph Hamburger, was so inoculated, as it were, that for him all of Mill's dicta assumed the force and sanction of duties. The Millian Circle also had a fiery cadre lady, Mrs. Harriet Lewin Grote, 1792-1873, an imperious and assertive militant whose home became the salon and social center for the parliamentary radicals. She was widely known as the Queen of the Radicals, of whom Cobden wrote that, had she been a man, she would have been the leader of a party. Harriet testified to Mill's eloquence and charismatic effect on his young disciples, most of whom were brought into the Millian Circle by his son, John Stuart. A typical testimony was that of William Ellis, a young friend of John, who wrote in later years of his experience of James Mill, He worked a complete change in me. He taught me how to think and what to live for. 2. Mill and Libertarian Class Analysis The theory of class conflict as a key to political history did not begin with Karl Marx. It began, as we shall see further below, with two leading French libertarians inspired by J.B. Say, Charles Comte, Say's son-in-law, and Charles de Noyer, in the 1810s, after the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. In contrast to the later Marxist degeneration of class theory, the Comte du Noyer view held the inherent class struggle to focus on which classes managed to gain control of the state apparatus. The ruling class is whichever group has managed to seize state power. The ruled are those groups who are taxed and regulated by those in command. Class interest, then, is defined as a group's relation to the state. State rule, with its taxation and exercise of power, controls, and conferring of subsidies and privileges, is the instrument that creates conflicts between the rulers and the ruled. What we have, then, is a two-class theory of class conflict, based on whether a group rules or is ruled by the state. On the free market, on the other hand, there is no class conflict, but a harmony of interest between all individuals in society cooperating in and through production and exchange. James Mill developed a similar theory in the 1820s and 1830s. It is not known whether he arrived at it independently or was influenced by the French libertarians. 
It is clear, however, that Mill's analysis was devoid of the rich applications to the history of Western Europe that Comte, Dunoyer, and their young associate, the historian Augustin Thierry, had worked out. All government, Mill pointed out, was run by the ruling class, the few who dominated and exploited the ruled, the many. Since all groups tend to act for their selfish interests, he noted, it is absurd to expect the ruling clique to act altruistically for the public good. Like everyone else, they will use their opportunities for their own gain, which means to loot the many, and to favor their own or allied special interests as against those of the public. Hence Mill's habitual use of the term sinister interests as against the good of the public. For Mill and the radicals, we should note, the public good meant specifically laissez-faire government, confined to the minimal functions of police, defense, and the administration of justice. Hence Mill, the preeminent political theorist of the radicals, harked back to the libertarian commonwealth men of the 18th century in stressing the need always to treat government with suspicion and to provide checks to suppress state power. Mill agreed with Bentham that, if not deterred, a ruling elite would be predatory. The pursuit of sinister interests leads to endemic corruption in politics, to sinecures, bureaucratic places, and subsidies. Mill lamented, Think of the end of government as it really is, in its own nature. Think next of the facility of the means, justice, police, and security from foreign invaders and then think of the oppression practiced upon the people of England under the pretext of providing them. Never has libertarian ruling class theory been put more clearly or forcefully than in the words of Mill. There are two classes, Mill declared. The first class, those who plunder, are the small number. They are the ruling few. The second class, those who are plundered, are the great number. They are the subject many. Or, as Professor Hamburger summed up Mill's position, politics was a struggle between two classes, the avaricious rulers and their intended victims. The great conundrum of government, concluded Mill, was how to eliminate this plunder, to take away the power by which the class that plunder succeed in carrying on their vocation has ever been the great problem of government. The subject many, Mill accurately termed the people, and it was probably Mill who inaugurated the type of analysis that pits the people as a ruled class in opposition to the special interests. How, then, is the power of the ruling class to be curbed? Mill thought he saw the answer. The people must appoint watchmen. Who are to watch the watchmen? The people themselves. There is no other resource, and without this ultimate safeguard, the ruling few will be forever the scourge and oppression of the subject many. But how are the people themselves to be the watchmen? To this ancient problem Mill provided what is by now a standard answer in the Western world, but still not very satisfactory, by all the people electing representatives to do the watching.
Unlike the French libertarian analysts, James Mill was not interested in the history and development of state power. He was interested only in the here and now, and in the here and now of the England of his day, the ruling few were the aristocracy, who ruled by means of a highly limited suffrage and controlled rotten boroughs picking representatives to Parliament. The English aristocracy was the ruling class. The government of England, Mill charged, was an aristocratical engine, wielded by the aristocracy for their own benefit. Mill's son and ardent disciple at that time, John Stuart, argued in a million manner in debating societies in London that England did not enjoy a mixed government, since a great majority of the House of Lords was chosen by two hundred families. These few aristocratic families therefore possess absolute control over the government, and if a government controlled by two hundred families is not an aristocracy, then such a thing as an aristocracy cannot be said to exist. And since such government is controlled and run by a few, it is therefore conducted wholly for the benefit of a few. It is this analysis that led James Mill to place at the center of his formidable political activity the attainment of radical democracy, the universal suffrage of the people in frequent elections by secret ballot. This was Mill's long-run goal, although he was willing to settle temporarily in what the Marxists would later call a transition demand for the Reform Bill of 1832, which greatly widened the suffrage to the middle class. To Mill, the extension of democracy was more important than laissez-faire, for to Mill, the process of dethroning the aristocratic class was more fundamental since laissez-faire was one of the happy consequences expected to flow from the replacement of aristocracy by the rule of all the people. In the modern American context, Mill's position would aptly be called right-wing populism. Placing democracy as their central demand led the million radicals in the 1840s to stumble and lose political significance by refusing to ally themselves with the Anti-Corn Law League, despite their agreement with its free trade and laissez-faire. For the millions felt that free trade was too much of a middle-class movement and detracted from an overriding concentration on democratic reform. Granted that the people would displace aristocratic rule, did Mill have any reason for thinking that the people would then exert their will on behalf of laissez-faire? Yes, and here his reasoning was ingenious. While the ruling class had the fruits of their exploitative rule in common, the people were a different kind of class. Their only interest in common was getting rid of the rule of special privilege. Apart from that, the mass of the people have no common class interests that they could ever actively pursue by means of the state. Furthermore, this interest in eliminating special privilege is the common interest of all, and is therefore the public interest, as opposed to the special or sinister interests of the few. The interest of the people coincides with universal interest and with laissez-faire and liberty for all. 
But how then explain that no one can claim that the masses have always championed laissez-faire, and that the masses have all too often loyally supported the exploitative rule of the few? Clearly, because the people, in this complex field of government and public policy, have suffered from what the Marxists would later call false consciousness, an ignorance of where their interests truly lie. It was then up to the intellectual vanguard, to Mill and his philosophic radicals, to educate and organize the masses, so that their consciousness would become correct, and they would then exert their irresistible strength to bring about their own democratic rule and install laissez-faire. Even if we can accept this general argument, the million radicals were unfortunately highly over-optimistic about the time span for such consciousness-raising, and political setbacks in the early 1840s led to their disillusionment in radical politics and to the rapid disintegration of the radical movement. Curiously enough, their leaders, such as John Stuart Mill and George and Harriet Grote, while proclaiming their weary abandonment of political action or political enthusiasm, in reality gravitated with astonishing rapidity toward the cozy Whig center that they had formerly scorned. Their proclaimed loss of interest in politics was, in reality, a mask for loss of interest in radical politics. 3. Mill and the Ricardian System Much has been recently revealed about James Mill's formative and shaping role over his friend Ricardo's system. How much of Ricardianism is really Mill's creation? apparently a great deal. One thing is certain, it was Mill who took from J.B. Say the great Say's Law and converted Ricardo to that stand. Mill had developed Say's Law in his important early book, Commerce Defended, 1808, written shortly before he met Ricardo. Ricardo faithfully followed Say's law, and while in Parliament consistently opposed expenditure on public works during the depressed year of 1819. And we have seen that Mill and Ricardo together managed to kill the publication of Bentham's pre-Keynesian True Alarm in 1811. In expounding Say's law, Mill was carrying on and developing the important Turgot-Smith insights on saving and investment. But most of the rest of Mill's economic legacy was a disaster. Much of it was the heart and soul of the Ricardian system. Thus, in a forgotten early work, The Impolicy of a Bounty on the Exportation of Grain, 1804, Mill sets forth the essence of Ricardianism, from the actual content to the characteristic disastrous methodology of brutal and unrealistic oversimplification, and to a holistic concentration of unsound macro-aggregates unrelated to the actions of the individual, whether consumer or businessman, in the real world. Mill churns out chunks of alleged interrelations between these macro-aggregates, all seeming to be about the real world, but actually relevant only to deeply fallacious assumptions about the never-never land of long-run equilibrium. 
The methodology is essentially verbal mathematics, since the statements are only the implicit churning out of what are really mathematical relations, but are never admitted as such. The use of the vernacular language adds a patina of pretend realism that mathematics can never convey. An open use of mathematics might at least have revealed the fallacious assumptions of the model. Ricardo's exclusive concern with long-run equilibria may be seen from his own declaration of method. I put those immediate and temporary effects quite aside, and fixed my whole attention on the permanent state of things which will result from them. Unrealistic oversimplification compounded upon itself is the Ricardian vice. Both the Ricardian and the Say-Austrian methodology have been termed deductive, but they are really poles apart. The Austrian methodology, praxeology, sticks close in its axioms to universally realistic common insights into the essence of human action, and deduces truths only from such evidently true propositions or axioms. The Ricardian methodology introduces numerous false assumptions, compounded and multiplied into the initial axioms, so that deductions made from these assumptions, whether verbal in the case of Ricardo, or mathematical in the case of the modern Valrassians, or a blend of both as in the Keynesians, are all necessarily false, useless, and misleading. Thus, in his essay on a bounty on grain, James Mill introduces the typically Ricardian error of melding all agricultural commodities into one, corn, that is, wheat, and claiming corn to be the basic commodity. With corn now adopted as a surrogate for all food, Mill makes the sweeping statement that the most scientific principle of political economy is that the money price of corn regulates the money price of everything else. Why? Here Mill introduces a typically and brutally drastic variant of Malthusianism. Not just that there is a long-run tendency for population to press on the means of subsistence so that wage rates are pushed down to the cost of subsistence, but more in a typically Ricardian confusion of the non-existent long-run equilibrium with constant everyday reality that wage rates are always set by the price of corn a surrogate for food or subsistence in general. Mill lays down the proposition that wage rates are always set directly by the price of corn as so obviously necessary that we need spend no more time proving it. That takes care of that. He concludes, therefore, that the wage rate is entirely regulated by the money price of corn. Mill's extreme version of Malthusianism can be seen in his statement that no one will hesitate to allow that the tendency of the species to multiply is much greater than the rapidity with which there is any chance that the fruits of the earth will be multiplied. Mill even goes so far in wild extremes as to say that, raise corn as fast as you please, mouths are producing still faster to eat it.
population is invariably pressing close upon the heels of subsistence, and in whatever quantity food be produced, a demand will always be produced greater than the supply. Another unfortunate notion contributed to Ricardo by Mill in his 1804 essay is an overriding focus on the behavior of a few aggregate macro-shares. Labor was assumed to be of uniform quality. Therefore, all wages were pushed down to subsistence level by the price of corn. There are only three macro-distributive shares, wages, profits, and rents in the Ricardian scheme. There is no discussion whatever of individual prices or wage rates, the proper concern of economic analysis, and no hint of the existence of or the need for the entrepreneur. Say's brilliant analysis of the entrepreneur's central role is completely forgotten. There is no role for a risk-bearing entrepreneur if all is frozen into a few aggregative chunks in long-run equilibrium, where change is slow or non-existent and knowledge is perfect rather than uncertain. Profits, therefore, are the net returns aggregatively received by capitalists, which could well be called interest or long-run profits. If wages, profits, and rents exhaust the product, then, tautologically and virtually by definition, if one of the three increases and the total is frozen, one or both of the other shares must fall. Hence the implicit Ricardian assumption of inherent class conflict between the receivers of the three blocks of distributive shares. In the Mill-Ricardian system, wages are fixed by the price of corn, or the cost of food. The cost of food, for its part, is always increasing because of the fixed supply of land and the alleged Malthusian necessity to move to ever less productive land as the population increases and presses on the food supply. Thus, rents are always slowly but inexorably increasing, and money wage rates are always rising in order to maintain the real wage at subsistence level. Therefore, hey presto, aggregate profits must always be falling. Schumpeter's blistering critique of the Ricardian system is highly perceptive and perfectly apt. He, Ricardo, cut that general system of economic interdependence in the market to pieces, bundled up as large parts of it as possible in cold storage, so that as many things as possible should be frozen and given. He then piled one simplifying assumption upon another, until, having really settled everything by these assumptions, he was left with only a few aggregative variables between which, given these assumptions, he set up simple one-way relations, so that, in the end, the desired results emerged almost as tautologies. For example, a famous Ricardian theory is that profits depend upon the price of wheat, and upon his implicit assumptions, and in the particular sense in which the terms of the proposition are to be understood, that is not only true, but undeniably, in fact, trivially so. 
profits could not possibly depend upon anything else, since everything else is given, that is, frozen. It is an excellent theory that can never be refuted, and lacks nothing save sense. 4. Ricardo and the Ricardian System 1. Macro Income Distribution while much of the Ricardian system turns out to be the creation of James Mill, perhaps most of it was due to Ricardo himself, who, of course, must, in any case, bear major responsibility for his own work. To continue the Marxian metaphor, in many ways the Mill-Ricardo relationship might be more of a Marx-Engels than a Lenin-Marx connection. Ricardo was born in London into a prosperous family of Spanish-Portuguese Jews who had settled in Holland after having been expelled from Spain at the end of the 15th century. Ricardo's father had moved to London, where he prospered as a stockbroker and had 17 children, of whom David was the third. At the age of eleven, David was sent by his father to Amsterdam to attend Orthodox Hebrew school for two years. At the age of fourteen, with only an elementary education, Ricardo began his business career, employed by his father's stockbroker house. It must be emphasized that with the exception of the quasi-governmental Bank of England, there were no corporations or corporate stocks in that era. Government bonds were then called stocks, and so stockbrokers were what would now be called government bond dealers. Seven years later, however, David married a Quaker girl and left the Jewish faith, whereupon he was disowned by his parents. Eventually he became a confirmed Quaker. A London bank, already impressed with young Ricardo, lent him enough money to set himself up in his own business as a stockbroker. Within a few years, Ricardo made an enormous amount of money in the bond business, until he was ready to retire to the country in his early forties. In 1799, at the age of 27, Ricardo, bored while whiling away time at a health resort, chanced upon a copy of The Wealth of Nations, and devoured it, becoming, like so many others of that era, a dedicated Smithian. As Schumpeter points out, Ricardo's principles can only be understood as a dialogue with and reaction to The Wealth of Nations. Ricardo's logical bent was offended at the basic confusion of mind, the chaos that J. B. Say also saw in the Smithian canon, and he, like Say before him, set out to clarify the Smithian system. Unfortunately, and in deep contrast to Say, Ricardo simplified by taking all the most egregious errors in Smith— throwing out all qualifications and contradictions, then building his system upon what was left. The worst of Smith was magnified and intensified. In his basic method, all of Smith's historical and empirical points were tossed out. This was not bad in itself, but it left a deductive system built on deep fallacy and incorrect macro-models. In addition, while Ricardo's theoretical system might have been brutally oversimplified in relation to Smith, his writing style was inordinately crabbed and obtuse. 
The methodology of verbal mathematics is almost bound to be difficult and obscurantist, with blocks of words spelling out equilibrium mathematical relations in a highly cumbersome manner. But on top of that, Ricardo, in contrast to his mentor, Mill, was undoubtedly one of the worst and most turgid literary stylists in the history of economic thought. In contrast to Adam Smith, for whom the output or wealth of nations was of supreme importance, Ricardo neglected total output to place overriding emphasis on the alleged distribution of a given product into macro-classes, specifically into the three macro-classes of landlords, laborers, and capitalists. Thus, in a letter to Malthus, who, on this question at least, was an orthodox Smithian, Ricardo made the distinction clear. Political economy, you think, is an inquiry into the nature and causes of wealth. I think it should rather be called an inquiry into the laws which determine the division of the produce of industry amongst the classes who concur in its formation. Since entrepreneurship could not exist in Ricardo's world of long-run equilibrium, he was left with the classical triad of factors. His analysis was strictly holistic, in terms of allegedly homogeneous but actually varied and diverse classes. Ricardo avoided any say-type emphasis on the individual, whether he be the consumer, worker, producer, or businessman. In Ricardo's world of verbal mathematics, there were, as Schumpeter has astutely pointed out, four variables— total output or income, and shares of income to landlords, capitalists, and workers, that is, rent, profits, long-run interest, and wages. Ricardo was stuck with a hopeless problem. He had four variables, but only one equation with which to solve them. Total output or income equals rent plus profits plus wages. To solve, or rather pretend to solve, this equation, Ricardo had to determine one or more of these entities from outside his equation, and in such a way as to leave others as residuals. He began by neglecting total output, that is, by assuming it to be a given, thereby determining output by freezing it on his own arbitrary assumptions. This procedure enabled him to get rid of one variable, to his own satisfaction. Next, on to wages. Here, Ricardo took from Mill the hard-core or ultra-Malthusian view that wages, all wages, are always and everywhere pressing on the food supply to such an extent that they are always set and determined precisely at the level of the cost of subsistence. Labor is assumed to be homogeneous and of equal quality, so that all wages can be assumed to be at subsistence cost. While briefly and dimly acknowledging that labor can have different qualities or grades, Ricardo, like Marx after him, drastically assumed away the problem by blithely postulating that they can all be incorporated into a weighted quantity of labor hours. 
As a result, Ricardo could maintain that wage rates were uniform throughout the economy. In the meanwhile, as we have seen, food, or subsistence generally, was assumed to be incorporated into one commodity, corn, so that the price of corn can serve as a surrogate for subsistence cost in general. Given these heroic and fallacious assumptions, then, the wage rate is determined instantly and totally by the price of corn, since the wage rate can neither rise above the subsistence level, as determined by the price of corn, nor sink below it. The price of corn, in its turn, is determined according to Ricardo's famous theory of rent. Rent served as the linchpin of the Ricardian system, for according to Ricardo's rather bizarre theory, only land differed in quality. Labor, as we have seen, was assumed to be uniform, and therefore wage rates are uniform, and, as we shall see, profits are also assumed to be uniform because of the crucial postulate of the economies always being in long-run equilibrium. Land is the only factor which, miraculously, is allowed to differ in quality. Next, Ricardo assumes away any discovery of new lands or improvements in agricultural productivity. His theory of history therefore concludes that people always begin by cultivating the most fertile lands, and as population increases, the Malthusian pressure on the food supply forces the producers to use ever more inferior lands. In short, as population and food production rise, the cost of growing corn must inexorably rise over time. Rent, in Ricardo's phrase, is payment for the use of the original and indestructible powers of the soil. This hints at a productivity theory, and, indeed, Ricardo did see that more fertile and productive lands earned a higher rent. But, unfortunately, as Schumpeter put it, Ricardo then embarks upon his detour. In the first place, Ricardo made the assumption that, at any moment, the poorest land in cultivation yields a zero rent. He concluded from that alleged fact that a given piece of land earns rent not because of its own productivity, but merely because its productivity is greater than the poorest, zero-rent land under cultivation. Remember that for Ricardo, labor is homogeneous, and hence wages uniform and equal, and, as we shall see, profits are also uniform and equal. Land is unique in its permanent long-run structure of differential fertility and productivity. Hence, to Ricardo, rent is purely a differential, and land A earns rent solely because of its differential productivity compared to land B, the zero-rent land in cultivation. To Ricardo, several important points followed from these assumptions. First, as population inexorably increases, and poorer and poorer lands are used, all the differentials keep increasing. 
Thus, say that at one point of time, corn lands, which sums up all land, range in productivity from the highest, land A, through a spectrum down to land J, which, being marginal, earns a zero rent. But now population increases, and farmers have to cultivate more and poorer lands, say K, L, and M. M now becomes the zero-rent land, and land J now earns a positive rent, equal to the differential between its productivity and that of M. And all the previous inframarginal lands have their differential rents raised as well, it becomes ineluctably true, therefore, that over time, as population increases, rents and the proportion of income going to rent increase as well. Yet, though rent keeps increasing, at the margin it always remains zero. And, as Ricardo put it in a crucial part of his theory, being zero rent does not enter into cost. Put another way, quantity of labor cost, being allegedly homogeneous, is uniform for each product, and profits, being uniform and fairly small throughout the economy, form a part of cost that can be basically neglected. Since the price of every product is uniform, this means that the quantity of labor cost on the highest cost or zero-rent land uniquely determines the price of corn and of every other agricultural product. Rent, being inframarginal in Ricardo's assumptions, cannot enter into cost. Total rental income is a passive residual determined by selling prices and total income, and selling prices are determined by quantity of labor cost and, to a small extent, the uniform rate of profit. And since the quantity of labor needed to produce corn keeps rising as more and more inferior lands are put into production, this means that the cost of producing corn, and hence the price of corn, keep rising over time. And, paradoxically, while rent keeps rising over time, it remains zero at the margin, and therefore without any impact on costs. There are many flaws in this doctrine. In the first place, even the poorest land in cultivation never earns a zero rent just as the least productive piece of machinery or worker never earns a zero price or wage. It does not benefit any resource owner to keep his resource or factor in production unless it earns a positive rent. The marginal land or other resource will indeed earn less of a rent than more productive factors, but even the marginal land will always earn some positive rent, however small. Second, apart from the zero-rent problem, it is simply wrong to think that rent or any other factor return is caused by differentials. Each piece of land or unit of any factor earns whatever it produces. Differentials are simple arithmetic subtractions between two lands or other factors, each of which earns a positive rent of its own. 
The assumption of zero rent at the margin allows Ricardo to obscure the fact that every piece of land earns a productive rent, and allows him to slip into the differential as cause. We might just as well turn Ricardo on his head and apply the differential theory to wages, and say with Schumpeter that one pays more for good than for bad land exactly as one pays more for a good than a bad workman. Third, in discussing the rise in cost of producing corn, Ricardo reverses cause and effect. Ricardo states that increasing population obliges farmers to work land of inferior quality, and then causes a rise in its price. But as any utility theory analyst would realize, the causal chain is precisely the reverse. When the demand for corn increases, its price would rise, and the higher price would lead farmers to grow corn on higher-cost land. But this realization, of course, eliminates the Ricardian theory of value, and with it the entire Ricardian system. And fourth, as numerous critics have pointed out, it is certainly not true historically that people always start using the highest quality land and then sink gradually and inevitably down to more and more inferior land. Historically, there have always been advances, and enormous ones, in the productivity of agriculture, in the discovery and creation of new lands, and in the discovery and application of new and more productive agricultural techniques and types of products. Defenders of Ricardo counter that this is a purely historical argument, ignoring the logical beauty of the Ricardian theory. But the whole point is that Ricardo was, after all, advancing a historical theory, a law of history, and he certainly claimed historical accuracy for past and future predictions for his theory. And yet it is all a purely arbitrary, and hence largely untrue, assumption of his logical doctrine in the guise of a theory of history. Ricardo's basic problem throughout was making cavalier and untrue historical or empirical generalizations the building blocks of his logical system, from which he drew self-confident and seemingly apodictically true empirical and political conclusions. Yet from false assumptions only false conclusions can be drawn, regardless how imposing the logical structure may or may not be. Ricardo's differential rent theory has been widely hailed as the precursor of the neoclassical law of diminishing returns, which the neoclassicals were supposed to have generalized from land to all factors of production. But this is wrong since the law of diminishing returns applies to increasing doses of a factor to homogeneous units of other logically fixed factors, in this case, land. But the whole point of Ricardo's differential rent theory is that his areas of land are not homogeneous at all, but varying in a spectrum from superiority to inferiority. Therefore, the law of diminishing returns, as grasped by Turgot and rediscovered by the neoclassicals, simply does not apply.
Rent, though increasing, is then effectively zero and not part of expenses or costs. Rent is disposed of in the Ricardian equation. But we have not yet finished the determination of wages, which so far, we have said, is precisely fixed at the subsistence level. What will happen to the costs of subsistence over time? They will rise, as the cost of production of corn rises with the increasing population, forcing the cultivation of ever more inferior lands. Over time, in the slow-moving, long-run Ricardian equilibria, the cost of food will rise, and since wages must always be at the subsistence level, wages will have to rise to maintain real wage rates equal to the cost of subsistence. Now we begin to close the Ricardian circle. Rents are, in effect, zero and wage rates, always at subsistence, must rise over time as the cost of food increases, in order to keep precise pace with the rising cost of subsistence. But then, voila! We have finally determined all the variables except profits, at least to Ricardo's satisfaction. And since total income is given or kept frozen, this means that profits are the residual from total income. With rents out of the picture, if wage rates have to keep rising over time, this necessarily means that profits or profit rates have to keep falling. Hence the Ricardian doctrine of the ever-falling rate of profit, that is, long-term rate of interest, Note that this is not the same as Adam Smith's view that the profit rate falls over time because, and insofar as, capital continues to accumulate. Profit was supposed to be an inverse function of the stock of capital. Ricardo's doctrine of the falling rate of profit follows by triumphant tautology from his attempt to determine the other factor shares of total income. When profits fall to zero, or at any rate to a low level, capital will cease to accumulate, and we arrive at Ricardo's stationary state. Ricardo, even more than Smith, totally leaves out the entrepreneur. There can be no role for the entrepreneur, after all, if everyone is always in long-run equilibrium and there is never risk or uncertainty. His profits, as in Smith, are the long-run rate of return, that is, the rate of interest. In long-run equilibrium, furthermore, all profits are uniform, since firms rapidly move out of low-profit industries and into high-profit ones, until equalization takes place. We then have profits at a uniform rate throughout the economy at any given time. A plausible insight into Ricardo's habitual confusion of long-run equilibrium and instantaneous adjustments with the real world has been offered by Professor F. W. Fetter. Fetter points out that Ricardo's practical familiarity was not with business and industry, as was, we might note, J. B. Say, but with the bond and foreign exchange markets. 
Ricardo usually assumed that even in industry and agriculture, adjustment took place on the basis of as small price differences and almost as quickly as did arbitrage in government securities and in foreign exchange. To return to the Ricardian world, note that Ricardo does not say that the cost of corn rises over time because rents keep rising on corn land. He must get rid of the rent variable, and he can only do so by assuming that rent is zero at the margin, and therefore never forms any part of costs. Rent, then, is effectively zero. Why, then, does the cost of corn rise? As we have indicated, because the quantity of labor needed to produce corn, and hence the cost of producing corn, rises over time. This brings us to Ricardo's theory of cost and value. Rents are now out of it. Wages are not costs either, because a key to Ricardo's system is that rising wages lead only to lower profits, and not to higher prices. If rising wages meant that costs increased, then Ricardo, who, as we shall see, had a cost theory of value and price, would have to say that prices rose, rather than that profits would necessarily fall. Wages he treated as uniform, since Ricardo, like Marx after him, maintained that labor was homogeneous in quality. Not only did that mean that wages were uniform, but Ricardo could then treat, as the crucial part of its labor cost, the quantity of labor embodied in any product. Differences in quality or productivity of labor could then be dismissed as simply trivial and as a slightly more complex version of the quantity of labor hours. Quality has been quickly and magically transformed into quantity. We have reached the edge of the Ricardian and Marxian labor theory of value. So far we just have a labor quantity theory of cost. Ricardo vacillated at this point between a strict labor theory of cost and a labor quantity theory plus the uniform rate of profit. But since the uniform rate of profit, presumably around 3 to 6 percent, is small compared to the quantity of labor hours, Ricardo may be pardoned for dismissing the profit rate part of cost as of trivial importance. And since all profit rates are assumed to be uniform, and, as we shall see, Ricardo had a cost theory of value or price, he could easily dismiss the uniform and small proportion, profit, as of no account in explaining relative prices. It is, of course, peculiar to consider profits, even profits as long-run interest, as part of the costs of production. Again, this usage stems from eliminating any consideration of entrepreneurial profits and losses, and focusing on interest as a long-run cost of inducing savings and the accumulation of capital. If profits for Ricardo are always uniform, how is this uniform profit determined? Curiously, profits are in no way related to savings or capital accumulation. 
For Ricardo, they are only a residual left over after paying wages. In short, to hark back to our original equation of Ricardian distribution, total output or income equals rent plus profits plus wages. Remarkably, Ricardo has attempted to determine all the variables with only one variable explicitly determined. Output, as we have seen, was assumed as mysteriously given from outside the Ricardian system. Wages, the uniform wage throughout the economy, is the only explicitly determined variable, determined completely to equal the cost of subsistence, embodied in the cost of producing corn. But that leaves two residuals, rents and profits, to be determined. The way Ricardo tries to get around that problem is to dispose of rents, Rents are the differential between the lands in cultivation and the least productive zero-rent land in use. The cost of producing corn is equal to the quantity of labor hours embodied in its production. Since rents are zero at the margin, they do not enter into costs and are passively determined. At the no-rent margin, labor and capital's shares exhaust output. And since wages are supposedly determined by the cost of raising corn, this means that profit can only be a truistic residual of wages. Otherwise, the variable would be overdetermined, and the system would evidently collapse. The alleged historical laws follow from the model. Since increasing population forces more and more inferior land into cultivation, the cost of labor in producing corn, that is, the quantity of labor hours needed to produce it, must keep rising. And since price is determined by cost, supposedly boiled down into the quantity of labor hours to produce the good, this means that the price of corn must keep rising over time. But since real wage rates are fixed always at the cost of subsistence, and this is assumed to be the price of corn, money wage rates must keep rising over time while workers remain at the subsistence level, and therefore profits must keep falling in the course of history. Adam Smith believed that the rate of profit, or the long-run rate of interest return, is determined by the quantity of accumulated capital, so that more capital will lead to a falling rate of profit. While this theory is not fully correct, it at least understands that there is some connection between saving, capital accumulation, and long-run interest or profit. But to Ricardo, there is no connection whatever. Interest on capital is only a residual. By a series of fallacies and holistic locked-in assumptions, trivial conclusions are at last ground out, all with a portentous air, allegedly telling us conclusive insights about the real world. As Schumpeter scornfully puts it, propositions such as 
profits depend upon wages and the falling rate of profit, are excellent examples of that art of triviality that, ultimately connected with the Ricardian vice, leads the victim step by step into a situation where he has got either to surrender or to allow himself to be laughed at for denying what, by the time that situation is reached, is really a triviality. 5. Ricardo and the Ricardian System 2. The Theory of Value This brings us to Ricardo's theory of value, or price. While Ricardo formally admitted that supply and demand determine day-to-day market pricing, he tossed that aside as of no consequence, and concentrated solely on long-run equilibrium, that is, natural price and the alleged macro-distribution of income in that equilibrium. Utility Ricardo brusquely disposed of as ultimately necessary to production, but of no influence whatever on value or price. In the value paradox, he embraced exchange value and abandoned utility completely. Not only that, he frankly and boldly discarded any attempt to explain the prices of goods that are not reproducible, that could not be increased in supply by the employment of labor. Hence, Ricardo simply gave up any attempt to explain the prices of such goods as paintings, which are fixed in supply and cannot be increased. In short, Ricardo abandoned any attempt at a general explanation of consumer prices. We have arrived at the full-fledged Ricardian and Marxian labor theory of value. The Ricardian system is now complete. Prices of goods are determined by their costs, that is, by the quantity of labor hours embodied in them, trivially plus the uniform rate of profit. Specifically, since the price of each good is uniform, it will equal the cost of production on the highest cost, that is, zero rent or marginal land in cultivation. In short, price will be determined by cost, that is, the quantity of labor hours on the zero rent land used to work on the product. As time goes on, then, and population increases, poorer and poorer soils must be brought into use, so that the cost of producing corn continues to increase. It does so because the quantity of labor hours needed to produce corn keeps increasing, since labor must be employed on ever poorer soil. As a result, the price of corn keeps increasing. Since wage rates are always kept precisely at the subsistence level, the cost of growing corn, by population pressure, this means that money wage rates must continue to increase over time in order to keep real wage rates in pace with the ever-rising price of corn. Wage rates must increase over time, and hence profits must keep falling until they are so low that the stationary state is reached. To return to the idea of rent as not entering into cost, 
If we focus, as we should, on the micro, on the individual farmer or capitalist, it should be clear that the individual must pay rent in order to gain use of any particular plot of land in the productive process. To do so, he must outbid other firms in his own as well as other industries. Ricardo's refusal to even consider the individual firm and his focus on holistic aggregates enables him to overlook the fact that rents, even if differentials, enter into costs the way every expense on factors of production enters into them. This is the only way that is real and that counts in the real world, the point of view of the individual firm or entrepreneur. There is, in fact, no social point of view, since society as an entity does not exist. Ricardo's system is both gloomy and rife with allegedly inherent class conflict on the free market. First, there is tautological conflict, because, given the fixed total, the income shares of one macro group can only increase at the expense of another, but the point of the free market in the real world is that generally production increases, so that the total pie tends to keep rising. And, second, if we focus on individual factors and how much they earn, as does the later marginal productivity theory, and as did J.B. Say, then each factor tends to earn its marginal product, and we need not even concern ourselves with the alleged but non-existent laws and conflicts of macro-class income distribution. Ricardo kept his eye unerringly on the radically wrong problem, or, rather, problems. But there is even more class conflict here than implied by Ricardo's tautological macro-approach, for if value is the product solely of labor hours, then it becomes easy for Marx, who was, after all, a neo-Ricardian, to call all returns to capital exploitative deductions from the whole of labor's product. The Ricardian socialist call for turning over all of the product to labor follows directly from the Ricardian system. Although Ricardo and the other Orthodox Ricardians did not, of course, make that leap, Ricardo would have countered that capital represents embodied or frozen labor. But Marx accepted that point, and simply reposted that all labor producers of capital or frozen labor should obtain their full return. In fact, neither was right. If we wish to consider capital goods as frozen anything, we would have to say, with the great Austrian Bermbawerk, that capital is frozen labor and land and time. Labor, then, would be earning wages, land would earn rent, and interest or long-run profits would be the price of time. Recent analysts, in an attempt to mitigate the crude fallacy of Ricardo's labor theory of value, have maintained, as in the case of Smith, but even more so, that he was attempting not so much to explain the cause of value and price, but to measure values over time, and labor was considered an invariable measure of value. 
But this hardly mitigates Ricardo's flaws. Instead, it adds to the general fallacies and vagaries of the Ricardian system another important one, the vain search for a non-existent chimera of invariability. For values always fluctuate, and there is no invariable fixed base of value from which other value changes can be measured. Thus, in rejecting Say's definition of the value of a good as its purchasing power of other goods in exchange, Ricardo sought the invariable entity, the unmoved power. A franc is not a measure of value for anything, but for a quantity of the same metal of which francs are made unless francs, and the thing to be measured, can be referred to some other measure which is common to both. This, I think, they can be, for they are both the result of labor, and therefore labor is a common measure by which their real as well as their relative value may be estimated. It might be noted that both products are the result of capital, land, savings, and entrepreneurship, as well as labor, and that, in any case, their values are incommensurable except in terms of relative purchasing power, as Say had in fact maintained. Part of Ricardo's impassioned quest for an invariable measure of values undoubtedly stemmed from his deep-dyed scientism. Ricardo was almost as interested in the natural sciences as in economics. From his early youth, Ricardo was keenly interested in the natural sciences, in mathematics, chemistry, mineralogy, and geology. He joined the Geological Society in his thirties shortly after it was founded. It is probable that Ricardo's quest for an invariable measure of values was based on the physical science model. If scientific in the physical sciences meant measurement, then surely this would be required in the human sciences as well. As Emil Cowder wrote, I venture to say that Ricardo and his contemporaries believed that economics could only reach the dignity of a science if it could be based on objective measures like the Newtonian physics. An even stronger and more direct class struggle than that implied by the labor theory of value stemmed from Ricardo's approach toward landlords and land rent. Landlords are simply obtaining payment for the powers of the soil, which, at least in the hands of many of Ricardo's followers, meant an unjust return. Furthermore, Ricardo's gloomy vision of the future held that labor must be kept at subsistence level. Capitalists must see their profits inevitably falling. These two classes doing as badly as ever, labor, or always worse, capital, while the idle and useless landlords keep inexorably adding to their share of worldly goods. The productive classes suffer, while the idle landlords, charging for the powers of nature, benefit at the expense of the producers. If Ricardo implies Marx, he implies Henry George far more directly. The specter of land nationalization, or the single tax absorbing all land rent, follows straight from Ricardo. 
One of the greatest fallacies of the Ricardian theory of rent is that it ignores the fact that landlords do perform a vital economic function. They allocate land to its best and most productive use. Land does not allocate itself. It must be allocated, and only those who earn a return from such service have the incentive or the ability to allocate various parcels of land to their most profitable and hence most productive and economic uses. Ricardo himself did not go all the way to government expropriation of land rent, His short-run solution was to call for lowering of the tariff on corn, or even repeal of the corn laws entirely. The tariff on corn kept the price of corn high, and ensured that inferior, high-cost domestic corn land would be cultivated. Repeal of the corn laws would enable England to import cheap corn, and thereby postpone for a time the use of inferior and high-cost land. Corn prices would for a while be lower, money wage rates would therefore immediately be lower, and profits would rise, adding to the accumulation of capital. The dread stationary state would be put further off onto the horizon. Ricardo's other anti-landlord action was political. By entering Parliament, by joining Mill and the other Benthamite radicals in calling for democratic reform, Ricardo hoped to swing political power from the grip of the aristocracy, which meant, in practice, the landlord oligarchy, to the mass of the people. But if Ricardo was too individualistic or too timorous to embrace the full logical consequence of the Ricardian system, James Mill characteristically was not. James Mill was the first prominent Georgist, calling frankly and enthusiastically for a single tax on land rent. In his high office in the East India Company, Mill felt able to influence Indian government policies. Before obtaining this post, Mill had characteristically presumed to write and publish a massive History of British India, 1817, without ever having been in that country or knowing any of the Indian languages. Steeped in the contemptuous view that India was thoroughly uncivilized, Mill advocated a scientific single tax on land rent. Mill was convinced, as a Ricardian, that a tax on land rent was not a tax on cost, and therefore would not reduce the incentive to supply any productive good or service. Hence, a tax on land rent would have no bad effect on production. It would only have the effect of eliminating the ill-gotten gains of the landlords. In effect, a tax on land rent would be no tax at all, The land tax could be up to and including 100% of the social product caused by the differential fertility of the soil. The state, according to Mill, could then use this costless tax for public improvement, and largely for the function of maintaining law and order in India. We see now the pernicious implications of the fallacious view that any part of the expense of production is in some way, from a holistic or social point of view, really not a part of cost.
For if an expense is not part of cost, it is in some sense not necessary to the factor's contribution to production, and therefore this income can be confiscated by the government with no ill effect. Despite the deep pessimism of Ricardo about the nature and consequences of the free market, he oddly enough cleaved strongly and more firmly than Adam Smith to laissez-faire. Probably the reason was his strong conviction that virtually any kind of government intervention could only make matters worse. Taxation should be at a minimum, for all of it cripples the accumulation of capital and diverts it from its best uses, as do tariffs on imports. Poor laws, welfare systems, only worsen the Malthusian population pressures on wage rates. And, as an adherent of Say's law, he opposed government measures to stimulate consumption as well as the national debt. In general, Ricardo declared that the best thing that government can do to stimulate the greatest development of industry was to remove the obstacles to growth which government itself created. While Adam Smith's free market views concentrated on the sinister nature of predatory government action, Ricardo was particularly struck by government's pervasive ineptness and counterproductivity. A typical and charming note was struck in a letter from Germany by Ricardo to James Mill in 1817. We were very much delayed by the dilatoriness of the German post, which, being a monopoly, is, of course, very much mismanaged. The paradox of Ricardo's gloom about the alleged class conflict on the free market and his determined opposition to virtually all government intervention was best and most wittily described by Alexander Gray. Such is the Ricardian scheme of distribution. In the place of the old harmony of interest, he has placed dissension and antagonism at the heart of things. The interest of the landlord is always opposed to that of the consumer and manufacturer. So also the interests of the worker and the employer are eternally and irreconcilably opposed. When one gains, the other loses. Further, the outlook for all except the landlord is a process of continual pejoration. Yet Ricardo remains immovably non-interventionist. These, then, he says, are the laws by which wages are regulated. And he adds, inconsequently, like all other contracts, wages should be left to the fair and free competition of the market, and should never be controlled by the interference of the legislature. In a world of Ricardian gloom, one might ask, and did in effect ask, why there should not be interference. An optimist caroling that God's in his heaven and that all's right with enlightened self-interest has a right to nail the laissez-faire flag to the mast, but a pessimist who merely looks forward to bad days and worse times ought not in principle to be opposed to intervention, unless his pessimism is so thoroughgoing as to lead to the conviction that, bad as all diseases are, all remedies for all diseases are even worse. Finally, a fundamental and fatal flaw in Ricardo's whole approach in his system was that he started at the wrong end. 
he began with his overriding focus on the laws of macro-income distribution. His theory of value and price was only a subsidiary appendage, enabling him to maintain that wages are not a part of cost, and therefore that the only influence of rising wages was to cause profits to fall. Ricardo, in short, never grasped the crucial point understood by his continental counterpart, J.B. Say, that there are no laws of macro-income distribution. Economics only establishes micro-laws determining price, including the prices of the various factors of production. In a sense, of course, the distribution of income in practice is a spin-off of market-determined factor prices. But this distribution also depends on entrepreneurial profits and losses, in short, on entrepreneurial responses to risk and uncertainty, and on the supplies at any time of the respective factors. None of the latter can be determined by economic theory. Once again, David Ricardo was pursuing a chimera, and in doing so took British economic theory off on a detour, or rather, into a dead end. Put another way, the French Catillon Turgot Say analysis of the free market demonstrated that on the market there is no separate distribution of income process, as there indeed would be under a state controlled or socialist economy. Distribution is the indirect consequence of free production, exchange, and price determination. All of this escaped David Ricardo, who had little or no conception of the economy as a web of micro-relations linking together individual utilities, exchanges, and prices. As Frank Knight has pointed out, Ricardo, in a letter to his disciple McCullough, denied that the great questions of macro-income distribution were essentially connected with the theory of value. And further, Ricardo and his followers gave practically no hint of a system of economic organization worked out and directed by price forces. There is another point that needs to be made about Ricardo's basic economic goal. Chiding Adam Smith for being primarily interested in the total wealth of the nation rather than in the macro-distribution of income, Ricardo pursues his Malthusian hostility to population growth by asking what is the point of looking at gross rather than net income. As Ricardo puts it in a famous and astonishing passage, what would be the advantage resulting to a country from the employment of a great quantity of productive labor if, whether it employed that quantity or a smaller, its net rent and profits together would be the same? To an individual with a capital of twenty thousand pounds, whose profits were two thousand pounds per annum, it would be a matter quite indifferent whether his capital would employ a hundred or a thousand men, provided in all cases his profits were not diminished below two thousand pounds. Is not the real interest of the nation similar? 
Provided its net real income, its rent and profits be the same, it is of no importance whether the nation consists of ten or of twelve millions of inhabitants. The difference between ten and twelve million may not make any difference to David Ricardo, but it makes a considerable difference, I should think, to the two million who would not have been around, and to their parents, friends, and relations. There is no better example of the aggregative utilitarian economist looking upon the economy from the holistic viewpoint of a social slave-master, rather than from the point of view of individuals on the market. As Alexander Gray, in his witty and perceptive way, puts it, Ricardo's logic would lead to the desirability of the population being reduced to one, and that last remnant producing a vast net surplus with the aid of sorcery and mechanical contrivances. The repellent doctrine that man exists for the production of wealth, rather than that wealth exists for the use of man, here finds its classical utterance. 6. THE LAW OF COMPARATIVE ADVANTAGE even the most hostile critics of the Ricardian system have granted that at least David Ricardo made one vital contribution to economic thought, and to the case for freedom of trade, the law of comparative advantage. In emphasizing the great importance of the voluntary interplay of the international division of labor, free traders of the eighteenth century, including Adam Smith, base their doctrines on the law of absolute advantage. That is, countries should specialize in what they are best or most efficient at, and then exchange these products, for in that case the people of both countries will be better off. This is a relatively easy case to argue. It takes little persuasion to realize that the United States should not bother to grow bananas, or rather, to put it in basic micro-terms, that individuals and firms in the United States should not bother to do so, but rather produce something else, for example, wheat, manufactured goods, and exchange them for bananas grown in Honduras. There are, after all, precious few banana growers in the United States demanding a protective tariff. But what if the case is not that clear-cut, and American steel or semiconductor firms are demanding such protection? The law of comparative advantage tackles such hard cases, and is therefore indispensable to the case for free trade. It shows that even if, for example, country A is more efficient than country B at producing both commodities X and Y, it will pay the citizens of country A to specialize in producing X, which it is most best at producing, and buy all of commodity Y from country B, which it is better at producing, but does not have as great a comparative advantage as in making commodity X. In other words, each country should produce not just what it has an absolute advantage in making, but what it is most best at, or even least worst at, that is, what it has a comparative advantage in producing.
If, then, the government of country A imposes a protective tariff on imports of commodity Y, and it forcibly maintains an industry producing that commodity, this special privilege will injure the consumers in country A, as well as, obviously, injuring the people in country B. For country A, as well as the rest of the world, loses the advantage of specializing in the production of what it is most best at, since many of its scarce resources are compulsorily and inefficiently tied up in the production of commodity Y. The law of comparative advantage highlights the important fact that a protective tariff in country A wreaks injury on the efficient industries in that country, and the consumers in that country, as well as on country B and the rest of the world. Another implication of the law of comparative advantage is that no country or region of the earth is going to be left out of the international division of labor under free trade. For the law means that even if a country is in such poor shape that it has no absolute advantage in producing anything, it still pays for its trading partners, the people of other countries, to allow it to produce what it is least worst at. In this way, the citizens of every country benefit from international trade. No country is too poor or inefficient to be left out of international trade, and everyone benefits from countries specializing in what they are most best or least bad at, in other words, in whatever they have a comparative advantage. Until recently, it has been universally believed by historians of economic thought that David Ricardo first set forth the law of comparative advantage in his Principles of Political Economy in 1817. Recent researches by Professor Thwaite, however, have demonstrated not only that Ricardo did not originate this law, but that he did not understand and had little interest in the law, and that it played virtually no part in his system. Ricardo devoted only a few paragraphs to the law in his principles. The discussion was meager, and it was unrelated to the rest of his work and to the rest of his discussion of international trade. The discovery of the law of comparative advantage came considerably earlier. The problem of international trade sprang into public consciousness in Britain when Napoleon imposed his Berlin decrees in 1806, ordering the blockade of his enemy, England, from all trade with the continent of Europe. Immediately, young William Spence, 1783-1860, an English physiocrat and under-consumptionist who detested industry, published his Britain Independent of Commerce in 1807, advising Englishmen not to worry about the blockade, since only agriculture was economically important, and if English landlords would only spend all their incomes on consumption, all would be well. Spence's tract caused a storm of controversy, stimulating early works by two noteworthy British economists. 
One was James Mill, who critically reviewed Spence's work in the Eclectic Review for December 1807, and then expanded the article into his book, Commerce Defended, the following year. It was in rebuttal of Spence that Mill attacked underconsumptionist fallacies by bringing Say's Law to England. The other work was the first book of young Robert Torrens, 1780-1864, an Anglo-Irish officer in the Royal Marines, in his The Economists Refuted, 1808. It has long been held that Torrens first enunciated the law of comparative advantage, and that then, as Schumpeter phrased it, while Torrens baptized the theorem, Ricardo elaborated it and fought for it victoriously. It turns out, however, that this standard viewpoint is wrong in both its crucial parts. That is, Torrens did not baptize the law, and Ricardo scarcely elaborated or fought for it. For first, James Mill had a far better presentation of the law, though scarcely a complete one, in his Commerce Defended than did Torrens later the same year. Moreover, in his treatment, Torrens, and not Mill, committed several egregious errors. First, he claimed that trade yields greater benefits to a nation that imports durable goods and necessities as against perishables or luxuries. Second, he claimed also that advantages of home trade are more permanent than those of foreign trade, and also that all advantages of domestic trade remain at home, whereas part of the advantages of foreign trade are siphoned off for the benefit of foreigners. And, finally, following Smith and anticipating Marx and Lenin, Torrens asserted that foreign trade, by extending the division of labor, creates a surplus over domestic requirements that must then be vented in foreign exports. Six years later, James Mill led Robert Torrens again in presenting the rudiments of the law of comparative advantage. In the July 1814 issue of the Eclectic Review, Mill defended free trade against Malthus' support for the Corn Laws in his Observations. Mill pointed out that labor at home will, by engaging in foreign trade, procure more by buying imports than by producing all goods themselves. Mill's discussion was largely repeated by Torrens in his Essay on the External Corn Trade, published in February of the following year. Furthermore, in this work, Torrens explicitly hailed Mill's essay. Meanwhile, at the very time when this comparative cost ferment was taking place among his friends and colleagues, David Ricardo displayed no interest whatever in this important line of thought. To be sure, Ricardo weighed in to second his mentor Mill's attack on Malthus' support for the Corn Laws in his Essay on Profits, published in February 1815, but Ricardo's line of argument was exclusively Ricardian, that is, based solely on the distinctive Ricardian system. In fact, Ricardo displayed no interest in free trade in general, or in the arguments for it. 
His reasoning was solely devoted to the importance of lowering or abolishing the tariff on corn. This conclusion, as we have noted, was deduced from the distinctive Ricardian system, which was to be fully set forth two years later in his principles. For Ricardo, the key to the stifling of economic growth in any country, and especially in developed Britain, was the land shortage, the contention that poorer and poorer lands were necessarily being pressed into use in Britain. In consequence, the cost of subsistence kept increasing, and hence the prevailing, which must be the subsistence money wage, kept increasing as well. But this inevitable secular increase of wages must lower profits in agriculture, which in turn brings down all profits. In that way, capital accumulation is increasingly dampened, finally to disappear altogether. Lowering or abolishing the tariff on corn or other food was, for Ricardo, an ideal way of postponing the inevitable doom. By importing corn from abroad, diminishing fertility from corn land is deferred. The cost of corn, and therefore of subsistence, will fall sharply, and therefore money wage rates will fall pari passu, thereby raising profits and stimulating capital investment and economic growth. There is no hint in any of this discussion of the doctrine of comparative cost, or anything like it. But how about the mature Ricardo, the Ricardo of the principles? Once again, except for the three paragraphs on comparative advantage, Ricardo displays no interest in it, and he instead repeats the Ricardian system argument for repeal of the Corn Laws. Indeed, his discussion in the rest of the chapter on international trade is couched in terms of the Smithian theory of absolute advantage, rather than of the comparative advantage found in Torrens and especially in Mill. The three paragraphs on comparative advantage, furthermore, were not only carelessly worded and confused, they were the only account, brief as they were, that Ricardo would ever write on comparative advantage. Indeed, this was his only mention at any time of this doctrine. Even Ricardo's sudden reference to Portugal and his absurd hypothesis that the Portuguese had an absolute advantage over Britain in the production of cloth seemed to indicate his lack of serious interest in the theory of comparative cost. Furthermore, Ricardo's views on foreign trade in the principles received almost no comment at that time. Writers concentrated on his labor theory of value and his view that wage rates and profits always move inversely, with the former determining the latter. If Ricardo had no interest in the theory of comparative advantage and never wrote about it except in this single passage in the principles, what was it doing in the principles at all? Professor Thwaite's convincing hypothesis is that the law was injected into the principles by Ricardo's mentor, James Mill, whom we know wrote the original draft, as well as the revisions, for many parts of Ricardo's magnum opus. 
We know also that Mill prodded Ricardo on including a discussion of comparative cost ratios. As we have seen, Mill originated the doctrine of comparative cost, and led in developing it eight years later. Not only that, while Ricardo dropped the theory as soon as he enunciated it in the principles, Mill fully developed the analysis of comparative advantage further, first in his article on colonies for the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1818, and then in his textbook, The Elements of Political Economy, 1821. Once again, Robert Torrens tailed after Mill, repeating his discussion with no additional insights in 1827 in the fourth edition of his 1815 Essay on the External Corn Trade. Meanwhile, George Grote, a devoted Millian disciple, wrote in 1819 an important unpublished essay setting forth the Millian view on comparative advantage. And so, once again, James Mill, by the force of his mind as well as his personal charisma, was able to foist an original analysis of his own onto the Ricardian system. It is true that Mill was every bit a fan of the Ricardian system as Ricardo himself, but Mill was a man of far broader scope and erudition than his friend, and was interested in far more aspects of the disciplines of human action. It seems possible that Mill, the inveterate disciple and number two man, was number one man far more often than anyone has suspected. Chapter 4 the Decline of the Ricardian System, 1820-1848 1. The Conundrum of Ricardo's Popularity What accounts for the popularity of Ricardo's principles, and for the enduring dominance of the Ricardian system? The marginal utility revolutionary W. Stanley Jevons, writing the preface to the second edition of his great Theory of Political Economy in 1879, was forced to complain of the continuing dominance of the Ricardian doctrine, and to lament that when, at length, a true system of economics comes to be established, it will be seen that that able but wrong-headed man, David Ricardo, shunted the car of economic science onto a wrong line. Indeed, and Ricardo won the day with a theory that was not only far from self-evident, but in many ways bizarre, such as the labor theory of value, and he wrote his work in a crabbed and obscurantist style that would hardly be expected to sweep the field, either among laymen or in those more particularly interested in economics. Part of the explanation, as Schumpeter pointed out, is that Ricardo was politically in tune with the Zeitgeist. Even though his methodology was so abstract as to be divorced from and to falsify reality, Ricardo's motivation was not abstract theory, but its use in advancing politico-economic conclusions. Ricardo, like Mill, was devoted to free trade and laissez-faire, and, as we shall see, to hard money, and he applied his abstract system like a hammer in their service. This ideology was fast becoming the wave of the future in England, in the circles of businessmen and intellectuals. 
But what of Ricardo's abysmal writing, in style and in organization? Alexander Gray's heartfelt critique is on the mark. As to the form rather than the substance of Ricardo's writings, it is perhaps sufficient to say that he was no writer. He himself dimly realized that he was a bad writer, but it is doubtful whether he can have known the whole truth. It is undiscerning flattery to regard his chief work, The Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, as a book at all. Rather does it suggest the sweepings of a busy man's study, chapters of very varying length, which he clearly found it difficult to arrange in the right order, brusque notes and memoranda on points which interested the author. In defense, it may be admitted that Ricardo did not mean to write a book. These were, indeed, memoranda written for himself and his friends, published on his friends, actually Mill's, incitement. But this is a poor consolation to the lonely traveler befogged in the Ricardian jungle. It is very possible, however, that it was precisely Ricardo's obscurantism that accounted for his success. For all too many people, laymen and professionals alike, obscurity and bad writing equal profundity. If they can't understand it, and they hear at every hand that so-and-so is a great man, and his theories the current light, their belief in his profundity will be redoubled. There are great charms to obscurity. Moreover, there are particular charms for the adepts who cluster around the great man, the circle of initiates who claim, probably correctly, that only they can truly understand his work. Only they can penetrate the fog caused by the depth of the great man's wisdom. Schumpeter notes that quickly his circle developed the attitude, so amusing but also, alas, so melancholy to behold, of children who have been presented with a new toy. They thought the world of it. To them it was of incalculable value that only he could fail to appreciate who was too stupid to rise to Ricardian heights. Its murkiness and difficulty only heightened the enjoyment and pride of the adepts over their new toy. Nowadays this effect is considerably heightened by the fact that obscurity gives disciples and critics more to talk and write about, and thus greatly multiplies the career opportunities for scholars in the current age of publish or perish. Another reason for the popularity of Ricardianism was the persistent cadre activity of the indefatigable James Mill. One of Mill's important actions was to help found the Political Economy Club in London in 1821, a club that quickly became, for many years, the center of economic discussion and learning in Great Britain. It is characteristic of the early 19th century shift of the locus of economics from Scotland to England that this transfer was one of occupation as well as location. In Scotland, economic thought had centered in the two great universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, with influence spread through academic, literary, and business circles, and members of social clubs in the two cities. In England, on the contrary, there was almost no academic economics in the fossilized university courses of the day. Of the thirty founding members of the Political Economy Club, only one, 
Thomas Robert Malthus was an academic, teaching political economy at the East India Company's college at Haleybury. The other leading English economists in the club included David Ricardo, businessman and financier Thomas Took, 1774-1858, with Colonel Robert Torrens of the Royal Marines chairing the first meeting. Others were businessmen, publicists, and government officials. A few years later, academic opportunities began to open up. Mill's Scottish friend and fellow leading Ricardian, John Ramsay McCullough, who had been lecturing for several years, became professor of political economy in 1828 at the University College London, and joined the political economy club shortly thereafter. But after four years of teaching, he had to spend the rest of his life as a financial controller, The first economics post at Oxford was a chair founded by the banker and evangelist Henry Drummond in 1825, but the term of the chair was only five years. The first chairholder was the attorney and important young economist Nassau William Sr., 1790-1864, son of an Anglican vicar in Berkshire, who had studied at Oxford and had joined the Political Economy Club two years earlier. The new King's College London, established in the same year as University College, 1828, as a Tory and Anglican haven to offset its non-denominational neighbor, appointed Senior to its own political economy post in 1831. But Senior was kicked out unceremoniously for publishing a pamphlet urging a reduction in the budget of the Anglican establishment in Ireland, and he spent the rest of his career as a real property attorney and government lawyer, with the exception of another Drummond professorship at Oxford in 1847-1852. Cambridge treated economics with such disdain that its only contribution was to have a young lawyer of no distinction in the field, George Prime, teach economics without pay and at unpopular hours. Prime taught under those conditions for over forty years, from 1816 on, remarkably becoming professor of political economy in 1828. Apparently, he wrote nothing in economics and contributed to no important discussions. 2. The Rapid Decline of Ricardian Economics Before setting out to explain a problem, one must be quite sure that the problem really exists. Surely a partial answer to the conundrum of Ricardo's popularity and dominance over English economics is that that dominance was largely a myth. Until recently, the orthodox view in the history of economic thought was that Ricardianism dominated British thought from the date of Ricardo's principles through Jevons' abortive revolution in 1871 and until the 1890s, when Alfred Marshall's neo-Ricardianism supposedly integrated marginal utility into a basically Ricardian framework. 
One of the last expressions of this orthodoxy came in 1949, when Professor Sidney G. Checkland, from an anti-Ricardian perspective, bewailed the manner in which the two Scotsmen, James Mill and McCullough, like Ricardo, the Spanish-Portuguese Jew, expatriates from their native culture, and therefore presumably alienated from mainstream English life, used brilliant cadre tactics to acquire their hegemony over English thought. Checkland saw that Mill was the cadre leader of the Ricardians, cleverly advising Ricardo not to give publicity to his critics by deigning to reply to them in the third, 1821 edition of his Principles. Mill wrote his Elements of Political Economy as a Ricardian textbook in 1821, but since it lacked popular appeal, the younger McCullough, a charismatic, enormously strong, booming, burly, scotch-whiskey-drinking figure of a man, took over as the popularizer and propagator of Ricardianism. The first important revision of the myth of Ricardian triumph came with the Marxist Ronald Meek's rebuttal of Checkland the following year. Checkland, he points out, made the crucial mistake, following J. M. Keynes, of treating Say's law as equivalent to the Ricardian system. While Ricardo and McCullough followed Mill in considering Say's law to be very important, they did not regard it as crucial to the Ricardian system, which actually comprised the Ricardian theories of value and distribution. While Say's law indeed triumphed early, with only Malthus temporarily opposing it, the Ricardian system proper met a very different fate. In fact, as he managed to do in other areas of the history of economic thought, John Maynard Keynes, in his general theory, skewed and distorted Ricardian development. It was only Keynes, in his preoccupation with promoting government deficits and inflationism and attacking Say's law, who made that law the central feature of the Ricardian system. It was also Keynes who distorted the facts by holding up Malthus as the proto-Keynesian hero, stubbornly calling for an anti-Say and anti-Ricardian alternative to the Ricardian system. On the contrary, Malthus, despite various differences, considered himself a Smithian and was generally friendly to Ricardianism as well as to Ricardo personally. Malthus' interest in the alleged general glut and in denouncing Say's law was an ephemeral product of the post-Napoleonic War Depression in England. When England's prosperity returned after 1823, Malthus totally lost interest in the general glut question and wrote no more about it. Say's law had triumphed except among a few radical fringe people in the economic underworld and Malthus steadfastly refused to be drawn into alliance with them. These fringe persons who continued their worn-out cries of a general glut into the 1830s included the prolific left Tory statist poet and essayist Robert Southey, 1774-1843, who had attacked deflation after the Napoleonic War, and Member of Parliament, Geologist, and Authority on Volcanoes, George Paulette Scroop, 1797-1876, to 
raising the fallacious cry of underconsumption, Scrope, in his Principles of Political Economy, 1833, charged that any decline in consumption in favor of a general increase in the propensity to save would necessarily and proportionately diminish the demand as compared with the supply, and occasion a general glut. In this old proto-Keynesian fallacy, savings apparently leak out of the economy and result in permanent depression. Apparently, investment, since it is transitional and not final, is not considered spending at all. And then, as in all varieties of crank economic analysis, the price system and the relationship of selling prices to costs is somehow not considered worthy of mention at all. George Paulette Scroop was originally named George Thompson, son of John Poulette Thompson, head of a firm of Russian merchants. He took the name Scroop after marrying an heiress of the Scroop family. Born in London, Scroop studied at Oxford and Cambridge and was a member of the House of Commons for thirty-five years. A champion of free trade, he wrote so many pamphlets on economic issues, about seventy, that he was commonly dubbed Pamphlet Scroop. In contrast to the triumph of Say's law, the Ricardian system proper was rapidly repudiated in the world of English economics. In January 1831, eight years after Ricardo's death, Colonel Robert Torrens addressed the political economy club that Ricardo had helped to found. Torrens raised the crucial question, how many of the Ricardian principles were still held to be correct? His answer, all the great principles of Ricardian system had been abandoned, especially the critical ones of value, rent, and profits. Samuel Bailey, in his great espousal of the utility theory of value in 1825, had smashed the labor theory. Thomas Perronet Thompson had disposed of the Ricardian theory of rent. The theory of profit is unsound because Ricardo ignored the replacement of capital, and the Malthusian subsistence theory of wages had been generally abandoned. To the Marxian Ronald Meek, this wholesale desertion of Ricardianism comprised a capitalist plot against the labor theory of value, whose socialistic implications had been drawn out during the 1820s by the Ricardian socialists. At any rate, by 1829 to 1831, there were no adherents of the labor theory of value left in mainstream British economics. To Meek, the only exception was McCullough, who in turn had abandoned Ricardo on many other issues, including the idea of productive versus unproductive labor, the theory of profit, and the theory of class conflict on the market implicit in the Ricardian theory of distribution. Only Say's law, with its strong laissez-faire implications, had survived what Meek laments as the purge. But the purge, or abandonment, came even earlier, antedating the Ricardian socialists. 
Professor Frank W. Fetter, in his classic article, points out that upon Ricardo's death in 1823, James Mill wrote despairingly to McCullough and noted that they were the two and only genuine disciples of Ricardo in existence, and McCullough did not stay one for long. Fetter notes that economic opinion in the 1820s was diverse and unsettled, except for a general adherence to free trade. Everyone dismissed the portentous Ricardian conclusion that profits varied inversely to wages, except as a banal arithmetic truism. Furthermore, even Ricardo himself had pointed the way to abandoning his own crucial permanent subsistence theory of wages, which the German socialist Ferdinand Lassalle was later to call the Iron Law of Wages. Ricardo had adopted the subsistence wage theory, taken from the hardcore Malthusian first edition of Malthus' Essay on Population, 1798. But many of his statements, apart from this rigid formal model, were really adopted from the much weaker, indeed contradictory, second edition of the essay, 1803. These were qualifications which Marx would correctly note amounted to a desertion of the iron law. Criticism of Malthusian doctrine prevailed in the journals by the late 1820s, Thus, in early 1826, a writer noted in the Monthly Review that the law of relentless increase in population operates only in poor societies. It moves in an inverse proportion to the acquisition of wealth. It is only when people become more luxuriant, when those engagements which form the principal charm in humble life lose their attractions by the substitution of habits of refinement that the increase in population becomes progressively less. Finally, in 1829, Nassau W. Sr.'s letters to Malthus effectively put the boots to the iron law. In this published exchange of correspondence, following the delivery of his lectures on population, two lectures on population, to which is added a correspondence between the author and the Reverend T. R. Malthus, London, 1829, Sr. dealt a devastating blow to the Malthusian doctrine. In the first place, while agreeing that excessive population growth could conceivably one day constitute a problem, Senior, in effect, stood Malthus on his head by pointing out that while population indeed pressed on the food supply in undeveloped countries, the history of the prosperous countries of the West had been marked by an increase in the food supply outstripping the rise in population. Indeed, this fact is simply demonstrated by the rising living standards of the Western countries over the centuries and this economic growth must be due to a general tendency of agricultural and other productivity to rise, as well as people devoting themselves to safeguarding their higher living standards. As a result, population does not grow enough to reduce the living standards of the public to the subsistence level. And while Malthus would not verbally go so far as Senior in speaking of a general tendency for food to increase faster than population, it was clear from Malthus' reply that the mellower Malthus of the second edition had triumphed.
That seniors saw the full implications of the changes of the second edition is also demonstrated by his own formulation of the population principle, that the population of the world is limited only by moral or physical evil, or by fear of the deficiency of those articles of wealth which the habits of individuals of each class of its inhabitants lead them to acquire. But while the iron law of wages was in fact finished de facto, it still continued to reign, as it were, de jure. For Nassau Sr., suffering from excessive piety toward Malthus, lacked the instinct for the jugular that would have stripped the veil of evasions from the grave fallacies of the Malthusian doctrine. Instead, Sr. collaborated in the sham, insisting, though he knew better, on continuing to hail the Malthusian principle of population as a cornerstone of economic science, as Joseph Schumpeter, ever alive to the follies of economists, lamented, Senior always treated Malthus with infinite respect. He even called him a benefactor of humanity, and did all in his power to minimize his deviation from what he evidently considered to be established doctrine. All the less justification is there for the practice of some later writers who, with nauseating pontificality, treated Senior as a none-too-intelligent pupil who needed to be set right by Malthus. As a matter of fact, it is perfectly clear that Senior realized the extent to which Malthus' qualifications ought to have spelled recantation and to what degree his adherence to some of his former opinions spelled contradiction. 3. THE THEORY OF RENT The Ricardian theory of rent was effectively demolished by Thomas Perronet Thompson, 1783-1869, in his pamphlet The True Theory of Rent, 1826. Thompson weighed in against this fallacious capstone to the Ricardian system. The celebrated theory of rent, Thompson charged, is founded on a fallacy, for demand is the key to the price of corn and to rent. The fallacy lies in assuming to be the cause what in reality is only a consequence. It is the rise in the price of produce that enables and causes inferior land to be brought into cultivation, and not the cultivation of inferior land that causes the rise of rent. Thompson goes on to note in wonder that Ricardo perceived the fallacy in the view that corn sells for a high price because rent is paid, and not vice versa, and yet, pressed on to adopt a similar cost theory of price. Here Ricardo reversed cause and effect by maintaining that the cultivation of inferior land causes the price of corn to rise, instead of the other way round. During the same year, Colonel Robert Torrens himself destroyed the Ricardian theory of rent even more effectively, zeroing in on the crucial fallacy of rent as a differential. 
Characteristically, Torrens, who was involved in all the economic controversies of the day and changed his mind significantly on nearly all of them, delivered his coup de grace in the third edition of a work in which he had originally predated Ricardo in the discovery and championing of the theory of differential rent. This work was the Essay on the External Trade, originally published in 1815. But now Torrens honed in on the critical point that the rent of land, A, does not depend on its being more fertile or productive than some other piece of land, B, that, on the contrary, the rent on each land stems from its own productivity, period in turn partially determined by the scarcity of that particular land and by the demand for its product. The existence of a return on a piece of land is by no means dependent on the existence of inferior lands. As Torrens puts it, neither the gradations of soil nor the successive applications of capital to land with decreasing returns are in any way essential to the appearance or the rise of rents. If all soils were of one uniform quality, and if land, after having been adequately stocked, could yield no additional produce, Still, the rise in the value of raw produce would cause a portion of the surplus produce of the soil to assume the form of rent. In the very same year, 1831, that Colonel Torrens was thus pronouncing the death of the Ricardian system, the Reverend Richard Jones, 1790-1855, a Cambridge graduate, put the final boots to the Ricardian theory in his discourse on rent, in his essay on the distribution of wealth. A Baconian inductivist, historicist, and anti-theorist, who paradoxically first succeeded Senior as Professor of Political Economy at King's College, London, and then followed Malthus as Professor at the East India College of Haleybury, Jones stressed the error of Ricardo's historical dictum that the most fertile lands are always cultivated first in every country which then moved successively to less and less fertile lands. For Schumpeter and others to dismiss Jones' case as confusing historical fact with an abstract theoretical model misses the real point. Fallacious anti-theorist Richard Jones undoubtedly was. But from his own point of view, David Ricardo was not simply setting up an abstract and totally unrealistic theoretical model. Ricardo was interested above all in political applications, and he was deluded enough to believe that his model was spewing forth accurate laws of past and future historical trends. For Ricardo, inexorable rises in rent, crippling future economic development, were a predictable empirical consequence of his own theory. Specific empirical facts cannot give rise to or test theory, but a theoretical law that attempts to predict past and future can be validly countered by examining the course of actual history. Empirical facts can properly be used to refute empirical generalizations.
The various demolitions of Ricardo's theory of rent, especially that of Perinette Thompson, quickly triumphed in the economic literature. The Thompson critique had been anticipated in the influential journals in the British Critic as early as 1821, and by Nassau W. Sr. in the Quarterly Review in the same year. By the early 1830s, Thompson's view had triumphed in the journals, including an article by Samuel Mountefort Longfield, the first Irish professor of political economy at Trinity College, Dublin. By the 1840s, the Ricardian theory of rent was dead in the water and almost beneath discussion. Apart from McCullough, the only one willing to defend it was the ardent and emotional Ricardian, the poet and writer Thomas de Quincey, 1785-1859. David Ricardo, as he himself acknowledged, did not originate his differential theory of rent. It began in 1777 on the publication of An Inquiry into the Nature of the Corn Laws by the Scottish farmer James Anderson, 1739-1808. An Aberdeenshire farmer, Anderson founded and edited the weekly Bee and later moved to London, where he edited publications in agricultural science and the arts. Anderson's theory, however, remained forgotten until independently replicated by three writers in 1815. Thomas Robert Malthus, in his Inquiry into the Nature and Progress of Rent, Sir Edward West's 1782-1828, Essay on the Application of Capital to Land, and the first edition of Torrens Essay on the External Corn Trade. Malthus did not integrate his theory into anything like the Ricardian system, and furthermore, he was scarcely an opponent of the landlords or of land rent. To the contrary, Malthus defended the Corn Laws. On the other hand, West, an attorney and fellow of University College, Oxford, who later served as Supreme Court Justice in India and died early of disease, so closely anticipated the Ricardian system that Schumpeter habitually refers to the West-Ricardian theory. The interesting question is, what gave rise in a very short period of time, 1815 to 1817, to such intense concern, or at least attention to, the alleged problems of rising rents? For apart from the relatively unknown James Anderson, attention to rising rents occurs within a very few years shortly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. The answer was brilliantly supplied by the early 20th century American-Austrian economist Frank Albert Fetter. The Napoleonic Wars of the first 15 years of the 19th century were marked by high taxation, blockages of food imports, currency inflation, and consequently unprecedentedly high prices for corn in England, and hence highly inflated agricultural rents. It is surely no accident, as Fetter notes, that the so-called Ricardian doctrine of rent was independently formulated by several other writers, West, Malthus, Torrens, and others, between 1813 and 1815, when wheat prices were at their peak. 
4. Colonel Perinet Thompson, Anti-Ricardian Benthamite We must pause a moment to consider the fascinating character of Colonel Perinet Thompson, an ardent Benthamite radical and a champion of free trade and opponent of the Corn Laws. Thompson, the son of a prosperous merchant and banker from Sussex and member of Parliament for a decade, spent the first part of his adult life in the military, retiring from active service in 1922 at the age of 39 with the rank of lieutenant. Despite this relatively low rank, Thompson had been made the first royal governor of the colony of Sierra Leone in 1808, but got himself recalled quickly by clamoring for the abolition of the slave trade. His removal by the Tory British government over the issue of slavery radicalized young Thompson, whose education in classical liberalism was further advanced by reading Adam Smith and Turgot. After retiring from active service, Thompson was compensated for his low rank in important work over a long military career by being repeatedly promoted while inactive. By the time of his death, Thompson had risen to the rank of full general. Before going into military service, Thompson had graduated from Queen's College, Cambridge, and been made a fellow of that college. On retiring from the military life, he joined Bentham's circle of admirers and plunged into Benthamite utilitarianism and radicalism. Thompson's first published work appeared in the very first issue of Bentham's own periodical, The Westminster Review, 1824. His true theory of rent, designed to uphold Adam Smith's views on rent as against Ricardo, followed and the next year Perinet Thompson published his well-known Catechism on the Corn Laws, 1827, generally considered the most important work in the entire anti-corn law literature. Later, Thompson became one of the most effective members of the Anti-Corn Law League, in 1829, only half a decade since his plunge into politics, the now Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Perinet Thompson became the sole owner of the Benthamite Westminster Review, and contributed articles to every issue until relinquishing ownership seven years later. After being defeated for Parliament in 1834, Thompson won election a year later, taking his stand with George Grote and the philosophic radicals in Parliament. Losing his seat two years later, he ran several times unsuccessfully, serving in Parliament from 1847 to 1852, and again from 1857 to 1859. Thompson's writings were prolific, and in many areas. At the age of 59, a six-volume collection of his writings to date was published, Exercises, Political and Others, 1842, and he kept writing pamphlets and newspaper articles on democratic reform until the day before his death at the age of 86, in addition to his widespread political and economic concerns, Thompson wrote and published works on mathematics, the science of acoustics, and the theory of musical harmony. 
an organ built on the lines of Thompson's harmonic theory received honorable mention at the Great Exhibition of 1851. Thompson contributed more to economics than his attack on rent. His first article in the Westminster Review on the Instrument of Exchange followed Bentham's own inflationist views by advocating an inconvertible paper currency. Another, equally dubious, contribution of Thompson's in the same essay followed up a hint made ten years before by Malthus. Malthus, who had been trained in mathematics at Cambridge, had observed in a pamphlet in 1814 that differential calculus might prove useful in the theory of morals, economics, and politics, since many questions in these disciplines center around the pursuit of maxima and minima. By the time of the publication of his Principles of Political Economy in 1820, however, Malthus had wisely grown skeptical of the possibilities of maths in economics as well as in ethics and politics. Thompson, however, also trained in mathematics at Cambridge, had no such scruples, and his 1824 article opened a fateful door by using the differential calculus in defining a maximum gain. The perfect Benthamite, steeped in looking at maxima of pleasure and minima of pain, had struck a fateful chord. Pandora's box had been opened. Thompson's sympathy for mathematical economics, however, did not keep him from denouncing the Smith-Ricardo search for a fixed and invariable measure of value, which he wisely dismissed as a chimera. Furthermore, in the Westminster Review in 1832, Thompson trenchantly criticized all cost theories of value, pointing out that cost and price almost always differ. And these differences, he added, are not accidental and ephemeral, as Smith and especially Ricardo assumed in their focus on the long-run natural price. On the contrary, these short-run differences are the essence of the dynamic real world. This perpetual oscillation on both sides of the cost-price, instead of being an inconsiderable accident, is in reality the great agent by which the commercial world is kept in motion. 5. Samuel Bailey and the Subjective Utility Theory of Value in 1825, Samuel Bailey, 1791-1870, a rising young merchant from Sheffield, published a thorough demolition of Ricardian value theory in his A Critical Dissertation on the Nature, Measures, and Causes of Value. Bailey at last brought into English economics the subjective utility theory of the French tradition, Unfortunately, he was not gracious enough to acknowledge that fact. While his essay was clearly in the Say tradition, for example, his brief and brusque references to Say's treatise gave no hints of acknowledging his indebtedness. But in any case, Bailey's demolition of Ricardo was devastating. Beginning with Ricardo's definition of value as the relative price or purchasing power of particular goods, 
Bailey went on to show the absurdity and inner contradiction of Ricardo's claim that each good acquires an absolute and invarying value from the quantity of labor hours embodied in its production. For one thing, if the quantity of labor needed to produce good A remains the same, its value, contra Ricardo, can scarcely be invariable. If the quantity of labor embodied in other goods, B, C, D, etc., has changed. In short, value is strictly relational, a ranking among goods, and therefore cannot be absolute or invariant. Furthermore, Bailey demonstrates that value is not inherent in goods at all, but is rather always a process of subjective evaluation in the minds of individuals. Value, as Bailey pointed out, in its ultimate sense appears to mean the esteem in which any object is held. It denotes, strictly speaking, an effect produced on the mind. Value is purely a mental affection. Furthermore, he profoundly states that value is not only a subjective estimation, but also that valuation is necessarily relative among various goods or objects. Value is a matter of relative preference. Thus Bailey, When we consider objects in themselves without reference to each other, the emotion or pleasure or satisfaction with which we regard their utility or beauty, can scarcely take the appellation of value. It is only when objects are considered as subjects of preference or exchange that the specific feeling of value can arise. When they are so considered, our esteem for one object, or our wish to possess it, may be equal to, or greater or less than, our esteem for another. But if value is subjective and relative, or relational valuation, it follows that it is absurd for Ricardo to hanker after an invariable measure of value. In a scintillating and telling passage, Bailey displays the inner contradictions and absurdities of any objective, absolute theory of value, and specifically of the Ricardian quantity of labor variant. The Ricardians had lost sight of the relative nature of value, and consider it as something positive and absolute so that if there were only two commodities in the world, and they should both, from some circumstance or other, come to be produced by double the quantity of labor, they would both rise in real value, although their relation to each other would be undisturbed. According to this doctrine, everything might at once become more valuable by requiring at once more labor for its production a position utterly at variance with the truth. That value denotes the relation in which commodities stand to each other as articles of exchange. Real value, in a word, is on this theory considered as being the independent result of labor, and consequently, if under any circumstances the quantity of labor is increased, the real value is increased. Hence the paradox. 
quoting from the devoted Ricardian Thomas de Quincey, that it is possible for A continually to increase in value, in real value, observe, and yet command a continually decreasing quantity of B, and this though they were the only commodities in existence. In sum, as Bailey pungently noted, the very term absolute value implies the same sort of absurdity as absolute distance. Bailey then enters into a penetrating discussion of the theory of measurement, showing the tremendous gulf between genuine measurement of real or physical objects and any concept of measuring something as subjective and relative as human valuation. In the case of physical objects, such concepts as length or weight are measured by fixing an invariant physical measure, such as a foot rule, and then comparing the length of other objects in question with such a rule. In human valuation, measurement is quite different. It is simply the expression of prices or relative purchasing powers of different goods in terms of one money or medium of exchange. Here there is no physical operation such as measurement of physical objects. In the case of money, there is a common expression or denominator of value in money rather than an invariable physical object of comparison. In fact, these prices or quantities are relative and variable, and there is no invariability involved. Indeed, Bailey would have done still better to abandon the term measure altogether and to confine it strictly to the invariant standards used to compare physical objects simply confining the idea of comparing relative prices in terms of money to the term common expression or common denominator. A great deal of confusion in economic theory might have been avoided. In the course of demolishing the idea of an invariable measure of value, Bailey took deadly aim at the notion that the value of money is invariant over time, and therefore can be used to compare general prices over time. While the money commodity is not more fixed in value than any other, one of its attributes, and one of the reasons it is chosen as money on the market, is its comparative steadiness of value, as Bailey sensibly termed it in a later work on money and its value, Money and its Vicissitudes in Value, 1837. But its value is not constant, and therefore there is no way of measuring value over time. But commodities only have value relations to each other at the same time. A commodity has no value relation to itself at different times. As Bailey puts it, we cannot ascertain the relation of cloth at one time to cloth at another, as we ascertain the relation to cloth in the present day. All that we can do is to compare the relation in which cloth stood at each period to some other commodity. We cannot say that a pair of stockings in James I's reign would exchange for six pair in our own day, 
and we therefore cannot say that a pair in James I's reign was equal in value to six pair now, without reference to some other article. Value is a relation between contemporary commodities, because such only admit of being exchanged for each other. And if we compare the value of a commodity at one time with its value at another, it is only a comparison of the relation in which it stood at these different times to some other commodity. Until recently, historians have believed that Bailey's work made no impact on the Ricardian world of British economics and fell into obscurity, only to be resurrected at the end of the 19th century by economists looking for forerunners of the marginal utility theory. Actually, we now know that, despite a vicious personal assault, probably by James Mill on Bailey in the Westminster Review, Bailey's critical dissertation was widely read among economists, and virtually swept the field. In his January 1831 funeral rites for the Ricardian system before the Political Economy Club, Colonel Robert Torrens declared that, as to value, Bailey's dissertation has settled that question. Indeed, the year after Bailey's work was published, Torrens praised it highly in the third edition of his Essay on the External Corn Trade, calling it in his preface a masterly specimen of perspicuous and accurate logic, spearing that vague and ambiguous language in which some of our most eminent economists have indulged. And, remarkably, the changeable Torrens stuck to that estimate throughout his life. In the lengthy introduction to his The Budget, 1844, in which he revised and retracted many of his earlier views, Colonel Torrens went out of his way to affirm that the gifted author of a dissertation on the nature, causes, and measures of value has set finally at rest the long, agitated question whether value should be regarded as an absolute or positive quality inhering in commodities or as a relation existing between them. Samuel Bailey wrote an effective reply to the Westminster Critic, a letter to a political economist, 1826. But apart from this and his money tract, most of his numerous writings dealt with philosophy and with political reform. For this prosperous Sheffield merchant, born into a mercantile family, founder and four-time president of the Sheffield Literary and Philosophical Society, was in intellectual matters an ardent Benthamite. He devoted the bulk of his intellectual resources to Benthamite writings on philosophy and on radical reform, and twice ran unsuccessfully on a reform ticket for Parliament. Bailey made a considerable philosophical impact with his first book, his Essay on the Formation and Publication of Public Opinion, 1821. The essay's emphasis on the utilitarian value of free discussion greatly influenced James Mill, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, and Francis Place. 
In economic matters, Bailey's essay grounded economic activity in subjective mental phenomena and explicitly rejected the emphasis of British classical economics on physical material objects. The methodology of economics, Bailey maintained, was introspective of one's empirical surroundings. Bailey saw economics as a science of mind rather than as technology. Clearly, his methodology and philosophy of economics were far more Austrian than has been realized. Bailey's later works were non-economic, including Essays on the Pursuit of Truth, 1844, The Theory of Reasoning, 1851 and 1852, and three series of Letters on the Philosophy of the Human Mind, 1855 to 1862. His final publication was a two-volume book using etymology to rearrange and reinterpret some of Shakespeare's plays, On the Received Text of Shakespeare's Dramatic Writings and Its Improvement, 1862-1866. Samuel Bailey was the most important and influential subjective value theorist, but he was not the first to bring subjective utility theory to 19th century Britain. That honor belongs to the virtually unknown Scotsman John Craig, circa 1780 to circa 1850. All that we know about Craig is that he was a citizen of Glasgow and was a member of the Fellowship of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and yet nothing else is known about his occupation or background. After writing a three-volume work on the Elements of Political Science, 1814, Craig made his striking, if unnoticed, contribution to economics in his Remarks on Some Fundamental Doctrines of Political Economy, 1821. Craig not only brought utility into a British economics dominated by discussions of cost and natural price, For the first time in Great Britain, he brought value theory to the verge of the concept of marginal utility. Starting with the axiom that utility is the basis of all value, Craig proceeds to the influence of supply. Relative values of commodities may change, and those persons who happen to be possessed of articles which are produced in larger quantities than formerly, or which from other circumstances become less in demand, may find themselves poorer. In short, greater quantity leads to a lesser value. More abundance leading to lower value had once been a commonplace of economic thought. But precisely why is this true? Craig first notes that an increased quantity of, say, broadcloth will lower its price. He then goes on to explain, in a truly notable passage, that all of the broadcloth that, in the estimation of purchasers, was worth the former price had been formerly brought to market and if more is now to be disposed of, it must be to those who did not reckon its utility equivalent to its former cost. New purchasers indeed will appear in proportion to the reduction of price, 
because at every step of the decline it is brought down to the estimate which an additional number of persons had formed of its power of producing gratification, or, in other words, to their estimate of its value in use. Thus John Craig not only explicitly refuted the dominant Smithian view of the separation of value in use from value in exchange, showing that the latter depended strictly on the former. Even more important, Craig had captured the essence of the marginal utility doctrine without the label, showing that as the quantity of a good increases, its price or value must fall in order to tap a new group of purchasers, whose utility estimate of the good had been too low to allow them to purchase the good at the original higher price for the smaller product. In short, purchasers previously sub-marginal now become marginal for the additional product as the price falls. As Professor Thor Bruce declares, Craig appears on the very verge of expressing the idea of marginal utility. He broke away from the theory held by his contemporaries, which was based on the cost idea, and became the first exponent of the idea of the connection between utility and value. In thus emphasizing the utility theory, he was the forerunner of the Austrian school of the latter half of the nineteenth century. Craig doesn't stop there. If more broadcloth, for example, has been produced, and its price has therefore fallen, the previous purchasers now have surplus revenue, which they will use to increase the demand and therefore the price of other products. Hence the fall in value of broadcloth will increase the demand and the price of other goods. Therefore, an increased supply of some goods does not necessarily lead to a fall in general values, but rather to a restructuring of prices and to additional real income to consumers. Craig concludes from his value analysis that exchange value not only depends on use value, but is also an accurate measure of that value. Craig points out in his introduction to the remarks that only after the body of his tract was written did he come across J. B. Say's treatise and see the similarity in approach. He adds, however, that Say's proper concentration on exchange value should have been amended to point out that it is also the embodiment or expression of value in use. Attacking the Ricardian labor or cost theory of value, Craig points out that the value of any good is determined not by its cost of production, but by its demand and supply, the demand varying continually in accordance with consumer desires, and the supply changing according to the scarcity or abundance of its factors of production, as well as the fertility of agriculture. Or, as Craig put it, even if the cost were ascertained, it would not enable us to judge of the exchangeable value. Exchange value depends entirely on the proportion in the market which the demand for an article may bear to the supply, 
a proportion ever varying on the one hand according to the plenty or scarcity of capital or labor, and the fertility of the season. If Samuel Bailey was preceded by John Craig, he was succeeded, six years after his dissertation, by Charles Foster Cotterill, in his An Examination of the Doctrine of Value, 1831. Cotterill not only generally endorsed Bailey's subjective utility theory, he also pronounced the same year as Torrens the demise of the Ricardian movement, noting bemusedly that there are some Ricardians still remaining. 6. Nassau Sr., The Whateley Connection, and Utility Theory during the late 1820s, Nassau W. Sr. delivered a series of lectures as Drummond Professor at Oxford, some of which were collected in Sr.'s only published book, his Outline of the Science of Political Economy, 1836. Sr. carried forward Bailey's subjective utility theory. How much he was influenced by Bailey is difficult to say, since, like all too many economists of his era, Sr. acknowledged virtually no like-minded colleagues or influences upon his own work. Sr. did acknowledge J.B. Say, however, and began his value analysis by stating that value depends on utility and scarcity, thus returning to the continental tradition. Senior added that utility is relative to human desires and to different persons, and is not intrinsic in objects. Utility, he pointed out, denotes no intrinsic quality in the things which we call useful. It merely expresses their relations to the pains and pleasures of mankind. And as the susceptibility of pain and pleasure from particular objects is created and modified by causes innumerable and constantly varying, we find an endless diversity in the relative utility of different objects to different persons, a diversity which is the motive of all exchanges. Scarcity, or the natural limitation of supply, was, for Senior, the main influence on relative utility. In the course of his discussion, Senior virtually came to formulate the law of diminishing marginal utility. Not only are there limits to the pleasure which the commodities of any given class can afford, but the pleasure diminishes in a rapidly increasing ratio long before those limits are reached. Two articles of the same kind will seldom afford twice the pleasure of one, and still less will ten give five times the pleasure of two. While he was completing his studies at Oxford, young Senior acquired as his tutor a young man only three years older than himself, recently appointed as a fellow at Oriel College, from which he had graduated several years earlier. The Reverend Richard Whateley, 1787-1863, philosopher and theologian, and son of an Anglican minister, was to become Senior's close and lifelong friend. Even though Senior became an attorney, he remained a central part of the Oriel College circle, clustered around the charismatic Whateley. 
The circle engaged in literary studies and pursuits, with Senior publishing several literary articles and launching a short-lived literary and intellectual quarterly, The London Review. Whateley published what was to become the standard text on logic, The Elements of Logic, 1826, in which Senior included an appendix on ambiguous terms used in political economy. Indeed, Whateley was probably responsible for injecting an unfortunate tendency in Senior towards word-shopping and logomachy, which helped dampen the influence of the great Senior in the world of economics. At any rate, Senior learned philosophy and theology from Whateley, and the latter economics from Senior. In Oxford, the Oriel Circle was becoming a highly influential center for liberal and Whig views within the Anglican Church, a remarkable influence indeed in that traditionally high Tory and high church university. When the Drummond Professorship in Political Economy opened up in 1825, Whateley secured the post for Nassau Sr., and when Senior's term expired five years later, he recommended and obtained the position for Whateley as his successor. Whateley's Drummond Lectures, the Introductory Lectures on Political Economy, 1831, Second Edition, 1832, continued and expanded the Senior tradition, particularly in value theory. Indeed, methodologically, Whateley went further than Senior. His linguistic and philosophical interests led Whateley to see that the concept and terminology of political economy tended to confuse and conflate these two distinct fields. This confusion hindered the scientific development of economics. Hence, Whateley proposed substituting a new word, catalactics, the science of exchanges, for political economy. Whateley defined man as an animal that makes exchanges, pointing out that even the animals nearest to human rationality did not have, to all appearance, the least notion of bartering, or in any way exchanging one thing for another. Focusing on human acts of exchange rather than on the things being exchanged, Whateley was led almost immediately to a subjective theory of value, since he saw that the same thing is different to different persons, and that differences in subjective value are the foundation of all exchanges. Moreover, Whateley pointed out that labor is not essential to value, and noted that pearls do not fetch a high price because men have dived for them, but on the contrary, men dive for them because they fetch a high price. Whateley saw that the economic realm, and particularly exchange activity on the market, deserved its own sphere of analysis and inquiry, even if integration later takes place, as analysis is applied to the political realm, there must first be a separation to allow the reasoning process its head. But after separation and analysis, integration, 
and Richard Whateley understood that the very fact that a separate sphere was secured for catalactic analysis meant all the more that integration with moral and theological analysis was required in order to come to policy conclusions. In his Drummond lectures, Whateley was concerned to show, first, that contrary to Oxford Tories, political economy was not sinful, materialistic, or opposed to Christianity. In the first place, political economy is not to be considered, as had Smith and the Classicals, a study of wealth. It is instead a study of human exchanges— But even a study of wealth is not sinful. In the first place, it is not sinful per se to examine the means of increasing wealth. There is no need for the political economist to step beyond his role as a scientist or catalactician and advocate policy as a means of acquiring wealth or on any other grounds. Indeed, once he does so, he advocates public policy not as a political economist, but in some other capacity. Whateley also denounced in their turn the attempt to monopolize economics by the aggressively atheistic, secular, and anti-Christian Ricardian circle. Certainly the latter adjective would not be excessive for people like James Mill and the Benthamite radicals. Whateley also believed Ricardian teachings to be dangerous and anti-Christian in the sense that they implied inherent class conflict between capital and labor, and between landlords and everyone else, and therefore denied the essential laissez-faire insight of a harmonious social order, an order that testifies to the existence of divine wisdom. In short, For Whateley, laissez-faire harmony and Christian insight into a divine order meet on a broad integrative level. Thus, while economic analysis is scientific and value-free and cannot directly imply political conclusions, such analysis will lead to laissez-faire conclusions, and as such is perfectly consistent with Christian insight into a beneficent divine order. In addition to his subtle exposition on the nature of and distinctions among positive and normative economics, Whateley denounced the naive fact-gathering methodology of the Baconian Cambridge inductivists, led by Richard Jones and William Hewell. The role of fact-gathering, Whateley perceptively pointed out, was not in framing theory, but in applying it to specific conditions. Looking at facts without the guidance of theory in their selection is virtually impossible. Scientific advances, Whateley correctly noted, come not from gathering more data, but from looking at old facts in new ways. An example was modern insight into the nature of the circulation of the blood. In 1832, Richard Whateley left his Drummond chair prematurely on getting a surprise appointment to the high post of Anglican Archbishop of Dublin, where he scandalized the evangelical faithful by refusing to be anti-Catholic and by insisting on being joyous on the Sabbath. 
the position of archbishop carried with it being one of the two visitors of Trinity College, Dublin, the two who formed the ultimate appeals court for all intra-college disputes. Waitley used his clout at Trinity to drive through, over fierce opposition, the establishment of a new chair of political economy at Trinity, under terms closely modeled on the Drummond chair. For the rest of his life, Waitley examined and selected candidates for the post himself, and paid the salary of the professors. The opposition from the board and the provost of Dublin University was based on a fear of the alleged radicalism of political economy. The provost wanted Whateley to guarantee that the holders of the new chair would have sound and safe conservative views, to which the archbishop indignantly replied that he was appalled at such a suggestion, involving, as it did, the introduction of party politics into the subject of abstract science. It was a subtle but important distinction that Whateley was trying to convey on an issue that plagues academia to this day. He was saying that it was proper, indeed important, to select a professor with the correct view of the broader implications of his subject, as well as of its strictly scientific aspects. Yet, it was decidedly not proper to judge the professoriate on the basis of their direct positions on narrow political issues, which Waitley lumped together as party politics. Thus, in gaining agreement on the Waitley chair, the archbishop closely quizzed and selected the professors on the basis of their commitment to the Christian liberal view of the harmony of the universe in general, and of the free market in particular, and to the senior subjective utility theory of value as against the Ricardian labor theory. Whateley himself wrote a bit more on economics, reiterating his ideas in his Easy Lessons on Money Matters for the Use of Young People, 1833, an enormously popular work for children that went into fifteen editions in the next twenty years and was translated into many languages. Remarkably, in this primer, Whateley hinted at another huge theoretical advance, generalizing the theory of pricing for all factors of production. If you consider attentively what is meant by the words rent, hire, and interest, you will perceive that they all, in reality, signify the same sort of payment. But unfortunately, Whateley did not apply himself further to economics, and insights into value or distribution theory became scattered and fragmentary. From now on, he would have to rely on Whateley shareholders to pursue the subjective tradition more systematically. The first holder of the Whateley chair suited the archbishop's requirements admirably. Samuel Mountefort Longfield, 1802-1884, the son of an Anglican vicar in County Cork, Ireland, had graduated from Trinity College a decade earlier and had won a gold medal in science for particular excellence in mathematics and physics. Longfield later won a coveted fellowship at Trinity 
a post concentrating on mathematics and sciences, areas in which Trinity was far stronger than Oxford and Cambridge, which were just now enlarging their exclusively classical curriculum to enter the modern world. While serving as fellow of the college, Longfield entered Dublin Law School, and graduating in 1831, became assistant to the Dublin professor of feudal and English law. Not only that, Longfield delivered a series of public lectures on the common law that was highly favorably received. Mountafort Longfield more than fulfilled Waitley's expectations. Not only did he use the leisure and the stimulus of the chair to hammer out a remarkably complete subjective and even marginalist theory of value and distribution, a genuine alternative to Ricardianism, he also imparted his stamp and the tradition of a subjective value theory alternative on Dublin University, leaving worthy successors to his chair. The brunt of Longfield's system was presented in his first published series of lectures, Lectures on Political Economy, 1834. During the rest of his term, Longfield published two more sets of lectures. In 1836, he left the Whateley chair to resume his legal career, becoming Regis Professor of Feudal and English Law at Dublin University. Later, he became a member of the Queen's Council. Longfield was an expert in real estate law, and in 1849 he was appointed as one of the three land commissioners in Ireland. A decade later, he became the prestigious judge of the Landed Estates Court in Ireland. From then on, he was known widely in Great Britain as Judge Longfield for his efforts on behalf of land reform in Ireland. Aside from a few articles on banking, Longfield had no further leisure to pursue economic studies, and so his remarkable contributions to economics were crammed into his four years in the Whateley chair. At the end of his life, Longfield returned to his early interest in mathematics, publishing a mathematical text, an elementary treatise on series, in 1872. Longfield's broad perspective of market harmony was quite similar to Whateley's. In his lectures, he wrote that the laws according to which wealth is created, distributed, and consumed have been framed by the great author of our being, with the same regard to our happiness which is manifested by the laws that govern the material world. Furthermore, Longfield was disturbed by Ricardo's pessimistic theory of distribution and his portrayal of inherent class conflict between workers, capitalists, and landlords, with the former two being doomed by an inevitable rising lion's share of the product accruing to the unproductive class of landlords. In value theory, Longfield worked out the subjective theory of value and price more fully than had been accomplished before in Great Britain. He concentrated firmly on market price as the important consideration rather than long-run price, and also showed that both are in any case determined by supply and demand. Longfield broke important new ground in his detailed marginal analysis of demand. 
Here he worked out the concept of consumer demand as a schedule related to sets of prices, and even developed the idea of individual falling demand schedules as the fundamental basis of aggregate market demand. Even more fully than John Craig, Longfield showed that market demand curves are constituted by a spectrum of supramarginal, marginal, and submarginal buyers, each with different intensities of demand. Furthermore, the measure of the intensity of any person's demand for any commodity is the amount which he would be willing and able to give for it, rather than remain without it or forego the gratification which it is calculated to afford him. Yet, of course, despite the different intensities of demand, all exchanges will be at the same market price. If, then, the price is attempted to be raised one degree beyond this sum, the demanders, who by the change cease to be purchasers, must be those the intensity of whose demand was precisely measured by the former price. Thus the market price is measured by the demand, which, being of the least intensity, yet leads to actual purchases. In short, the marginal demand becomes a key to the determination of price. In his analysis of supply, Longfield showed that the supply relevant to the real day-to-day market price is a previously produced stock of a good now fixed for the immediate present period. In short, what would now be called a vertical supply curve for the immediate market period. Furthermore, Longfield saw clearly, in contrast to Ricardo, that cost of production in no sense determines price. At most, it contributes indirectly to that determination by affecting the extent of supply. His analysis comes close to the later Austrian theory by brilliantly pointing out that the effect of cost on supply comes from the expectations of producers in deciding how much of a good to make and put on the market. Thus the cost of production acts by its influence on the supply, since men will not produce commodities unless with the reasonable expectation of selling them for more than the cost of producing them. Professor Lawrence Moss, a biographer of Longfield, has deprecated the latter's contribution to value theory as not a marginal utility theory. Moss complains that while Longfield realized that utility was the source of all demand, he did not analyze utility beyond that, and stuck merely to an analysis of marginal demands and the demand schedule. This revisionist view seems merely to quibble over terms. While Longfield did not use the term marginal utility or break utility down into individuals or groups, His doing so for demand and the degrees of demand goes most of the way towards a complete utility theory. Professor Moss is in danger of mistaking the term for the substance. It is true, however, that an unfortunate lingering Ricardianism led Longfield to endorse labor as a measure of value, a concept which is every bit as fallacious as the labor theory of value itself. 
In Ireland, as we shall see, Mountefort Longfield, aided by Whateley, left an important legacy of subjective value theory and anti-Ricardianism to his successors in the Whateley chair at Dublin. But unfortunately he had no influence in England, where he was ironically well known as Judge Longfield, the Irish land reformer, and unknown as an important and challenging economist. Senior, though closest in doctrine, knew of Longfield, but only referred to him once on a trivial point, and displayed no signs of being influenced by him. This neglect was intensified by the extreme provinciality of English economics in the nineteenth century. Generally, they would not deign to notice foreign writers, especially colonials, like Irishmen and Americans, from whom they might have profited. But Mountefort Longfield did succeed, at least, in establishing a utility-value tradition in Ireland. His successor in the Whateley chair, Isaac Butt, 1813-1879, proudly called himself a disciple of Longfield, and advised his students to read, above all in economics, Longfield, Say, and Senior, a worthy trio indeed. Like Longfield, and even more so, Butt's economic contributions were confined to the 1836-1840 term of his Waitley chair. His most important publications, Introductory Lecture, 1837, and Rent, Profits, and Labor, 1838, consisting of lectures delivered at Trinity. As we shall see below, Butt's main contribution was generalizing Longfield's marginal productivity theory of factor pricing and integrating Say's utility analysis with that theory. In utility theory proper, Butt corrected Longfield's Smith-like error in referring to consumption per se as unproductive. But also noted that the labor theory of value might be in a sense applicable if labor were the only scarce resource, and if, moreover, it were homogeneous and costlessly mobile between industries. But such conditions are, of course, impossible. Isaac Butt began as a precocious classical scholar and translator of Virgil, he was named to the Whateley chair at the early age of twenty-three, and while teaching there he took his bar examinations. After his term was over, Butt became an eminent attorney, and soon became an alderman of the city of Dublin. Later, Isaac Butt denounced British policy during the Irish famine, and went on to become a famous and hard-hitting advocate of Irish home rule. Butt defended leaders of the Irish Rising of 1848 in court, as he did the Fenian rebels in the late 1860s. Butt was also the founder, leader, and chief organizer of the Home Rule Party, serving for a while in Parliament. His published writings after his Trinity period dealt with the Irish land question, where Butt advocated land reform on behalf of the Irish tenantry. As a tenants' advocate, Butt took the poorly paid side of these legal disputes, and hence was never well off and was often deeply in debt. His main publications on the Irish question were A Voice for Ireland, The Famine in the Land, 
What Has Been Done and What Is to Be Done, 1847, and The Irish People and the Irish Land, 1867. Isaac Butt's successor in the Whateley chair, James Anthony Lawson, 1817-1887, was also an attorney involved with the Irish question, but he took the opposing route to Butt, becoming a stern advocate of British law and order and suppression of his rebellious countrymen. Lawson also became the holder of the political economy chair at a remarkably early age, 24, serving the full term from 1841 to 1846. Lawson entered Parliament and rose to become Solicitor General and then Attorney General for Ireland, becoming a judge of the Common Pleas in 1868. There he meted out punishment for land rebels and Fenians, while Richard Cantillon remains as the only possibly murdered man in the history of economic thought, Lawson suffered an attempted assassination on the streets of Dublin in 1882. Lawson's productivity in economics followed the same restricted path as that of his predecessors. His only published book was his Five Lectures on Political Economy, 1844, consisting of some of his Trinity Lectures. In later years, he occasionally printed some of his lectures on legal topics, the best known being on mercantile law in 1855. Unfortunately, the series of Lawson's lectures on value have been lost, his only published reference to them being contained in a brief appendix to his five lectures. We know enough, however, to see that Lawson was decidedly in the Trinity utility tradition, and even made a distinguished contribution to that doctrine. Thus Lawson declared that it was subjective utility and utility alone that determined the price of all goods. Lawson declared that it is a proposition always true and of universal application that the exchangeable value of all articles depends upon their utility, that is, upon their power to gratify the wants and wishes of man. All other attempted explanations of value he saw as only partial. Demand and supply, for example, can only influence price by way of their effect on utility. In dealing with the effect of an increase of supply, Lawson arrived flatly and notably at the law of diminishing marginal utility. Thus, if someone's supply of a good increased, this will generally diminish its utility to him, or the degree in which he desires its possession. For as our particular desires are capable of being satisfied, it is obvious that we may have more of an article than we wish to use. Therefore, retaining the possession of that surplus is less desirable to us. When coming to the cost-of-production theory of value, Lawson pointed out that the utility of a product, and not its cost, determines how much anyone will pay for it. While price may sometimes equal cost of production, this does not mean that cost determines the price. On the contrary, the coinciding of cost and price, Lawson added, can only come about through the medium of a change in supply, 
and when this cannot be brought about, there is no such coincidence and no tendency toward it. In that way, Lawson arrived at Stanley Jevons' newly hacked-out value position of a generation later. In his five lectures, Lawson also developed the Wakelian idea of economics as catalactics, as the study of exchanging man. In his first lecture, Lawson declared that economics views man in connection with his fellow man, having reference solely to those relations which are the consequences of a particular act, to which his nature leads him, namely the act of making exchange. In his second lecture, Lawson failed to continue this line and fell back on older discussions of political economy as the study of wealth. The next holder of the Whateley chair, William Nielsen Hancock, 1820-1888, a student of Whateley at Oxford, taught at Trinity from 1846 to 1851, and was also an attorney. He was a particularly scholarly lawyer, and in the last two years of his Trinity term, he simultaneously held the chairs of jurisprudence and political economy at the new Queen's College, Belfast. Afterwards, Hancock was a secretary to many government commissions on land and education matters, and held posts as court clerk, ending his career as clerk of the Crown and Hanniper in Dublin. He was the principal founder of the Statistical Society of Ireland in 1847 and the Social Inquiry Society of Belfast four years later. In contrast to the other Trinity chairholders, Hancock was interested in statistics and empirical work. He had graduated from Trinity in 1842 with a first in mathematics. He published a host of articles and pamphlets on empirical questions. Several dealt, almost inevitably, with the Irish land question, where, like Longfield and Butt, but unlike Lawson, he championed the rights of the Irish tenantry and deplored the effect upon their condition of the British-imposed system of land tenure. For example, the Tenant Right of Ulster, 1845, Impediments to the Prosperity of Ireland, 1850, and Two Reports for the Irish Government on the History of the Landlord and Tenant Question in Ireland, 1859 and 1866. Other pamphlets dealt with taxation and local government, in which he advocated a single tax on income, including the inheritance of wealth. A third group of articles advocated stricter control and supervision of the savings banks. Hancock's statistical work was done under the influence and guidance of Thomas Larcombe, a land surveyor and statistician who filled many government posts, becoming undersecretary for Ireland in the 1850s. While better known for applied economics, Hancock did publish a valuable theoretical work consisting of his Introductory Lecture on Political Economy, 1848-1849, delivered at Trinity College. 
He began by noting the ambiguity that had pervaded the use of the word value, and made clear that the word price is fortunately free from all ambiguity, and always means the exchangeable value of a commodity, estimated in the money of the country where the exchange takes place. He proposed then to use the word price exclusively instead of exchange value. Price, furthermore, can change either from the side of things or from the side of money. Treating the former, he notes that such changes can only take place as a result of one or both of the following causes. Either a change in the degree in which its possession is desired, or in its desirability, or a change in the force of the causes by which its supply is limited, or, in other words, by which it is made scarce. Turning to demand, Hancock added that the degree in which the possession of a commodity is desired is measured by the number of persons able and willing to purchase at each amount of price. Hancock's utility or quasi-marginal utility analysis emphasized a slightly different aspect than did that of his predecessors. Namely, another aspect of what we would now call the falling demand curve. For he noted that it is observed that for commodities in general, their desirability increases very rapidly as their prices fall. On supply, Hancock again stressed limitations of supply rather than cost and the limitations or scarcities of supply are dependent on the scarcities of the various factors of production. He implied that the returns to these factors is a question of their prices, and that any explanation of the prices of the factors must treat them uniformly in accordance with the influences upon their demand and supply that is, by the application of the laws already stated with regard to other prices. But while Hancock was clearly in the Trinity utility tradition, we see already a falling back, a loss of interest, and a greater vagueness in the discussion of value, or indeed of theory in general. And, indeed, William Nielsen Hancock was destined to be the last of the distinguished line of Irish subjective utility theorists at Trinity College. 7. William Forster Lloyd and Utility Theory in England Just because Mountefort Longfield and the Trinity Connection had no influence in England does not mean that the utility theory of value died out with such prominent economists as Bailey and Senior. Indeed, Nassau Senior's successor in the Drummond Chair at Oxford was also a distinguished utility theorist. William Forster Lloyd, 1794-1852, was the son of an Anglican rector from Gloucestershire. Lloyd went to Christ Church, Oxford, where he took a first in mathematics and a second in classics. Lloyd was a reader in Greek and then a lecturer in mathematics at Christ Church, and was also ordained as an Anglican minister, but never served a parish. Lloyd held the Drummond chair from 1832 to 1837, and seems to have done little at all after that. 
A sickly man, Lloyd retired to his county and displayed little interest in economics, in writing, or in politics, before dying in middle age. But for Lloyd, as for the other Drummond and Whateley chairholders, his term as professor provided him both opportunity and stimulus to compose, deliver, and publish lectures in economics. His various lectures, including one delivered on value in 1833, were all published separately, and then collected and republished as Lectures on Population, Value, Poor Laws, and Rent. 1837. One does not have to agree in politics to have similar views of economic theory. We have seen, for example, James Lawson's hardcore attitude against the peasantry. While William Lloyd was a utility theorist, he was far from a Whateleyan at Oxford. On the contrary, at Oxford Lloyd belonged to the high Tory circle at Christ Church that was the main counterweight to the liberals at Oriel. Leader of the Christ Church Tories was William's elder brother, Charles Lloyd, 1774-1829, who tutored future Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel at Christ Church, and soon became a close friend and adviser to Peel. At his untimely death in 1829, Charles Lloyd was Regis Professor of Divinity and Canon of Christ Church, as well as serving as Bishop of Oxford. He was widely known as the most influential Oxford professor of his day. Even though Lloyd taught and inspired many of the leaders of the future ultra-Tory proto-Catholic Oxford movement, he himself, as well as William Lloyd, was a moderate Peelite Tory, both theologically and politically. The influence of Peel and of his late brother Charles undoubtedly secured the Drummond chair for William Lloyd. Most of Lloyd's lectures were devoted to his quasi-statist and paternalistic views on public policy. Of particular interest, however, was his lecture on value— there Lloyd, stumbling through the literature, thinks he discovers in the wealth of nations inspiration for a subjective theory of value. Value, Lloyd asserts, is a feeling of the mind. It can be understood as belonging to a single object, he added, where the feeling reveals itself at the margin of separation between the satisfied and unsatisfied wants. But value, or even utility, cannot be intrinsic to any object. Utility, points out E. R. A. Seligman of Lloyd's theory, is predicated of an object with reference to the wants of mankind. Ice is useful in summer, useless in winter. Still, the intrinsic qualities of ice are at all times and in all places the same. After treading what was by now familiar ground about an increase in the supply of an object, diminishing and eventually satiating demand, William Lloyd suddenly arrives at a great light, a remarkably clear portrayal of the law of diminishing marginal utility. Lloyd points out, let us suppose the case of a hungry man having one ounce and only one ounce of food at his command. 
To him, this ounce is obviously of very great importance. Suppose him now to have two ounces. They are still of great importance, but the importance of the second is not equal to that of the single ounce. In other words, he would not suffer so much from parting with one of his two ounces as he would suffer when he had only one ounce by parting with that one and retaining none. The importance of a third ounce is still less than that of the second, so likewise of a fourth, until at length, in the continual increase of the number of ounces, we come to a point when the appetite is entirely lost. With respect to a single ounce, it is a matter of indifference whether it is parted with or retained. Thus, while he is scantily supplied with food, he holds a given portion of it in great esteem. In other words, he sets a great value on it. When his supply is increased, his esteem for a given quantity is lessened. In other words, he sets a less value on it. Similarly, Lloyd goes on, the utilities of different goods compared with one another, and each of their values falls with increase in supply. So a good that may be more valuable than another in an absolute philosophic sense, in the sense of a class of the commodity, can be worth very little if its supply is abundant. Thus, water is more wanted by a man almost dying with thirst than by another who has quenched his thirst and desires only to wash himself. It is on want, thus estimated, that value depends. More specifically, if to a man who has already half a dozen coats you should offer to give another, he might probably reply that he would have no use for it. Here, however, he would speak not of the abstract utility of the coat, but of its special utility to him under the circumstances of his want of coats being already so far supplied. This, though not quite the same thing as value, approaches very near to it. The coat would be of no use to him. Therefore, were he to have it, it would not be valuable in his estimation. But this is very different from the utility of the coat in the general sense of utility. William Lloyd was also clear that value, being subjective, could not be measured. In a passage reminiscent of and going beyond Bailey, he writes trenchantly that, it would indeed be difficult to discover any accurate test by which to measure either the absolute utility of a single object, or the exact ratio of the comparative utilities of different objects. Still, it doesn't follow that the notion of utility has no foundation in the nature of things. It does not follow that because a thing is incapable of measurement, therefore it has no real existence. The existence of heat was no less undeniable before thermometers were invented than at present. Lloyd goes on to point out quite correctly that value or valuation is anterior to exchange and that such valuations also take place in the case of an isolated Robinson Crusoe economy. 
Unfortunately, Lloyd was so enamored of the distinction between value and exchange, and of Smith's faulty split between use and exchange values, that he failed to complete the task of the theory of demand, and link up marginal utility analysis with consumer demand and the determination of market pricing. Such men as Butt, Longfield, Lloyd, and Bailey had hammered out many of the building blocks of the marginal utility theory of pricing, and even of the marginal productivity theory of factor prices. It required the Austrians, however, to put the pieces together and set forth an integrated whole. If Lloyd's value theory seems to have had little or no influence in England, the eminent Nassau Senior's utility theory was picked up and lauded a decade after the publication of his lectures. Thomas C. Banfield, circa 1800 to 1860, had spent many years in Germany, and in his 1844 lectures at Cambridge, Banfield brought to England the good news that economic theory on the continent was not blighted by any Ricardian miasma. Instead, he noted that a flexible form of Smithianism was dominant in Europe. In addition to basing his doctrines on Say, von Storch, and Senior, Banfield was the first English economist to refer to the marginal theorist Heinrich von Thunen, and to the advanced Smithian Friedrich von Hermann. In the preface to his lectures, published as The Organization of Industry, 1845, Thomas Banfield pointed to the enormous changes that had been made in economic theory during the past two decades by the subjective theory of value, which demands of producers at least as much attention to the physical and mental improvement of their consuming fellow citizens as to the mechanical operations or production. Wages, he noted, will depend on the productivity of labor, that is, the utility of the instrument of which a man understands the use. In his lectures, Banfield emphasized the relativity and degree of intensity of wants as the function of economic science. It certainly seems that economics in England by the later 1840s was poised for a mighty Austrian breakthrough, for an integrated system elaborating the effect of human purposes and values and their interaction with the scarcity of resources. Yet something happened, and economics, poised for a great breakthrough, sank back into the slough of fallacies constituting the Ricardian system. And the important body of pre-Austrian or anti-Ricardian thought was forgotten as if it never existed, only to be resurrected either a generation later or as late as the twentieth century. How this unfortunate retrogression came about will be treated below. 8. A Utility Theorist in Kentucky If the Trinity College contributions to subjective utility theory remained unknown outside Ireland, still more obscure was an isolated and amazing contribution in the course of several articles in a Kentucky newspaper. 
Written by the youngish but influential editor of the Frankfort, Kentucky Argus, Amos Kendall, 1789-1869, later to become a leading brain-truster of Andrew Jackson in his battle against fractional reserve banking and particularly against the Bank of the United States, the articles remained unread and unknown even in the United States until exhumed by historians in the twentieth century. And yet, especially considering that they were written in 1820, antedating Bailey and even Craig, they were phenomenal. Not only did they champion subjective value, they were the first expression of the law of diminishing marginal utility. Kendall was moved to explore the question of economic value by a fierce dispute in Kentucky during the catastrophic Panic of 1819 on whether or not debtors should receive relief at the hands of the state government. While Kendall was not opposed to all relief measures, he was disturbed by proposals that would have repudiated all existing debt. To explore the subject in depth, Kendall published three articles in the Argus, beginning on 27 April, examining the problems of money and, more fundamentally, the nature of value. Unfortunately, in his autobiography, arranged and edited posthumously by his son-in-law, Kendall gives no hint on which economists might have inspired his advanced views. In his first article, Kendall went straight to the basics and examined the question of value per se. He begins by saying that there have been many erroneous explanations of value, labor expended, price, even demand. But, he points out, all these notions are erroneous. Things have value not because they are produced by labor, nor because they are in general demand, nor because they will sell or exchange for a certain number of dollars, but simply because men desire to possess them. Desirableness is value. In exact proportion that a thing is desirable, it is valuable. Kendall went on in dismissing the value paradox to say that water and air have little or no value because of their abundance. Were meat and bread as common as air and light, they would possess no more value. They would not create desire. In the Garden of Eden, land, being superabundant, possessed no value. Labor, Kendall went on, conferred no value, for, with regard to the produce of labor, value is generally antecedent to the labor of production. It springs from our desire to possess that which labor may produce. Were labor to fix value upon its products, everything on which much has been spent would be very valuable. This notoriously is not the fact. But labor could not make a thing valuable which was not desirable. Labor may be wasted. It may be applied to the production of that which nobody desires, which has no value. And, Kendall sparklingly concludes, things do not become valuable because men spend labor upon them, but men spend their labor upon them because they are valuable. 
The demand for a product, furthermore, stems from men's desire to obtain it. The desire is primary. Demand is not, therefore, the cause of value. A thing becomes desirable or valuable before there is a demand for it. The demand follows. But when the desire to possess it cease, it has value no longer, and is no longer in demand. The next step for Kendall is that desires, being subjective and evanescent, cannot be measured, and that therefore neither can value. What standard can be invented for the desires of men? Can the necessities, the comforts, the pleasures, the fashions, the opinions, and the caprices of man be reduced to any standard? Are they not ever-changing like the winds of heaven? Measure never varies. A yard is always equal to the length with which it is compared. These lengths, surfaces, and quantities never vary or change. Therefore they may be reduced to a standard, which shall be uniform and last forever. But does value never vary? Will that which is now worth a dollar always be worth just the same sum? Tastes and desires are ever-changing, and so, therefore, is value. Hence it can have no measure or standard. Kendall then concludes his devastating critique, one that we might wish Ricardo and his epigones had read and understood. To make a standard of value you must first make every acre of ground, every bushel of wheat, and any given quantity of any other article, at all times, in all situations, and under all circumstances, sell for precisely the same amount. There must be no such thing as profit or loss, or buying or selling. We have said enough to show the utter impossibility of a standard of value, and that to talk seriously of any such thing is simply ridiculous. We may as well talk of a standard of hunger, thirst, opinion, fashion, caprice, and all those wants which make things desirable. 9. Wages and Profits in addition to the labor theory of value, another vital cornerstone of the Ricardian system, the alleged inverse relation of wages and profits, was also riddled quickly by British economists. We have already seen the disappearance of the hardcore Malthus of the first edition of the Essay on Population, so necessary to the conclusions of Ricardian theory. Even more than the explicit rejection of Malthusianism, the periodicals vehemently attacked the Ricardian view that wages and profits move inversely to each other. The British critic denounced this thesis as early as October 1817, and two years later another writer zeroed in on the methodology of what would later be called the Ricardian vice with proper scorn. 
Taking for granted, as usual, that money never changes in value, and the proportion between the supply and demand of any given commodity never alters, which is as if the astronomer were to assume, as the basis of his calculations, that all the planets stand still, and that they all stand still to all eternity, he assigns a specific sum to be divided between the master and the workman, as the unalterable price of the goods which they produce, from which adaptation of hypothetical conditions it naturally follows that, if the workmen get more, the master-manufacturer must receive less, there being only a certain sum to divide between them. Other writers, including Malthus in 1824, made similar critiques, and also noted that, empirically, wages and profits generally increase or decrease in the same direction. Thus, John Craig pointed out that, historically, wages and profits moved not inversely but together, it is rather a startling circumstance attending this theory that what it represents as the necessary effect produced by high wages upon profits in all branches of industry is directly contrary to the experience in each particular trade. Craig went on to explain that a new demand for a commodity at first enriched those who, being in possession of this commodity, are enabled to raise the price. The desire to participate in their gains soon directs new capital to its production, and a rise in wages speedily ensues. Once again, it is not legitimate for Ricardian apologists to dismiss this critique as historical rather than analytical in nature, for empirical generalizations meant to apply directly to reality, as in the Ricardian system, are properly open to empirical rebuttal. Such rebuttal may challenge the conclusions as well as the more familiarly theoretical procedure of challenging the realism of the theory's premises. By the 1840s, the idea of an inverse relation between wages and profits had been completely discarded. But if the Malthusian subsistence theory did not determine wages themselves, then what did? Not many wandered into this unknown territory, but as early as 1821, the unknown but remarkable Scotsman John Craig emphasized that wages are determined by the supply and demand for labor, and not in any sense by the price of food. Two elements in the demand for labor were stated, though not analyzed in full, the capital from which wages are advanced to the workman, and the demand for the produce of his labor. Craig, by the way, neatly demolished Adam Smith's spurious distinction between productive and unproductive labor. He cogently concluded that wealth may consist in whatever be the object of man's desire, and every employment which multiplies those objects of desire, or which adds to their property of yielding enjoyment, is productive. 
The next important step in the theory of wages came from Samuel Bailey, who in the course of his definitive critique of Ricardian value theory in 1825 pointed to the crucial role of the productivity of labor in determining wages. The value of labor does not entirely depend on the proportion of the whole produce which is given to the laborers in exchange for their labor, but also on the productiveness of labor. The proposition that when labor rises profits must fall is true only when its rise is not owing to an increase in its productive powers. If the productive power of labor be augmented, that is, if the same labor produce more commodities in the same time, labor may rise in value without a fall, nay, even with a rise, of profits. One of the critical problems in developing the productivity theory of wages was the Ricardian insistence on emphasizing the alleged laws of aggregate distribution, of wages as a whole and as a total share of national product and income, rather than as wage rates of individual units of labor. J. B. Say had presented a productivity theory of wages, but had not analyzed the determination of particular wage rates in any detail. Nassau Sr., in the early 1830s, while confused on the topic of wages, came out for the productivity theory. He also managed to demolish Adam Smith's productive versus unproductive labor doctrine, stressing, as had J. B. Say, production as the flow of services which emanate both from material and immaterial products. The truly revolutionary step forward in the theory of wages, indeed in the theory of all factor pricing, came with Mountefort Longfield in his Lectures on Political Economy. As we have seen, Longfield was concerned to show, in contrast to the Ricardian class conflict theory of income distribution, that workers benefit from capitalist development. Ironically, Longfield's laissez-faire harmonielera was replaced by a far more statist attitude in later life. In the course of doing so, Longfield took J. B. Say's correct but vague productivity theory of factor incomes and worked out, for the first time, a remarkable marginal productivity theory of the rental prices, that is, prices per unit time of capital goods, which Longfield oddly called profits, in a typical confusion of returns on capital with the pricing of capital goods that has plagued economics since the early 19th century. Working out the specifics, Longfield showed that the price of each machine will tend to equal the marginal productivity of the machine, that is, the productive value, in terms of value of their products, of the least productive machine which it pays to keep employed on the market, that is, the marginal machine.
Thus, for the first time in an unknowing echo of Turgot, Longfield used the proper ceteris paribus method of analyzing productive returns, holding one factor or class of factors constant, varying another set of factors, and analyzing the result. Longfield stopped there in his brilliant pre-Austrian contribution, applying marginal productivity analysis only to capital goods. He was content that the analysis showed that wages, the residual labor income left over after payment to capital, rose as the marginal productivity of capital goods fell, with each increase in the amount of capital. In short, the accumulation of capital led to an increase in wages. Furthermore, Longfield demolished any Malthusian fears totally. Not only was hardcore Malthusianism long in the discard, but even the soft-core emphasis on the workers' customary level of wages as determining the supply of labor had the causal chain reversed. Instead, Custom, he sensibly pointed out, is guided by the actual prevailing market wage, rather than the other way round. As an anonymous Irish follower wrote in the Dublin University magazine a decade later, July 1845, custom will render it suitable to be paid whatever the prevailing wage rate may be, while it would be considered disgraceful to be paid below that norm. Hence the demand for labor, rather than its supply, will dominate the determination of the market wage. Longfield's further demolition of even soft-core Malthusianism pointed out that population growth can have a favorable effect by widening the market for manufactured goods, thereby raising the marginal productivity of capital goods across the board. Hence, population can grow, capital can develop, and both capitalists and workers will benefit, a far more realistic picture of capitalist development than the Ricardian. Longfield's successor and disciple Isaac Butt, however, was not content to stop there, and he provided an outstanding development of the Longfieldian analysis. In the first place, Butt took the crucial step of seeing that Longfield's marginal productivity analysis could be generalized from capital goods to all factors of production, to wages and to land rent. Each of these classes of factors could be analyzed in terms of marginal productivity, and the result would be that each of them would obtain the return or price of the least productive factor profitable to be employed on the market, the marginal laborer or acre of land. Thus, whatever kernel of sense there was to the Ricardian differential return theory of land rent was isolated and incorporated into Butt's brilliant pioneering generalized theory of marginal factor pricing. Not only that, Butt also built on Say's utility analysis and correct but vague productivity analysis and integrated it, at least in outline, with generalized Longfieldian marginal productivity theory. 
In short, in a prefiguring of the Austrian menger Werk insight, the value of consumer goods determined by the subjective utility of the goods to consumers is imputed back on the market to the values of the various factors of production, which will be set equal to the marginal value productivity of each factor. Thus the unit price of every type of factor will tend to be equal to its marginal value productivity as imputed back through the competitive market process from the subjective utility of the final products. Unfortunately, this excellent say Longfield but tradition of productivity theory had no influence and no successors. Although Senior, as a fellow Waitlian, certainly knew Longfield's work, he never referred to him or to Butt, and even Longfield's Irish successors at Trinity College Dublin, while continuing the utility theory of value, neglected the corollary theory of imputation and productivity. It is true that Longfield's marginal productivity analysis gained one faithful follower in England. Joseph Salway Eisdell, whose two-volume work, A Treatise of the Industry of Nations, 1839, propounded a sophisticated version of the Longfieldian theory. The book by the unknown Eisdell, however, sank without trace, gaining no reviews in the journals or citations anywhere else. But if factor pricing had been analyzed, what of profits? If profits could not be explained simply as a residual, then they had to be explained directly, and so some economists began to search for a satisfactory theory of what would determine long-run profits, or what would later be called long-run interest return. For one thing, it was pointed out that Ricardo erred greatly in assuming instantaneous and total mobility of capital, and there was a hearkening back to the more realistic outlook of Adam Smith. A writer in Monthly Review in 1822, for example, stressed the impracticability of transferring capital and the personal acquirements of skill from one business to another. But if profits were only uniform as a long-run tendency, what explained them? Malthus moved closer to the correct view in the Quarterly Review in 1824 by stressing that whereas rents are determined by productivity, profit, for example, that is earned in keeping wine and selling it when it matures, is due to waiting, and the longer the waiting, the greater the margin of profit. A particularly important contribution to the journal literature pointed to the eventually correct theories of profit and interest. This was an article by William Ellis, 1794-1872, in the Benthamite Westminster Review for January 1826. In a highly sophisticated analysis of saving and investment, Ellis pointed out that saving is induced by the expectation of greater enjoyment from deferred than immediate consumption, while, on the other hand, investment is called forth by the expectation of profit. 
In the course of analyzing investment, Ellis, with great perceptiveness, distinguished between profit as a return to risk-taking as against interest as a return on savings that may also carry a risk premium. Particularly interesting was Ellis's pioneering risk theory of profits. The largeness of the profit, he maintained, must be proportioned to the risk incurred in drawing treasure from the hoard and employing it in production. He also keenly stressed the importance of a large expected profit for undertaking technological innovation. New technology is untried, and its introduction must overcome the loss of superseded machinery, the want of skill and practice in workmen, and the uncertainty of the result. All unite in preventing the adoption and application of that which is untried. Chiding previous writers for ignoring innovation and its problems, Ellis pointed out that its difficulties are only conquered by the prospect of the great additional profit with which the adopted invention is expected to be accompanied. Ellis also introduced separating out the elements of gross profit in a business firm and distinguishing them from long-run normal interest. Where an entrepreneur uses his own capital exclusively, his gross profit, Ellis perceptively pointed out, can be broken down into premium for risk, remuneration for the entrepreneur's labor and supervision, and finally the remuneration for the productive employment of his savings, which is called interest. Productive loans in business tend to comprise the interest part of gross business profit. Who was William Ellis, who contributed such a startlingly perceptive and advanced article to one of Britain's distinguished journals? Apparently this was Ellis's sole foray into economics. Born in London, Ellis became a nonconformist missionary and spent his life working and traveling for the London Missionary Society. Sent to Polynesia from 1816 to 1824, Ellis, who had worked as a gardener in his boyhood, acclimatized many tropical fruits and plants in Polynesia and also set up the first printing press in the South Seas. The fruits of this labor appeared in his two-volume Polynesian Researches, 1829. His interest in the theory of profits soon upon his return from his first Polynesian sojourn appears to have been a sport in Ellis's busy missionary career. While he was not as perceptive as Ellis, a similar analytic division of gross and net profits was contributed by the Scottish philosopher Sir George Ramsay, 1800-1871, in an unknown and unremarked work, An Essay on the Distribution of Wealth, 1836. While much of the book was Ricardian, Ramsay adopted the concept of entrepreneur from the French, and he too broke down the gross profits of capital into interest on the use of capital and the profits of enterprise, which was, in turn, divided into wages of management and superintendence and payment for the risk incurred by the masters or entrepreneurs. 
Ramsey pointed out that, analytically, entrepreneurs receive the profits of enterprise, while capitalists receive interest or profits on capital. In practice, however, the two returns are generally combined as the gross profits of capitalist entrepreneurs. Ramsey was also the first Briton to adopt Destut de Tracy's analysis of the process of production as either change of the form of matter or the geographical place, to which Ramsey added a change in time. 10. Abstinence and Time in the Theory of Profits if profit were perhaps related to risk, what then accounts for the long-run interest component of business profits? The dominant explanation for long-run interest in British economics soon became the abstinence theory of interest. The first presentation of time as the determinant of interest came from a theory related but superior to abstinence. Samuel Bailey's pioneering time-preference theory. Bailey's discussion came in the course of his brilliant demolition of Ricardo's labor theory of value and his championing of an alternative utility theory. Bailey begins his discussion of time and value by noting that if one commodity takes more time than another for its production, even using the same amount of capital and labor, its value will be greater. While Ricardo admits a problem here, James Mill, in his Elements of Political Economy, indefatigably asserts that time, being a mere abstract word, could not possibly add to anything's value. Rebutting Mill, Bailey points out that every creation of value implies a mental operation, in short, a subjective analysis of value. Given a particular pleasure, Bailey went on, we generally prefer a present pleasure or enjoyment to a distant one. In short, the omnipresent fact of time preference for human life. Thus, we are willing, even at some sacrifice of property, to possess ourselves of what would otherwise require time to procure it without waiting during the operation. If any article were offered to us not otherwise attainable except after the expiration of a year, we should be willing to give something to enter upon present enjoyment. Considerations of time discount influence buyers, sellers, and capitalists, as well as both parties who realize, for example, that wine gains value by being kept for longer periods of time. Bailey, interested in rebutting labor and other objective theories of value, rather than explaining interest per se, did not press on to explain time preference as the basis of interest, nor to discuss the time discount rate. But his analysis clearly paved the way for the later Austrian time preference theory, although Bumbaverk, the creator of the theory, remained unaware of Bailey's insights. Six years later, G. Paulette Scroop, despite his unfortunate fringe views on Say's law, made an important contribution to profit or interest theory by pioneering an abstinence theory of interest.
Writing in the Quarterly Review for January 1831, Scroop deplored the absence of any genuine theory of profit in Ricardo, and proceeded to set forth an abstinence theory. Despite Bumba Verck's uncharitable strictures on the more highly developed abstinence theory of Nassau Sr., there is not a great deal of difference between the abstinence view and the later and more sophisticated Austrian theory of time preference. Profit, said Scroop, was the compensation for abstinence from immediate gratification, involved in saving and investing rather than consuming, but Scroop did not stop at outlining an abstinence theory. Much of profit, he pointed out, is the narrow form of profit identical with interest. What is vulgarly called profit, as Scroop called it, is identical with Ellis's gross profit. This consists, Scroop went on, of interest on capital, plus insurance against the risks of business, plus wages for the superintendent's labor of the capitalist. Scroop also added monopoly rent, in which he lumped the possession of superior soil or location, along with the gains from patented inventions or processes. But the locus classicus of the abstinence theory was the lectures of Nassau W. Sr. It is true that they were not published until 1836, when they were published as The Outline of the Science of Political Economy, and also as the article on political economy for the Encyclopedia Metropolitana. But they were delivered earlier as lectures at Oxford in 1827 and 1828. Senior pointed out that savings and the creation of capital necessarily involve a painful present sacrifice, an abstinence from immediate consumption, which would only be incurred in expectation of an offsetting reward. Unfortunately, Senior lacked the concept of time preference, so he was fuzzy about the specific motivation that would lead people to prefer present to future consumption. But he came to very similar conclusions, relating the degree of abstinence pain, or, as the Austrians would later put it, time preference for the present over the future, to the least civilized peoples and the worst educated classes, who are generally the most improvident and, consequently, the least abstinent. Even more interesting and valuable than Senior's abstinence theory was his developed theory of capital, which strongly anticipated the Austrian doctrine. For Senior saw that factors of production could be divided into two classes. The original primary ones, land or natural resources, and labor, and all the secondary intermediate goods which are produced by the joint efforts of the primary factors, as well as pre-existing intermediate factors. Eventually the intermediate factors are transformed into consumer goods that are able to satisfy the wants of the consumers. It might be thought that ultimately the intermediate factors, or capital goods, might be reduced to nature and labor, but this cannot be done, because another element is needed to combine the primary factors into more and more capital. Abstinence. 
for again anticipating the Austrians, Senior saw that a crucial aspect of this process of production is that it must take time, and therefore an act of abstinence, a term, added Senior, by which we express the conduct of a person who either abstains or designedly prefers the production of remote to that of immediate results. Capital, or capital goods, then, taking time, are the result of the combination of land, labor, and abstinence, and consists of the application of present resources to future production. Capital goods are produced rather than primary factors of production, and the way in which production and living standards may increase indefinitely is by using the products of labor and nature as the means of further production. Capital, Senior sums up, is not a simple productive instrument. It is in most cases the result of all the three productive instruments combined. Some natural agent must have afforded the material, some delay of enjoyment must in general have reserved it from unproductive use, and some labor must in general have been employed to prepare and preserve it. Senior, then, does not simply have a naive productivity theory of profit or interest, while all factors earn their productivity, and therefore labor earns wages, and land or natural agents earn rent, capital goods are not simple productive agents, but complex products of other factors. And so, peeling away the influence of land and labor, the ultimate distinct productive contribution of capital is interest, the return to abstinence. While not fully arriving at it, Senior was here groping for a distinction between the gross return of capital goods, whose productivity is reflected in their market prices, and their net return, after deducting from the wages, rents, and prices of other intermediate goods in their production, which equals the rate of interest and is payment for abstinence or time preference. In his discussion of how increasing provision of capital funds can allow ever-increasing extensions of the division of labor and the production of consumer goods, Nassau Sr. captured the essence of the Austrian insight that capital, and eventually production, expands with increased saving because of the superior physical productivity of many longer or more roundabout processes of production. Since it takes more time to invest in these longer processes and intermediate factors, there must be greater willingness to invest in future as opposed to present enjoyment. Meanwhile, Senior's fellow Whateleyan, Mountefort Longfield, was working along similar lines. Even if capitalists, qua capitalists, and not as laborers, produce nothing tangible, they perform a vital service in saving capital and paying factors to engage in time-consuming processes of production. 
While most of the British classicists, including Ricardo, spoke perfunctorily of a period of production, they linked it strictly to the one-year harvest cycle in agriculture. Longfield was able to break out of this agricultural framework, moving toward making the time dimension of production a variable in his analysis. He did this by linking the period of production directly to the division of labor and identifying increases in one with extensions of the other. Longfield accomplished this linkage by repeating Adam Smith's famous discussion of the pin factory and the division of labor, while showing that extending that division will bring more roundabout processes into play. In short, greater capital investment will eventually lower the labor time required to produce a unit of output but only by increasing the waiting time between the initial point of investment and the eventual unit of consumer goods. During the time of waiting for the eventual product, the workers must be able to live, and this living is precisely what the capitalists provide. They do so by abstaining from consumption, thereby allowing the worker to consume something produced by the toil of others, although nothing produced by him has yet been consumed by anyone. In short, while the product of labor is off in the future, the capitalist saves money now and hires the worker. The person who employs him, the worker, and directs his labor, in general pays him in the first instance, and repays himself by the sale of the articles thus produced. In this way, Longfield was able to offer a remarkable anticipation of the Bermbaverkian theory of capital. The capitalist's gross profit, then, consists of two parts— a return for the service of advancing wages to the workers until the product is sold, long-run interest, and returns for the labor of direction and for the assumption of business risk. Longfield made no attempt to stress the latter and concentrated on the former, the return for the service of advancing wages. Hence, as Longfield points out in anticipation of the sophisticated and highly perceptive Austrian discounted marginal productivity theory of factor pricing, the worker, in effect, pays the capitalist a discount from his marginal productivity for the service of supplying money now rather than having to wait for the sale of the product. Again, Longfield the capitalist pays the wages immediately, and in return receives the value of the worker's labor to be disposed of to the best advantage. Hence the value of the labor fixed in any article is greater than the wages of that labor. The difference is the profit made by the capitalist for his advances. It is, as it were, the discount which the laborer pays for prompt payment. It is only a slight step from this analysis to the identification of this discount as a payment for time preference.
Sir George Ramsay, in his work of 1836, also stressed the importance of time in production and capital, though hardly in as sophisticated a manner as senior. Time, as well as labor, enters into capital, and Ramsay points as an example to two casks of identical wine. The cask that ages several years longer increases in value, so that value therefore depends not only on labor expended, but also on the length of time during which any portion of the product of that labor has existed as a fixed capital. Lastly, in 1839, Joseph S. Eisdell, an unknown English follower of Longfield, generalized marginal productivity theory, also noting the important service of the capitalists in serving the worker by advancing his wages immediately on the performance of his work, before the goods are ready for sale he being too necessitous to wait until the sale and the receipt of the money for the goods. Here Eisdell captured the essence of the service the capitalist renders the worker, and for which the latter is willing to pay the former his discount or profit return, the service of paying the worker now, at present, while the capitalist takes on the burden of waiting for his return until some point in the future. 11. John Ray and the Austrian Theory of Capital and Interest The most remarkable contribution to the theory of capital and interest in the post-Ricardian period was by the drifter and eccentric John Ray, 1796-1872. Ray set forth his theory as part of a tract designed to argue for a protective tariff, some new principles on the subject of political economy, Boston, 1834. Ray had the most extensive and fully developed analysis until Böhm-Bawerk and the Austrians of the crucial role of time in the theory of capital and interest. In the theory of capital, Ray saw that a key to production is increasing investment in capital goods, themselves the product of labor and nature, and that capital goods can be ranked on the basis of their rate of return and the time necessarily involved from their formation until their depletion. Specifically, lengthening the process of production, or the time involved in the process of investing in capital, will enable the use of capital goods of greater physical productivity. But while waiting a longer time will enable one to tap more physically productive processes of production, this benefit must always be weighed against the unwelcome necessity of waiting longer into the future until the return from capital is obtained. And here John Ray presented the fullest development to date of the time preference theory of interest. To balance against the greater productivity of waiting longer into the future, the capitalist must charge an interest rate based on the greater desirability of present as against future goods. 
In short, investors must sacrifice present for future goods, and so they must be compensated for this investment by a return reflecting their degree of time preference. Investors will be sacrificing a smaller present good for a larger future good, the degree of difference, their interest return, being dependent on people's cultural and psychological willingness to take a long-run view of the future. Those with lower time preference rates, that is, those who take a longer view of the future, are particularly looking to raise the standard of living of their children. On the other hand, for Ray, those with higher time preference possess weak intellectual and moral principles and suffer from a defect of the imagination. Ray also anticipated Schumpeterian theory in placing great emphasis on the importance of inventions and stressed that inventions opened up new opportunities for highly profitable capital investment and that resulting high profits stimulated such investment. Schumpeter paid high tribute to Ray's achievement, calling his work a theory of capital conceived in unprecedented depth and breadth, although, oddly enough, he doesn't mention Ray's stress on inventions. Schumpeter does add, however, that given ten additional years of quiet work, graced by an adequate income, Ray's new principles could have grown into another and more profound wealth of nations. And Bermbaverk, who had not known of Ray's achievement in the first edition of his History and Critique of Interest Theories, for once was very generous in his glowing account in later editions, calling Ray's work exceedingly original and remarkable. John Ray's accomplishment was all the more striking because it did not come from a writer steeped in economic discussions of the Great Britain of his day. On the contrary, it came from a man who must be described overall as a brilliant drifter, crank, and loser. John Ray was a Scotsman, born in Aberdeen, the son of a prosperous, self-made merchant and shipbuilder. Interested in invention and the natural sciences, Ray, as a young maths student at the University of Aberdeen, presented some inventions in mechanics to his professor, who pronounced them ingenious but impractical. Dropping the matter so as not to irritate his practical-minded father, Ray decided upon graduation to go to the University of Edinburgh to study medicine. But, typical of Ray, while studying for his M.D. dissertation, he became convinced that prevailing physiological theories were false, and so he dropped out of medical school, determined to write a grandiose philosophical history of mankind. Embarking on this ambitious but truly impractical life work, Ray plunged into the study of biology, philology, ethnology, aeronautics, geology, education, and the social sciences, undoubtedly with radical ideas in them all. Very little of this ever got written or published, his published work consisting of a few scattered articles on such matters as emigration, education, Canadian religion, Hawaiian customs and legislation, and Polynesian languages. 
His extant unpublished papers are on geological topics. This sort of life plan was scarcely calculated to yield John Ray a secure income, and the bankruptcy of his father, as well as a possible social stigma from his marrying the daughter of a shepherd, drove him to emigrate to the backwoods of Canada at the age of twenty-five. It was during this course of self-study that John Ray read The Wealth of Nations, and developed an antipathy to that Scotsman's general commitment to free trade and laissez-faire. In particular, Ray acquired a lifelong interest in protectionism and government subsidies to industry. At least some of that reaction reflected a typically Scottish Calvinist hostility to luxury and consumer indulgence. A strong advocate of thrift and abstinence, Ray lamented any luxurious consumption among the lower classes, which weakens their effective desire for accumulation. Sensual appetites lead the poor to marry and increase their number of children unduly, also weakening their propensity to save and to raise their standard of living. Ray's first interest in the protective tariff came in Scotland in 1819, attacking the desire of the numerous followers of Adam Smith to greatly lower the taxes and tariffs on whiskey, and to allow the manufacture of whiskey in small stills. Ray reacted angrily, worrying as he did about the general morals of the people resulting from an abundance of cheap whiskey. Arriving in Canada, Ray soon became a schoolmaster at a private school and a physician in the small village of Williamstown, Ontario. Williamstown was a center of the Scottish Presbyterian settlement in Canada, and Ray, a devout adherent of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, embroiled himself in the claims of that church to government support as against the exclusivist claims of the Church of England. Apart from Anglican elitism unsuited to North American conditions, Ray opined, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland insisted on austere morality as against the laxity of the Anglicans. He criticized the United States for not having an established religion, thereby lessening the incomes and tenure of the clergy and weakening the bonds of genuine religion. After a decade in Williamstown, John Ray felt it was time to move on. In 1831 he resigned his post as schoolmaster and as one of the three coroners of the Eastern District of Ontario and moved to Montreal. He had decided to begin work on his life project, or at least a subset of it to be devoted to the present state of Canada, which would present his ideas on Canadian geology and economic development, and to make a strong plea for continued Canadian membership in the British Empire. While in Montreal, he petitioned the government of Upper Canada for a travel and research grant to finance this projected work. But the Upper Canada Assembly felt there were more important things to be done and turned down Ray's grant proposal, despite the favorable recommendation of the lieutenant governor. 
Ray was still determined to work on his life project, and he repaired to the lumbering village of Godmanchester, not far from Montreal, where he apparently worked in menial tasks in lumbering while publishing pro-British Empire articles in the Montreal Gazette. There he wrote what was supposed to be another subset of his master plan, his great work on the new principles of political economy. The spirit of revolution against the British Empire was abroad in Canada, and Ray's letters to the Gazette were vitriolic in denunciation. The criticisms of Britain, he fulminated, were gross misrepresentations, infamous falsehoods, and horrid blasphemies. Recalling the horrors of the French Revolution, Ray thundered that the banners of imperial justice must be displayed, else in a short time the reign of terror be attempted in Canada, and red ruin ride triumphantly. In view of Ray's strong connections in Montreal, it is difficult to see why he languished in Godmanchester. His sister, Anne Cuthbert, a poet and headmistress of a boarding school, was married to a wealthy dry goods merchant, James Fleming. Fleming's brother, John, was a prominent writer as well as a leading official of the Bank of Canada and Bank of Montreal, and the family moved in the circle of leading Scottish Presbyterian merchants and ultra-loyalists of the British Empire, surrounded by a Canadian populace of what they took to be French-Canadian insurgents and radicals. Ray conceived his new principles to be another subset of his life work, this time devoted to the growth of nations and to the necessity for a protective tariff and other forms of government promotion of industry. He finished the book in 1833, and originally meant to publish it in England, but for some reason changed his plans and traveled to Boston to seek aid in publishing the book there. In Boston, Ray met and was taken under the wing of the powerful Alexander Hill Everett, 1790-1847, a leading Boston Brahmin, a protege of ex-President John Quincy Adams, and recently Adams' minister to Spain. An accomplished linguist and classicist as well as an attorney, Everett had left government service to become the editor of the prominent and influential North American Review. A decade earlier, Everett had written New Ideas on Population, 1823, in which he sensibly attacked Malthus for not realizing that population growth can bring abundance, not poverty, by extending the division of labor, expanding markets and cities, and increasing the production of food and manufactures. Everett, like the rest of New England, had lately shifted from free trade to the advocacy of a protective tariff, particularly for the region's nascent textile manufacturers. The protectionists were looking around wildly for textbooks and academics who would support their cause, since the works of Adam Smith and J.B. Say were dominant in American universities. Meeting and being impressed with John Ray and hearing of his new protectionist work, Everett was enthusiastic about him and arranged sight unseen to publish the book in Boston. Apparently Everett had bought a pig in a poke. 
Reviewing it in the North American Review, Everett damned Ray's new principles with faint praise. He had been looking for a hard-hitting protectionist tract. Instead, he found the book filled with technical jargon he could barely comprehend, and much of it had little or no bearing on the tariff issue. The bulk of the book dealt with the theory of capital and interest, and the importance of the expansion of capital to the growth of a nation. As Everett shrewdly pointed out, these views were not really at variance with those of Adam Smith, and none of it bore directly on the protectionist issue. To Ray himself the connections were clear, if too remote for those interested in public policy. He believed that economic development depended jointly on new inventions and their application in capital investment, and most of his proposed government policies were subsidies and bounties to new inventions and industries, to be financed by heavy tariffs on the imports of luxuries. In that way, Ray's Calvinist soul would be satisfied, for the government would be imposing moral principles by promoting thrift, invention, and industry, while discouraging sinful luxuries, especially in a prefigurement of Thorstein Veblen, where consumption is conspicuous, and therefore particularly wasteful. Ray's denunciation of luxurious consumption, which Ray boldly called a loss to the society in proportion to their amount, did not sit very well with Everett, but his main criticism was that the country needed a well-written and well-reasoned essay on this protectionist question, a work of sufficient compass and authority to serve as a textbook. Clearly, John Ray's work did not fill the bill. The book was a commercial failure and was quickly forgotten. The understandably chagrined and embittered Ray wrote in a letter years later that, Unfortunately, I was induced to publish in Boston under the assurance from A. H. Everett that it would be appreciated there. He was, however, I believe, scared of it, could not make up his mind, nor could anyone there if I was right or wrong, and so passed it by with praise of its style, etc. This damned it. In addition, the free traders and the worshippers at the shrine of Adam Smith, who came in for considerable direct criticism in the book, attacked Ray's work. But possibly more fatal than any of these factors was the timing of the book, for after the tariff of 1833, lowering tariffs considerably, tariff agitation in the United States began to subside, and the tariff was repeatedly lowered throughout the 1840s. Free trade had apparently triumphed, at least until the Civil War. In Canada, furthermore, there were scarcely any economists or academics fit to appraise Ray's work and in Britain there was a general scorn for colonials and failure to take North Americans seriously. In England, however, Nassau Sr., whose work on capital and interest was not far from Ray's, read the new principles by the mid-1840s and admired it greatly, and traces of Ray can be found in Sr.'s later writings. Senior passed the book on to John Stuart Mill, who commended it warmly in his overwhelmingly popular 1848 treatise, The Principles of Political Economy. 
Ray heard of Mill's praise five years later through a Canadian friend, and wrote warmly, if mournfully, to Mill that it is the only thing connected with that publication which has afforded me any gratification. Here a mystery arises for the history of economic thought. Despite Mill's warm commendation of Ray's book in what was the dominant treatise on economics for a generation, no economist anywhere picked up on the reference, and knowledge of Ray virtually disappeared. The only exception was the great Italian classical economist Francesco Ferrara, 1810-1900, who translated Ray's new principles into Italian in the mid-1850s. Apart from that, nothing. W. Stanley Jevons, devoted to the history of economic thought, apparently never heard of the book, and even the great Bermbaverk had never read John Ray when, in the 1880s, he wrote the first edition of his History and Critique of Interest Theories. Ray remained unknown to economists until his memory was revived and his work reprinted by Professor Charles Whitney Mixter at the turn of the twentieth century. Perhaps a clue to the puzzle is in Bermbaverk's later editions, where he points out that Mill's encomiums to Ray, while warm, were general and even banal, and scarcely conveyed the brilliance and originality of his work on capital and interest. As Bermbaverk explains it, but it is a strange fact that in all his numerous quotations from Ray, John Stuart Mill never included any of the material which constitutes the essence of Ray's original ideas. He quotes instead merely ornamental incidentals, and even among those only the sort of thing that could be used to illustrate the traditional doctrines that Mill himself was presenting. And since Ray's book seems to have been read in the original by only extremely few persons, just the most interesting part of its contents remained unknown to his contemporaries. There was little likelihood that they, and even less that subsequent generations, would be apprised by Mill's quotations of the importance of the book, or impelled to conduct any research into his quickly forgotten work. Disappointed in the reception of his book, unemployed and destitute, Ray won an appointment as headmaster of a government district grammar school in what was then the brawling frontier town of Hamilton, Ontario. There he lived in genteel poverty on a low salary and was continually in debt, but he was apparently beloved by his students, and was known in Hamilton as a graceful and elegant ice-skater, as well as president of the Hamilton Literary Society. There he played a prominent role in the first contingent of Hamilton Militia, which in 1837 and 1838 helped put down an armed rebellion by Canadian nationalists anxious to cut the ties with the Empire. Ray engaged in aeronautical experiments with balloons, and wrote increasingly on geological topics. He also continued to work on the economic geography of Canada, and finally in 1840 completed his magnum opus, a lengthy book on the outlines of the natural history and statutes of Canada. 
Unfortunately, however, the decade of the 1840s saw fate land a series of hammer blows against John Ray. First, the manuscript of his book on Canada was irretrievably lost en route to possible publishers in New York. Second, after teaching in Hamilton for fourteen years, Ray was summarily fired in 1848. The problem was that Ray became inevitably embroiled in educational political struggles, particularly over getting Presbyterians appointed to teaching and administrative posts in the Anglican-dominated Ontario school system. Furthermore, in 1843, in the disruption, the Church of Scotland, and hence its affiliated Presbyterian Church in Canada, split in irretrievable schism, with hardcore Calvinists opposed to secular state domination of the Church, splitting off from the established Church of Scotland and forming the Free Church. As we might expect from his character, Ray, along with his friends, joined the Free Church, which lost him the political support of the established Presbyterian officials dominant in his school district. Ray's stay in Hamilton was doomed. Ray then left Canada and did some school teaching in Boston and New York, where, a year after his dismissal, he received another staggering blow news of the death of his wife, Eliza. Discouraged, restless, penniless, and uprooted at the age of fifty-three, John Ray began a new life of wandering and drift. Attracted by the gold rush, he sailed to California, where he did a little school teaching and carpentry. In ill health in California, Ray was soon off to the Hawaiian Islands, where he was to spend the rest of his days. There, on the island of Maui, Ray prospered economically for the first time, teaching English to Hawaiian natives, farming, and functioning as a medical agent for the Board of Health. Ray began to blossom politically because of his new friendship with a fellow Scottish expatriate, Robert Crichton Wiley, a surgeon from Glasgow University, wealthy businessman, and now Minister of Foreign Relations of the Hawaiian Kingdom. With Wiley's patronage, Ray became coroner, notary public, medical attendant, and district judge in Maui. His favorable circumstances now led Ray to resume his various scientific interests. He wrote articles and papers on geology, particularly on volcanoes, ocean tides, and Hawaiian geology, on the Polynesian language, and tried to revive interest in marketing his long-neglected navigational inventions. But John Ray was incapable of holding on to money, and so perpetually reverted to destitution. With his patron Wiley dead and in ill health, Ray accepted the offer of an old friend and former student to pay for his trip from Hawaii to live with him permanently at his home in Staten Island. But Ray died on Staten Island the following year. Restless and eccentric, John Ray, in a sense, wrote a suitable and poignant epitaph for himself in New Principles, in his sensitive appreciation of the lone role of the inventor or innovator in society. Pursuing objects not to be perceived by others, or, if perceived, whose importance is beyond the reach of their conceptions, 
the motives of their conduct are necessarily misapprehended. They are esteemed either idlers, culpably negligent in turning account the talents they have got, dullards deficient in the common parts necessary to discharge the common offices of life, or madmen, unfit to be trusted with their performance, shut out from the esteem or fellowship of those whose regard they might prize. They are brought into contact with those with whom they can have nothing in common, knaves who laugh at them as their prey, fools who pity them as their fellows. Their characters misunderstood, debarred from all sympathy, uncheered by any approbations, the eternal war they have to wage with fortune is doubly trying, because they are aware that if they succumb they will be borne off the field not only unknown but misconceived. 12. Nassau Senior, Praxeology, and John Stuart Mill There are few economists in any age who are self-conscious about the methodology of their craft. Even more was this true during the alleged heyday of the British classical school, which, as we have seen, was an era of disintegration rather than triumph of the Ricardian paradigm. But an excellent methodologist was one of the finest economists of that epoch, Nassau W. Senior. Senior, indeed, took up the torch of the praxeological method that had been expounded and used by the great French economist of the early nineteenth century, Jean-Baptiste Say. Senior began to spell out his views on methodology in his very first introductory lecture at Oxford in 1826. With exceptional clarity, he began by stating that economic theory rests on the broadest general insights about human nature, insights that are self-evident in the sense that once stated they command universal assent. Economic theory, says Senior, will be found to rest on a very few general propositions which are the result of observation, or consciousness, and which almost every man, as soon as he hears them, admits as familiar to his thoughts, or at least as included in his previous knowledge. But if these premises, or axioms, rest on general knowledge of man and the world, then conclusions deduced from them must possess equal generality. Its conclusions are also nearly as general as its premises. Those which relate to the nature and production of wealth are universally true. It is, then, the task of the economist to narrow down the conclusions to those areas which are directly relevant to the problem at hand. Thus, those conclusions which relate to the distribution of wealth are liable to be affected by peculiar institutions of particular countries, in the cases, for instance, of slavery, corn laws, or poor laws. The natural state of things can be laid down as a general rule, and the anomalies produced by particular disturbing causes can be afterwards accounted for. As specifically part of his apodictic conclusions, Nassau Sr. generalized laws that other economists had been approaching or groping for. For example, 
Senior defined wealth as all goods and services that possess utility, and which therefore will be purchased in exchange. He then stated in his first fundamental proposition, that every person is desirous to obtain, with as little sacrifice as possible, as much as possible of the articles of wealth. Not only did Senior thus ably generalize some important insights of universal human action, he also in that way dismissed Adam Smith's unfortunate distinction between productive, material, and unproductive, immaterial, labor. Everything which people desired and were willing to buy was productive. It is because Ricardo at least implicitly adopted this distinction that he was able to dismiss cavalierly any explanation of the pricing of immaterial services, and hence to move toward a cost theory of value. In elaborating on this first fundamental proposition, Senior moved on to an eloquent summation of the relationship between desire, individual diversity, choice, and human effort. In stating that every man desires to obtain additional wealth with as little sacrifice as possible, we must not be supposed to mean that everybody, or indeed anybody, wishes for an indefinite quantity of everything. What we mean to state is that no person feels his whole wants to be adequately supplied, that every person has some unsatisfied desires which he believes that additional wealth would gratify. The nature and urgency of each individual's wants are as various as the differences in individual character. Some may wish for power, others for distinction, others for leisure. Money seems to be the only object for which the desire is universal, and it is so because money is abstract wealth. An equal diversity exists in the amount and the kind of the sacrifice which different individuals or even the same individual will encounter in the pursuit of wealth. Two decades later, on returning to the Drummond chair at Oxford, Nassau Sr., in his introductory lectures in 1847, returned to the problem of the methodology of economics, published in 1852 in his Four Introductory Lectures on Political Economy. He now defined economic science as expounding the laws regulating the production and distribution of wealth so far as they depend on the action of the human mind, the latter clause emphasizing that economics was a mental rather than physical science. Indeed, Senior saw clearly that the proper scientific method was dualistic, the physical sciences treating the properties of matter, while the mental ones study the sensations, faculties, and habits of the human mind, and regard in matter only the qualities which produce them. The methods of the two sciences must necessarily differ, for the physical sciences, being only secondarily conversant with mind, draw their premises almost exclusively from observation or hypothesis. Observation may guide such strictly empirical sciences as technology, but such sciences as physics, those which treat only of magnitude and number, draw them altogether from hypothesis. 
The physical sciences must rest on tentative hypotheses, precisely because they are only secondarily conversant with mind. On the other hand, the mental sciences and the mental arts draw their premises principally from consciousness. The subjects with which they are chiefly conversant are the working of the human mind, and the only mind whose workings a man really knows is his own. And, of course, economics was one of the mental sciences. In this way, Nassau Sr., with brilliant clarity, developed the essentials of what Ludwig von Mises, a century later, would call praxeology. As in the case of other mental sciences, economics cannot, like the physical sciences, conduct experiments. It is true, Sr. noted, that economics deals with such material matters as production, productivity, and diminishing returns. But the political economist dwells on them only with reference to the mental phenomena which they serve to explain, as among the motives or sources of capital, rent, profit, etc. In short, wrote Senior, all the technical terms, therefore, of political economy represent either purely mental ideas, such as demand, utility, value, and abstinence, or objects which, though some of them may be material, are considered by the political economist so far only as they are the causes of certain affectations of the human mind, such as wealth, capital, rent, wages, and profits. It is important to consider the once famous battle between Nassau Sr. and John Stuart Mill on economic method, for Mill was soon to become the undeservedly towering economist for the next half-century. Mill agreed that economics as a mental science cannot conduct experiments, but he did not conclude with Senior that its premises or axioms should be complete, general, and apodictic. Instead, he asserted that the foundations and premises of economics can only be hypothetical, that is, they must make assumptions that abstract from, and hence distort, reality. The axioms of economics are only partially or hypothetically true. In short, for Mill, since economics focuses on man's desire for wealth, it must assume, even though admittedly falsely, that man's only desire is for wealth. Thus, as Mill stated in his Essays on Some Unsettled Questions in Political Economy in 1844, Political economy does not treat of the whole of man's nature as modified by the social state, nor of the whole conduct of man in society. It is concerned with him solely as a being who desires to possess wealth, and who is capable of judging the comparative efficacy of means for obtaining that end. It predicts only such of the phenomena of the social state as take place in consequence of the pursuit of wealth. It makes entire abstraction of every other human passion or motive. Political economy considers mankind as occupied solely in acquiring and consuming wealth, 
and aims at showing what is the course of action into which mankind living in a state of society would be impelled if that motive were absolute ruler of all their actions. Not that any political economist was ever so absurd as to suppose that mankind are really thus constituted, but because this is the mode in which science must necessarily proceed. Mill conceded that the founding assumption of his economics was an arbitrary definition of man, for it reasoned from assumed premises, from premises which might be totally without foundation in fact, and which are not pretended to be universally in accordance with it. And thus John Stuart Mill, in this adumbration of the methodology of the deliberate creation of the fallacious economic man, the man who is only interested in pursuing wealth, elaborated what might be called the orthodox or dominant positivist methodology in economics. The positivist method, set down with such fallacious and fateful clarity by Mill, after a struggle with alternative praxeological as well as other methods, finally triumphed in the mid-twentieth century with the unfortunate rise to dominance of the positivism of Vilfredo Pareto and Milton Friedman. Part of the motivation of Senior's thoughtful lectures on method in 1847 was precisely to engage in a critique and demolition of million positivism. Since Mill, like Smith and Ricardo before him, returned to their fallacious limitation of wealth to material goods, the resulting distortion of value and production theory made Senior's task all the more important. Senior's assault on Mill as well as on Ricardo was formidable and devastating. He made their essential differences clear. Neither the reasoning of Mr. Mill nor the example of Mr. Ricardo induce me to treat political economy as a hypothetical science. I do not think it necessary, and, if unnecessary, I do not think it desirable. It appears to me that if we substitute for Mr. Mill's hypothesis that wealth and costly enjoyment are the only object of human desire, the statement that they are universal and constant objects of desire, that they are desired by all men and at all times, we shall have laid an equally firm foundation for our subsequent reasoning, and have put a truth in the place of an arbitrary assumption. Senior goes on to concede that indeed we shall not now be able to infer from the fact that a laborer may so act as to obtain higher wages, or a capitalist higher profits, that they will certainly act in that manner. But at least we shall be able to infer that they will do so in the absence of disturbing causes. And if we are able, as will frequently be the case, to state the cases in which these causes may be expected to exist, and the force with which they are likely to operate, we shall have removed all objection to the positive as opposed to the hypothetical treatment of the science. One danger of the hypothetical method, Senior wisely and prophetically points out, is the perpetual danger of forgetting that the premises are not complete, 
and are only partial and even false assumptions. Another and even deeper flaw is that since the assumptions are false from the very beginning, there is no way to bring in experience or observation to correct or even check on the conclusions of the abstract analysis. In this way, positivists, who always trumpet their method as being the only truly scientific and empirical one, turn out to be resting on runaway and uncorrectable false premises. On the other hand, and ironically, the praxeological method, which has long been accused of a priori mysticism, is the only one that bases theory on broadly known and deeply empirical, indeed, universally true, premises. Being universally true, the praxeological method provides complete and general laws, rather than partial and hence generally false ones. As Marion Bowley astutely sees the difference, thus in the question of the definition of the desire for wealth, if it is stated in Mill's form that everyone always prefers wealth to anything else, the economic man, with the added warning that it is only a hypothesis, the constant relation between the desire for wealth and all other conflicting motives is not defined completely by the general law. It remains necessary to introduce a further premise in each individual stating the general relation of other motives to that of the desire for wealth, as well as evaluating the actual variables. Now Senior's explanation of the desire for wealth includes information as to the interconnections between the variables. Or, as Miss Bowley explains further, Senior's substitution of net advantages for earnings is equivalent to defining in general terms the relation between all the variables which influence the distribution of resources between occupations, instead of leaving that relation to be considered afresh in each use. Thus a positivist, assuming that businessmen are always and only interested in maximizing money profits, might well overlook and ignore instances of businessmen placing other motives, such as giving an executive post to one's relative, higher than profits. Or, worse still, if acknowledging such instances, he would be tempted to dismiss these cases contemptuously as irrational behavior. Similarly, Charles Dickens, who repeatedly spoofed and attacked classical economics in his novels, had a utilitarian son refuse to help his impoverished mother on the ground that the science of political economy told him that to be rational a man must always buy in the cheapest market and sell in the dearest. And since Smith, Ricardo, Mill, classical economics solely emphasized cost of production, and therefore was totally blocked from even talking about the consumer, it was especially open to this Dickensian misconception. Chapter 5. Monetary and Banking Thought 1. The Early Bullionist Controversy 1. THE RESTRICTION AND THE EMERGENCE OF THE BULLIONIST CONTROVERSY 
The Bank of England had been the bulwark of the English, and by serving as Banker's Bank of the Scottish banking system since its founding in 1694. The bank was the recipient of an enormous amount of monopoly privilege from the British government. Not only was it the receiver of all public funds, but no other corporate banks were allowed to exist, and no partnerships of more than six partners were allowed to issue banknotes. As a result, by the late 18th century, the Bank of England was serving as an inflationary engine of bank deposits, and especially of paper money, on top of which a flood of small partnership banks, country banks, were able to pyramid their own notes, using Bank of England notes as their reserve. As if this were not enough privilege, when the bank got into trouble by overinflating, it was permitted to suspend specie payment, that is, refuse to meet its obligation to redeem its notes and deposits in specie. This privilege was granted to the bank several times during the century after it opened its doors. However, each time the suspension or restriction of specie payment lasted only a few years. In the 1790s, however, a startlingly new epoch began in the history of the British monetary system. In February 1793, a generation of fierce warfare broke out between revolutionary France and the crowned heads of Europe, led by Great Britain. While not exactly continuous, the war lasted with slight interruptions until Napoleon was finally defeated in 1815, and the monarchies of Europe reimposed the Bourbon dynasty upon the French nation. This massive war effort meant a rapid escalation of monetary inflation, government spending, and public debt by the British government. During the 1780s, the inflationary process of bank credit expansion had managed to double the number of country banks in England, totaling nearly 400 by the outbreak of war. The shock of the war led to a massive financial crisis, including runs on the country banks, as well as numerous bankruptcies among banks and financial houses. One-third of the country banks suspended specie payment during 1793. For a few years, the bank saved itself by pursuing a cautious and conservative policy, but soon, inflationary war finance, the drain of gold abroad in response to higher purchasing power elsewhere, the alarms of war, and the increased demand for gold upon the banks, all combined to precipitate a massive run on banks, including the Bank of England, in February 1797. The country banks suspended specie payments, and the government brought matters to a head by forcing the bank to suspend specie payments, a restriction which the Bank of England, of course, was all too delighted to accept. For the bank could now continue operations, could expand credit, inflate its supply of notes and deposits, and insist that its debtors must repay their loans, while it could avoid the bother of redeeming its own obligations in specie. In effect, banknotes were unofficially legal tender, indeed virtually the only legal tender, and they were made official legal tender in 1812 until the resumption of specie payments in 1821. 
At the beginning, the general view held the restriction to be strictly temporary, and indeed the decree at any given time was only supposed to last for a few years. But the restriction was extended repeatedly, and was eventually continued for twenty-four years, from 1797 to 1821. Until the end of the eighteenth century, it was unthinkable that Great Britain could be on an irredeemable fiat standard for an entire generation. Apart from a few years during the Continental Paper period of the American Revolution, the South Sea and Mississippi bubbles of the early 18th century, the hyperinflated assignats during the French Revolution, or a few brief suspensions of specie payment, the world had always been on some form of gold or silver standard. All these episodes had been mercifully brief, if catastrophic. But now, after a while, it began to dawn on the British public that the era of inflationary fiat paper would continue indefinitely. Great Britain suspended specie payments indefinitely so as to permit the Bank of England and the banking system as a whole to maintain and greatly expand the previously inflated system of fractional reserve banking. Accordingly, the bank was able to greatly inflate credit and the money supply of notes and deposits. Statistics for the period are sparse, but it is clear that from 1797 until the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the supply of money approximately doubled. This monetary inflation had several predictable and generally unwelcome consequences. Domestic prices skyrocketed. The price of silver, and especially of gold bullion, vaulted upwards in relation to the official par with the pound, and the pound depreciated in the foreign exchange market. The monetary inflation, as usual, proceeded in fits and starts, rather than as a smooth line, and so the various consequences in domestic prices, bullion, and foreign exchanges were themselves scarcely uniform or proportional. But the rough general trend was unmistakable, with the three latter effects each eventually rising to a peak of approximately forty or fifty percent over their pre-restriction levels. Before 1800, decades of inconvertible paper money in England would have been considered unthinkable and so previous monetary theorists had scarcely contemplated or analyzed such an economy. But now, writers were forced to come to grips with fiat paper and to propose policies to cope with an unwelcome new era. The political controversies during the restriction period centered on explaining the price inflation and depreciation and on assessing the role of the Bank of England. The bullionists pointed out that the cause of the price inflation, the rise in the price of bullion over par, and the depreciation of the pound, was the fiat money expansion. They further maintained that the central role in that inflation was played by the Bank of England, freed of its necessity to redeem in specie. Their opponents, the anti-bullionists, tried absurdly to absolve the government and its privileged bank of all blame, and to attribute all unwelcome consequences to specific problems in the particular markets involved. 
Depreciation in foreign exchange was charged to the outflow of bullion caused by excessive imports or by British war expenditures abroad, presumably unrelated to the increased amount of paper pounds or to the lowered purchasing power of the pound. The rise in the price of bullion was supposedly caused by an increased real demand for gold or silver, again unrelated to the depreciated paper pound. The increases in domestic prices received less attention from the two sides of the debate, but they were attributed by the anti-bullionists to wartime disruptions and shortages in supply. Any ad hoc cause could be seized upon, so long as the great integrating cause, the expansion of bank credit and paper money, was carefully ignored and let off the hook. In short, the anti-bullionists reverted to mercantilist worry about ad hoc causes and the balance of trade on the market. The previous hard-won analysis of money and overall prices went by the board. 2. The Bullionist Controversy Begins The announcement of the restriction brought a flurry of activity, pro and con, consisting not of extensive theoretical analyses, but of general statements of approval or warnings of things to come. The Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, 1759-1806, to and his followers egregiously maintained that there was no cause for alarm, since unlike the assignats of the evil French revolutionaries, the Bank of England was issuing private rather than government paper. Hence the reluctance of the government to make banknotes legal tender until nearly the end of the war, although its policies made them legal tender de facto. The opposition leader, Charles James Fox, 1749-1800, to denounced the restriction and called for resumption of specie payments, and also pointed out that the war against France bore ultimate responsibility for the plunge into fiat paper and the distinguished playwright and Whig member of Parliament, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, 1751-1816, warned that we were doomed to all the horrors of a paper circulation. The inflationist economic historian Norman Silberling summed up the Fox-Sheridan position unsympathetically as follows. Fox and Sheridan constituted themselves the leaders of a persistent tirade against the bank suspension, not upon grounds of financial principle, but because the suspension permitted that institution to support the activities of what they regarded as a militaristic, reactionary, and withal bankrupt administration. They concentrated their eloquent invective against this alliance of bank and state, which was productive of robbery and fraud, and they urged that the bank be divorced forthwith from their public responsibilities and their participation in the war. Let the ministry repay the debts of the bank, if it could, and let the bank resume the honest payment of their notes. For the first few years, however, all seemed well. 
The initial caution of the bank and the minimal expansion of government demands on its credit, combined with the inevitable time lag between issue of new money and rise in prices, to lull Britons into a false sense of security. The price of food rose substantially in 1799, but it was easy for the anti-bullionists and other administration apologists to dismiss this rise in a flurry of pamphlets as the product of crop failure and wartime disruption in the import of grain. Even the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, afterwards to emerge as at least a partial bullionist, diffidently raised the monetary question and then dismissed the increase of paper money as rather the effect than the cause of the high price of provisions. In the spring of 1800, however, war expenditures and bank financing government debt accelerated, leading to a depreciation of the pound by 9% in the main foreign exchange market of Hamburg, and gold bullion appreciated to 9% above its official par value. In addition, domestic prices rose even more sharply than before, the depreciation of the pound had evidently begun. The first phase of the bullionist controversy, 1800 to 1804, started when one of the best of the bullionists published his remarkable pamphlet on the cause of the depreciation. Certainly there was little in the previous career of Walter Boyd, circa 1754 to 1837, a wealthy adventurer and seeker of state privilege, to prepare one for a pamphlet of keen insight into the calamitous consequences of irredeemable paper money. Boyd had been a wealthy English banker in Paris, the chief partner of Boyd, Kerr, and company, who had to flee for his life in 1793 from the wrath of the French Revolution, which also confiscated his property. Back in London, Boyd established the banking firm of Boyd, Benfield, and company, of which he was principal partner. A close friend of Prime Minister William Pitt for many years, Boyd rode high in the British establishment, becoming a member of Parliament in 1796 from his partner Paul Benfield's pocket borough. In 1794 the firm floated an important loan to the Austrian Emperor, Furthermore, Boyd Benfield received the enormous contract of thirty million pounds in government debt after the beginning of the war with France. Things began to go sour for Boyd in 1796, however, when the Bank of England, whose loans had been keeping Boyd Benfield and company afloat, failed to renew its discounts. Boyd tried desperately to get Parliament to establish a new board for the issue of a massive amount of notes, and the scheme received considerable support, but it was ended by the opposition of William Pitt. The only thing left for Boyd was to try to get more Bank of England loans, and in Parliament during 1796 and 1797 he denounced the bank for too tight a credit policy, presumably not mentioning himself as one of the prominent sufferers from its allegedly tight money. 
Facing ruin, Boyd managed to obtain financial aid from friends in the Navy office, and he finally got the bank to lend Boyd Benfield and Company 80,000 pounds in 1798. But Samuel Thornton, 1755-1838, deputy governor of the Bank of England and member of Parliament, warned Pitt that Boyd Benfield and Company was only being kept alive by bank largesse, and as a result, Pitt refused to let the House of Boyd contract for the 1799 public loan. Finally, Boyd Benfield and Company went bankrupt in March 1800, and the result was total financial ruin, so much so that Walter Boyd was reluctant to show his face in Parliament. As might be expected, Boyd put the blame for his failure not on his own reckless feeding at the public trough, but on the niggardly policies of the Bank of England. In November 1800, Boyd wrote a letter to the Right Honorable William Pitt, published in 1801, which won quick fame and caused Boyd to publish a second edition later that year. With Boyd's letter, the bullionist controversy was born, Boyd now denouncing the Bank of England not for overly tight credit, but to the contrary, for generating the inflation and monetary depreciation in the first place. His newfound fame did Boyd little personal good, however, and he promptly went to France for financial maneuvering. There he was arrested the following year and jailed by the French until the end of the Napoleonic Wars. He then returned to England, wrote other financial pamphlets, and, once again, became a member of Parliament. 3. Boyd's Letter to Pitt Walter Boyd did not intend his pamphlet, The Letter to Pitt, to be a treatise on monetary theory. It was, as one historian put it, a tract for the times, written in a heated temper, and the tract assumed a generally accepted set of monetary principles on the part of his readers. Nonetheless, since Adam Smith and the other eighteenth-century economists could not have addressed their analyses to a non-existent, inconvertible fiat money, Boyd felt called upon to extend the conventional analysis to this unwelcome new system that had suddenly come to Great Britain. In the course of doing so, Boyd not only launched the bullionist controversy, but also set forth an excellent exposition of what came to be known as the bullionist position in the great controversy. Boyd pointed to the three new and unwelcome conditions, the premium of gold bullion over the paper pound, the depreciation of the pound on the foreign exchange market, and the increase in the prices of almost all articles of necessity, convenience, and luxury, and indeed of almost every species of exchangeable value, which has been gradually taking place during the last two years, and which had recently arrived at so great a height. He argued that the cause of all three troublesome phenomena was the same, a depreciation of the value of the pound, brought about by the issue of banknotes, uncontrolled by the obligation of paying them in specie on demand. 
An increase in the supply of money diminishes its value, whether in the form of a premium on gold bullion or of a rise in the prices of goods. And the same circumstances which raise the value of gold in the home market necessarily tend to depreciate our currency when compared with currency of other countries. Boyd summed up the bullionist position clearly in the preface to the second edition, 1801, of his letter. The premium on bullion, the low rate of exchange, and the high prices of commodities in general are symptoms and effects of the superabundance of paper. If the supply of money is crucial to the movement of prices, bullion, and exchange rates, it becomes vital to clarify what precisely that supply may be. Before Adam Smith, the 18th century British writers on money, such as Hume and Harris, muddied the waters by including in the concept of money virtually all liquid assets, such as bills of exchange and government securities. In The Wealth of Nations, however, Smith helped matters by distinguishing clearly between money, the general medium of exchange, and the final means of payment, and other liquid instruments that are exchanged against money. Following Smith, Walter Boyd makes the distinction between money or ready money and other assets crystal clear. By the words means of circulation, circulating medium, and currency, which are used almost as synonymous terms in this letter, I understand always ready money, whether consisting of banknotes or specie, in contradistinction to bills of exchange, navy bills, exchequer bills, or any other negotiable paper, which form no part of the circulating medium, as I have always understood that term. The latter is the circulator, the former are merely objects of circulation." Not only that, Boyd proceeded to go beyond Smith and to be the first to clearly identify bank demand deposits as fully ready money as bank notes. As he put it, credits in the books of the banks may be considered as bank notes virtually, though not really in circulation. Much grief and error would have been spared economic thought, as well as the development of money and banking, if the currency school, the mid-nineteenth century successors to the bullionists, had heeded this lesson, and understood that demand deposits were equivalent to bank notes as a part of the supply of money. On another crucial point, too, Boyd proved to be far superior to Adam Smith. Like Cantillon and Turgot, Boyd objected to the unfortunate doctrine, propounded by Hume and then by Smith, that an increase in the quantity of money results in an equiproportional increase in the price level. Considering the essence of the Hume model of assuming a magically great proportionate increase in the money supply and discussing the consequences, Boyd echoes Cantillon, rather than Hume. If this country had acquired by supernatural means and thrown into every channel of circulation the same additional currency in gold and silver within the same period, 
This influx, altogether disproportioned to the progress of the industry of the country within that period, could not have failed to produce a very great rise in the price of every species of property, not all with equal rapidity, but each by different degrees of celerity according to the frequency or rarity of its natural contact with money. Internationally, such a magical influx of gold and silver, according to Boyd and Smith before him, would ordinarily have rapidly flowed out of the country, thereby limiting the inflationary harm that the inflow might do. Unfortunately, as in Smith, the mechanism for this allegedly rapid outflow is highly obscure. At any rate, Boyd pressed on to be the first to apply mainstream monetary theory to the problem of inconvertible fiat currencies. He begins by showing that since banknotes cannot be exported, there is no mechanism, as there is with specie, for draining off an excess quantity of money to foreign countries. As a result, in the first place, the price rise resulting from an influx of specie would not be so great as that which has been occasioned by the introduction of so much paper, destitute of the essential quality of being constantly convertible into specie. More specifically, according to Boyd, the depreciation of fiat paper in terms of other currencies would be reflected in a rise in the price of gold or silver bullion, and an appreciation of foreign currencies on the foreign exchange market. This view, as Professor Salerno points out, provides the germ of the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates under inconvertible fiat currencies. Specifically, Boyd contends that an increase in the supply of inconvertible paper money effects a general rise in domestic prices, or, what is the same thing, a depreciation in the exchange value of the currency in terms of commodities, which necessarily drives down the value of domestic currency in terms of foreign currencies whose exchange values have remained unchanged. This fall in the value of the inflated and depreciated domestic currency relative to foreign currencies is manifested in the depreciation of the exchange rate. Contained in Boyd's argument is the seminal formulation of the purchasing power parity of exchange rate determination, which, of course, is the logical outcome of the application of the monetary approach to conditions of inconvertible paper currency. In addition, Walter Boyd set the tone for the bullionists following him by placing the full blame for the monetary inflation on the Bank of England, rather than the country banks. For the country banks could not have expanded their notes in circulation, Boyd pointed out, unless their reserve base had expanded proportionately, and that reserve base was constituted by notes of the Bank of England for the country banks remain under the same salutary control as the Bank of England had been under before the advent of restriction. Just as the bank's notes had to be redeemed on demand in specie, so do the country bank's notes still have to be redeemed in the notes of the Bank of England. 
The key to the problem is the escape from redeemability that the government had permitted to the Bank of England. As Boyd put it, the circulation of country banknotes must necessarily be proportioned to the sums in specie or Bank of England notes requisite to discharge such of them as may be presented for payment. But the paper of the Bank of England has no such limitation. It is itself now become what the coin of the country only ought to be, the ultimate element into which the whole paper circulation of the country resolves itself. The Bank of England is the great source of all the circulation of the country, and by the increase or diminution of its paper, the increase or diminution of that of every country bank is infallibly regulated. Walter Boyd specifically cited and patterned himself on Adam Smith, and unfortunately also followed Smith in hailing the expansion of private redeemable banknotes as providing a less costly and more efficient highway in the sky, though Boyd did not use that phrase. But being an embattled Smithian in a new world of fiat money, Boyd stressed his militant opposition to banknotes in a context of fiat money. Boyd denounced inconvertible or forced paper money as that dangerous quack medicine which, far from restoring vigor, gives only temporary artificial health, while it secretly undermines the vital powers of the country that has recourse to it. Boyd concluded that restoring the nation's currency to its pristine purity would be not only proper and practical, but indispensably necessary, in order to prevent the numberless calamities which the uncontrolled circulation of paper, not convertible into specie, must infallibly produce. Boyd was what we may call a complete bullionist, and was therefore a sophisticated one. He fully recognized that partial real factors, such as government expenditures abroad, a sudden scarcity of food, or a sudden diminution of the confidence of foreigners in consequence of any great national disaster, could influence overall prices or the status of the pound in the foreign exchange market. But he also realized that such influences can only be trivial and temporary, the overriding causes of such price or exchange movements, not just in some remote long run, but at all times except temporary deviations, are monetary changes in the supply of and demand for money. Changes in real factors can only have an important impact on exchange rates and general prices by altering the composition and the height of the demand for money on the market. But since market demands for money are neither homogeneous nor uniform, nor do they ever change equiproportionately, real changes will almost always have an impact on the demand for money. As Professor Salerno writes, since real disturbances are invariably attended by distribution effects, that is, gains and losses of income and wealth by the affected market participants, 
It is most improbable that initially non-monetary disturbances would not ultimately entail relative changes in the various national demands for money. Under inconvertible conditions, the relative changes in the demands for the various national currencies, their quantities remaining unchanged, would be reflected in their long-run appreciation or depreciation on the foreign exchange market. Here we must emphasize a crucial distinction between the proper status of the short run and the long run in economic theory. In price theory proper, the short run should take precedence, because it is the real-world market price, while the long run is the remote, ultimate tendency that never occurs, and could only take place if all the data were frozen for several years. In sum, we could only live in the improbable, if not impossible, world of long-run general equilibrium, where all profits and losses are zero, if all values, technologies, and resources were frozen for years. But in monetary theory, the order of precedence should be different. For in monetary theory, the impact of partial real factors on the price level, exchange rates, and on the balance of payments are all ephemera determined by the general factors, the supply of and demand for money. These monetary influences are not long-run in the sense of far-off and remote, but are underlying and dominant every day in the real world. The monetary influence corresponding to the long run of general equilibrium would be a condition where all price levels and all real wage levels in a gold standard world would be identical, or strictly proportionate to the relative currency weights of gold. In a freely fluctuating fiat money world, this would be the situation where all price levels would be strictly proportionate to the currency ratios at the international market exchange rates. But dominant influences of the supply and demand for money on price levels and exchange rates occur in the real world all the time and always predominate over the ephemera of real specific price and expenditure changes. Hence, real-world analysis, which must always predominate, comprises short-run price analysis and slightly longer-run, but still far from final equilibrium, monetary reasoning. To put it another way, in the real world all prices are determined by the interaction of supply and demand. For individual prices this means consumer valuations and consumer demands for a given stock, supply and demand in the real world. This is short-run microanalysis. For overall prices, or the price level, the relevant supply and demand is the supply of and demand for money, the result of individual utility valuations of the given stock of money at any time. And while equally real and dominant in the macrosphere, this is determinant in a slightly longer run than the superficial real factors stressed by anti-bullionists in all ages. 4. 
The Storm Over Boyd, The Anti-Bullionist Response The letter by someone of Boyd's renown and stature stung the British banking establishment to the quick. The establishment responded with a flurry of pamphlets in opposition to Boyd, some of which were subsidized by the government. The key point was to defend the actions of the Bank of England and to attribute the undesirable consequences of the inflation and depreciation to a hodgepodge of real rather than monetary factors. The most eminent critic whom Boyd could rebut in the second edition of the letter, published a few months after the original, was Sir Francis Baring, 1740-1810, founder of the famous banking house of Baring Brothers and Company. Baring had been born to a clothing manufacturer in Exeter. After plunging into commerce in London, Baring founded his own mercantile firm and became a multimillionaire and known as the leading merchant in Europe. In addition to his mercantile and banking prominence, Baring was also a director and then chairman of the board of the East India Company, as well as a long-time Whig member of Parliament. Curiously enough, when the restriction first appeared, Baring, in his first monetary pamphlet, while strongly supporting the suspension as a necessary wartime measure, was worried about the inevitable depreciation that would accompany over-issue of paper, and suggested a strict limit on the bank's issue. This pamphlet, Observations on the Establishment of the Bank of England, 1797, went through two quick editions, followed by a supplementary further observations later the same year. Now that the bank was under substantial attack, however, Sir Francis rallied round, his previous qualifications and warnings forgotten. In his Observations on the Publication of Walter Boyd, 1801, Baring absurdly defended the bank from the charge of causing increases in domestic prices by pointing out that the depreciation of the pound on the foreign exchange market was less than the rise in price. But Boyd had not claimed equiproportional rises in all prices, as he pointed out in his rebuttal. Baring also claimed, conveniently enough, that an increase in the money supply could only affect foreign exchange rates and not domestic prices. Another inveterate defender of the bank and an anti-bullionist who entered the controversy in this period was Henry Bowes, 1763-1827, Bowes joined the fray in 1802 and wrote five anti-bullionist pamphlets between then and 1811. He insisted that under conditions of inconvertibility, exchange rates had nothing to do with the supply of money, but were only determined by the balance of international payments, which in turn was supposed to be set solely by real rather than monetary factors. As Bose put it dogmatically, the rate of exchange is governed by the balance of exchange operations and great political convulsions apart by no other principle whatever. In his 1802 tract, Guineas an Unnecessary and Expensive Encumbrance on Commerce, 
Bose, as his title indicates, carried the fallacious Smithian highway and the sky argument to its logical conclusion. The restriction was so beneficial that it should be made permanent, a permanent measure of prudence and sound policy. Who was this Bose, this point man for inflation and fiat money? Born in Cornwall, he went to live for years in Brittany, and then returned to London, where he became a corresponding clerk in 1788 in the banking firm of Ransom, Moreland, and Hammersley. The outbreak of the French Revolution the following year found Bose, with his extensive French connections, in a good spot to obtain considerable funds for support of a number of émigré French clergy and nobility in England. Bose then rose rapidly in the bank, becoming chief clerk and then managing partner in 1799. He was also a distinguished evangelical, being a leading member of the London Missionary Society and founder of the British and Foreign Bible Society. After retiring to Cornwall in 1809, Henry Bose became a partner in the Penzance Union Bank and mayor of Penzance. 5. Henry Thornton, Anti-Bullionist in Sheep's Clothing Although the bullionist controversy has been studied at length, historians of economic thought have had great difficulty identifying and analyzing the various different doctrines held in the bullionist camp. Generally, they have grouped the bullionists into an extreme or rigid camp, consisting of John Wheatley and David Ricardo, to appear later on, and the others, including Henry Thornton, ranked as more sophisticated moderates. The issue supposedly centers on Wheatley and Ricardo's extreme devotion to long-run factors, leading them to deny any role to real factors in determining prices, exchange rates, or balances of payments. On the other hand, all the other bullionists, being moderate, are supposed to have believed that real factors can often be dominant, and that it is touch and go which factors will prevail in any given situation. Professor Joseph T. Salerno has recently made a notable advance by providing a far superior framework of analysis of the various thinkers. He notes that Boyd, as we have seen, and Lord King, another leading bullionist, were really extreme rather than moderate, and that they can be classified as such because they realized that monetary factors were always predominant, even though real factors could exert temporary influence. Thus the extreme bullionist camp now includes a. Ricardo and Wheatley, who ignore all temporary and real factors, as well as short-term processes, and concentrate exclusively and mechanistically on the long run, and b. Boyd and later Lord King, who analyze short-run processes and real factors, but realize that long-run monetary factors predominate at all times. Then there are, c, moderate bullionists like Thornton, who are agnostic about whether real or monetary factors predominate at any given time, and d, anti-bullionists who ignore all underlying monetary causes, 
It is clear that Professor Salerno properly gives the accolade to Group B as having the correct analysis. But Salerno, it seems to the present author, does not quite go far enough. While he sees fully and lucidly the crucial differences between groups A and B, it is still confusing to classify these two as dwelling in the same camp, for it would clarify matters further if we totally dropped the extreme versus moderate distinction. Let group B be termed complete bullionists, and group A rigid or mechanistic bullionists. As for Group C, men like Henry Thornton do not really deserve the term bullionist at all. They are surely moderate, though confused might be a better term. Mired in their ad hoc approach, they could just as well end up in any given situation as anti-bullionist rather than bullionist. And, indeed, Henry Thornton began his career of monetary theorist as a moderate anti-bullionist, which was his position in the course of his famous contribution of 1802. Later on, as depreciation and inflation continued, Thornton concluded that the preponderance of forces had moved the other way, and he changed his mind, gaining his undeserved historiographical reputation as a bullionist by signing the famous Bullion Committee Report of 1811, which recommended resumption of the gold standard. But Thornton remained a moderate. Focusing on Thornton's later stance and conflating it with his theoretical work of a decade earlier only misled historians into extravagantly overpraising Thornton and into placing him unequivocally in the bullionist camp. During the twentieth-century Thornton revival, it was said that earlier historians were unfair in attributing Henry Thornton's 1760-1815 pro-Bank of England bias to his being a director of the bank. It is true that he himself was not a board member of the bank, but his elder brother Samuel was a director and deputy governor of the bank, and his grandfather Robert Thornton, as well as Robert's brother Godfrey, was also a director of the Bank of England. Henry Thornton was a descendant of a long line of prominent merchants. Great-grandfather John was a merchant in Hull, in what was then Yorkshire, in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. John's sons moved to London to become important merchants there, particularly engaged in trade with Russia and the Baltic. Henry's father, also named John, continued the line of Russia merchant in London, was a senior partner in the firm of Thornton, Cornwall and Company, and was also a leading member and financial supporter, beginning around 1750, of the first generation of evangelicals, low-church Puritan Anglicans under the influence of John Wesley. John gave enormous sums to charity, especially for the distribution of countless Bibles and prayer books abroad. Since the Thornton family and several of the other leaders of the movement resided in the wealthy London suburb of Clapham, they were eventually to become known as the highly influential Clapham sect.
Henry Thornton received only a sparse education. At an early age, he began working in the counting houses of his relatives and then of his father. Soon, in 1784, he left the family firm to become a partner in the banking house of Down, Thornton, and Free, where he remained as an active partner until his death. Thornton was able to build the small banking house into one of the largest in the city of London. In 1788, Thornton joined his father and several other family members as a director of the Russia Company. Meanwhile, in 1782, he had been elected a member of Parliament, and was soon joined by his brothers Samuel and Robert. Henry was to remain in Parliament, too, for the rest of his life. Not only was Henry Thornton a distinguished banker, member of Parliament, and closely related to Bank of England directors, he was also a dedicated leader and patron of the Clapham sect, and his home at Clapham was to serve as a virtual organizing headquarters for the evangelical movement. One of Henry's closest friends, William Wilberforce III, belonged to a powerful family long friendly to and intermarried with the Thorntons. Wilberforce became a member of Parliament at about the same time as Thornton, and it was characteristic of their earnestness, personal austerity, and moral fervor that they soon came to form an independent Party of the Saints in Parliament. There, Wilberforce became the leading force in the eventually successful agitation for the abolition of the slave trade in the British West Indies. In 1796, Thornton married Mariana Sykes, daughter of another Russian merchant from Hull, and also a lifelong family friend. The couple had nine children. Most of Thornton's intellectual energies were expended on evangelical religion. Though considered a distinguished expert on banking and finance, he wrote only his famous work of 1802 on paper credit and participated in writing the Bullion Committee report. The remainder of his voluminous writings were devoted to family prayers, family commentaries on the Bible, and scores of articles on politics, literature, and religion for the Clapham Sect Journal, which he helped to found, the Christian Observer. After Thornton's death in 1815, his place as senior partner in the bank was taken by Sir Peter Pole. The bank prospered greatly for a while, but soon it turned out to be undercapitalized and overexpanded, and in 1825 it, along with lesser country banks, was plunged into crisis. It soon failed, despite a friendly £300,000 emergency loan from the Bank of England. Ironically, in view of Thornton's monetary views, there is some evidence that the two men most responsible for the mismanagement were Sir Peter Pole and Henry Thornton. In particular, Thornton appears to have led the way in lax practices to induce Yorkshire country banks to keep their deposits in his London bank. Bank failure was no stranger to Thornton. Indeed, it was the temporary failure of his bank in the crisis of 1793 that turned his thoughts to problems of banking, and led him to conclude that it was necessary for the Bank of England to play a supporting, expansionist role in monetary affairs. 
As the banking theorist Thomas Joplin was to put it in his Analysis and History of the Currency Question, 1832, on the financial crises of 1793, Mr. Thornton, being a banker, a partner, it is curious to remark, of the house that failed on this occasion, had his attention particularly called to this subject, and a very considerable portion of his work on public credit is devoted to show that in a period of panic the bank ought to lean to the side of enlarging than contracting its issues. When the restriction came in early 1797, Henry Thornton was honored by being the only London banker asked to give testimony before the committees of the Houses of Lords and of Commons investigating the suspension of specie payment. Thornton's influence was magnified by the lifelong friendship of Wilberforce and Prime Minister William Pitt, and Pitt's brother-in-law was the first tenant of one of the houses on Thornton's estate. The results of his pondering are scarcely surprising for someone of Thornton's status and background. Taking an inflationist and establishment line, Thornton opined that in times of crisis, paper money could not be limited or suppressed, since that would constitute a shock to commerce. On the contrary, the Bank of England must suspend specie payment in order to avoid the specter of monetary contraction and general business failure. Indeed, Thornton undoubtedly gladdened the hearts of the bank by criticizing it for not being expansionist enough. Thornton's testimony won him the accolade of being the foremost authority on monetary affairs, and he was appointed to several parliamentary committees on money, expenditures, and foreign exchange. Thornton indeed became one of the leading parliamentary defenders of the restriction and of expanded paper credit. We can easily imagine Henry Thornton's sentiments toward Walter Boyd's letter to Pitt when that tract hit the world of English opinion like a thunderbolt at the turn of 1800 to 1801. Here was this well-connected fellow banker, but an unsound adventurer, this rogue whom his own brother had brought to ruin by persuading the Bank of England to cut off his credit. And now, only months after this man had met his deserved fate, here was Boyd again, trying to gain revenge by discrediting the noble banking and credit system of England. Thornton was stung to try to refute the dangerous Boyd, and it was in the service of this goal that he published his Inquiry into the Nature and Effects of the Paper Credit of Great Britain, a year after Boyd's tract, in February or March of 1802. But first, Thornton hit out at Boyd in Parliament in December 1800. As in his book, his words exerted all the more impact for the eminence of their author, combined with their seeming judiciousness and moderation. For there are always a host of people who will hold firmly that the more qualified and tentative the judgment, the more well-balanced and sound it must therefore be. Mushiness of mind, especially in an eminent man, is all too often mistaken for wisdom.
In this early phase of the bullionist debate, Thorntonian mushiness tended inexorably in the wrong direction. The depreciation of the pound in foreign exchange was caused, he opined in his speech in Parliament, not by the increase of paper money, but by the unfavorable balance of trade, and specifically by the heavy imports of provisions. Typical of the anti-bullionist view, imports and exports were assumed to have ad hoc lives of their own, and not to be determined by relative prices or by the supply and demand for money. But Thornton's anti-bullionism was nothing if not moderate, that is, he conceded the theoretical possibility that increased money supply could bring about higher prices. As to the assertion that the increased issue of bank paper was the cause of the dearness of provisions, he, Thornton, would not deny that it might have some foundation, but he would contend that its effect was far from being as great as was being alleged. Henry Thornton's book on paper credit was a considerable expansion of his parliamentary speeches, and it was paper credit that took its place as not only the leading work on behalf of anti-bullionism, but also the most influential on either side of the debate. The timing was right, since the restriction was in particular need of defense in 1802. A peace with France was signed in March, and yet the British government persisted in extending the restriction another year. Soon after that year was up, war with France broke out again, but in the meantime the seeming end of the wartime emergency had taken away the apparent reason for the suspension of specie payments. Other anti-bullionist tracts appearing in 1802 were scarcely rivals for Thornton, ranging from Jasper Atkinson's anonymous pamphlet, Consideration on the Propriety of the Bank of England Resuming Its Payments in Specie, denying that inflation had taken place, to another anonymous tract applying Adam Smith's erroneous theory of an automatic limit to excess bank credit to a situation Smith would never have applied it to, fiat money, the utility of country banks considered. Thornton disarmed many of his critics by conceding the theoretical possibility that excess issues of paper money can cause price increases, outflow of gold, higher prices of gold bullion, and depreciation of the pound but maintaining that the situation did not now apply, and that the problems of the day were due to such particular real factors as unusual demand for gold and for the importation of food and unusual blockages to exports. Thornton cleverly loaded the dice by spending the bulk of the book on the alleged horrors of monetary deflation and the contraction of bank credit, Deflation would lead to trade depression, unemployment, and bankruptcies. Furthermore, he claimed, deflation would not even accomplish an export surplus or an inflow of gold, since it would so exceedingly distress trade and discourage manufacturers as to impair those sources of returning wealth to which we must chiefly trust for the restoration of our balance. 
Thornton neglected to realize that if times were really that bad, Englishmen would scarcely earn enough income to sustain a heavy excess of imports. As in all modern agitation against deflation, he also failed to realize that deflation only causes losses and bankruptcies if it is unexpected, revealing an excessive bidding up of wage rates and other business costs. Deflation, in addition to having the healthy impact of purging unsound investments and unsound banks from the economy, would have strictly limited and temporary effect. First, because while inflation is technically unlimited until the value of the currency is totally destroyed, deflation must necessarily be limited to the amount of bank expansion over specie, and second, deflation will cease having a depressionary effect as soon as excessive costs are brought down to pre-inflated levels. In fact, Thornton acknowledged that the fall in price and the depression brought about by monetary deflation would be unusual and temporary but he anticipated Keynes in focusing on allegedly sticky wage rates. For a fall of prices arising from temporary distress will be attended probably with no correspondent fall in the rate of wages. For the fall of price and the distress will be understood to be temporary, and the rate of wages we know is not so variable as the price of goods. There is reason, therefore, to fear that the unnatural and extraordinarily low price arising from the sort of distress of which we now speak would occasion much discouragement of the fabrication of manufactures. There are two problems here. First, while the economic distress due to faulty forecasting and excess bidding up of wage rates and other costs will indeed be temporary, there is no reason why the fall in prices should not be permanent. Prices had previously been artificially raised by monetary and credit expansion. Their decline simply reflects the contraction of credit down to more realistic levels. The knowledge that the decline is permanent should greatly speed up the adjustment mechanism. Second, if workers persist in keeping their wage demands higher than the market, they have only themselves to blame for their unemployment. Keeping any price, including a wage rate, higher than market equilibrium will always lead to an unsold surplus of the good or service. In the case of labor, unsold labor time, or unemployment. If laborers wish to change their unemployed status, they need only lower their wage demands to clear the market and allow themselves to be hired. We should also recognize that in this situation, with prices falling and wage rates constant, workers are thereby insisting on higher real wage rates than they had enjoyed before. Why should workers holding out for higher real wage rates be able to induce an inflationist policy in the central government? 
So worried about deflation was Thornton that he actually urged the Bank of England to neutralize outflows of gold so as to obstruct the price-specie flow mechanism from bringing about equilibrium in the balance of payments. Instead, he would have the bank inflate banknotes to replace gold outflows, and then hope that his vague, long-run, real principles of economy and exertion of expenditure and income would eventually work to equilibrate imports and exports. Thus Thornton writes that, It may be true policy and duty of the bank to permit for a time, and to a certain extent, the continuance of that unfavorable exchange which causes gold to leave the country and to be drawn out of its own coffers, and it must in that case necessarily increase its loans to the same extent to which its gold is diminished. Thornton's work has been excessively hailed by von Hayek and other historians as being theoretically excellent, if unfortunate in its political anti-bullionist conclusions. But his theoretical weakness did not only consist of his excessive horror of deflation and his stress on the alleged empirical dominance of real factors in his analysis of inflation and depreciation. For this stress itself reflected a grave, if subtle, theoretical flaw in Thornton's entire monetary and balance of payments analysis. His entire analysis lingered disproportionately on the real and short-term factors, to the almost complete neglect of the tendency of the economy towards long-run equilibrium. And even Thornton's perfunctory discussion of long-run equilibrium is divorced from short-run processes, and also from its monetary nature. It goes without saying that Thornton therefore also neglects the monetary supply and demand nature of the short-run processes leading towards that equilibrium. Thus Professor Salerno, who has given us a notable critique of Thornton, writes, Without the conception of international monetary equilibrium at his disposal, he is forced to explain the tendency to balance of payments equilibrium by a hazy reference to an alleged disposition amongst people to adapt their individual expenditure to their income. This is in sharp contrast to the extreme bullionists and their 18th-century forebears, who invariably began their analyses of balance of payments phenomena with a discussion of the nature and necessity of international monetary equilibrium, and then explained the tendency to balance of payments equilibrium as a logical implication of the necessary tendency to an equilibrium distribution of the world's stock of money. Indeed, the entire structure and organization of the book tilted Thornton heavily towards short-term real factors and away from any monetary approach towards analyzing inflation or the balance of payments. To sum up, the correct analysis of complete bullionism, such as presented by Boyd and later by Lord King, stresses monetary factors leading to monetary equilibrium, while showing that real factors can only have temporary effects. 
The analysis of real factors is integrated with, and at all times subordinated to, the monetary factors, and short-run and long-run monetary processes are integrated as well. In Thornton's moderate anti-bullionist position, often miscalled moderate bullionist, however, both real and monetary causal factors and processes are presented as separate and independent of each other, with real factors presented as empirically more important. Short-run factors are similarly stressed, to the neglect of long-run forces. Henry Thornton has been extravagantly praised by Schumpeter and other historians for adding velocity of circulation to the quantity of money as a determinant of overall prices. But, in the first place, we have seen that ever since the scholastics, the demand for money, the inverse of the velocity, had always been integrated with the supply of money in analyzing the determination of general prices. It is true that Thornton analyzed the different influences on, and different variabilities of, velocity in considerable and pioneering detail. For example, frequency of payments, development of clearing systems, confidence in the money, and variations of the same stock of money over time. But unfortunately, Thornton ruined this contribution by not realizing that velocity of circulation is simply the inverse of the demand for money, and by treating the velocity as somehow different and independent of demand in helping determine the money relation of supply, demand, and price. Thornton has been lauded by von Hayek and others for including bank deposits as well as bank notes in the supply of money. True enough. But as we have seen, Walter Boyd preceded him in this insight by a year. But not only that, Boyd also demonstrated that bills of exchange and treasury bills are decidedly not part of the money supply, that they are objects of circulation rather than the circulator. But Thornton restored the older error of lumping bills of exchange in with notes and deposits as part of the supply of money. Henry Thornton did make some important contributions in the last two chapters of paper credit, particularly in the long-deferred paper money as cause of inflation sections that rested uneasily with the separate and contrary earlier chapters. Most of the anti-bullionist writers applied Adam Smith's dictum that bank credit cannot inflate the currency if confined to short-term, self-liquidating, real bills. The difference is that Smith had applied it only to a specie standard, whereas the anti-bullionists extended it to a fiat money system. Thornton replied that this criterion will not work, since an increased quantity of banknotes will also indefinitely inflate the monetary value of the real bills, so that the Smith anti-bullionist limit is an indefinitely elastic one that will in practice only provide an open channel for bank credit inflation. Thornton further pointed out that the current usury law in Britain of 5% will aggravate the problem, 
for the free market interest rate or profit rate will rise higher than that in wartime or in any boom situation. Consequently, the artificial holding down of the bank loan rate below the profit rate will stimulate an excessive borrowing, artificially high levels of investment, and a continuing monetary and price inflation. Thus, holding the bank rate of interest below the profit rate stimulates an increase in the demand for borrowing, and the continuing increase in the supply of money allows that demand to be fulfilled. In setting forth the inflationary consequences of artificially lowering the rate of interest on bank loans, Henry Thornton anticipated the later Austrian theory of the business cycle, set forth by Ludwig von Mises and F. A. von Hayek, and in turn based on the analysis of the Swedish-Austrian economist Knut Wicksell at the end of the 19th century. Thornton also hinted at the Austrian analysis of forced saving, pointing out that if excessive issues of paper money raise prices of goods more rapidly than wage rates, there will be some increase of capital investment, but that this increase will be at the expense of the laboring classes, and will therefore be attended with a proportionate hardship and injustice. Unfortunately, Thornton did not press on to the Austrian business cycle point, that since the public's time and saving preferences are not sufficient to sustain these forced investments, a recession is bound to liquidate those investments when the artificial credit expansion stops and the true savings consumption preferences of the public are thereby revealed. It is very possible that despite the author's prominence in the world of banking, paper credit might have sunk quickly into obscurity. It was very long, several hundred pages, badly written and organized, unsystematic, muddled, and what its greatest admirers have called prolix. Even von Hayek, Thornton's biggest modern booster, concedes that his exposition lacks system and, in places, is even obscure. Even his greatest disciple and popularizer, Francis Horner, admitted that Thornton had little management in the disposition of his materials, that he frequently was much embarrassed in the explanation of arguments, that his reasonings are not to be trusted and are sometimes defective, that he was not trained in theorizing, that his style was poor, and that the various discussions are so unskillfully arranged that they throw no light on each other, and we can never seize a full view of the plan. In short, the prolixity and the obscurity of the work oppress the reader." And yet, ironically, it was this very Francis Horner who rescued paper credit from these grave defects and put the work on the map. The form Horner used was a great stroke of luck for granting Thornton's work its maximum impact. We have noted in an earlier chapter on the influence of the Smithian movement, chapter 17, volume 1, that Francis Horner was one of a scintillating group of young Scotsmen who studied under Dugald Stewart at the turn of the nineteenth century, and went on to conquer the British intellectual climate for Smithian doctrine. 
It was in 1802 that these young pupils of Stuart founded the Edinburgh Review, which struck the British intellectual world with enormous impact and quickly vaulted to the status of one of the leading journals. And it was precisely in the first October 1802 issue of the Edinburgh Review that Francis Horner wrote his famous review essay of Thornton's Paper Credit. In this thirty-page tour de force, Horner systematized Thornton's work, made as much sense of it as was possible, and, as von Hayek admits, gave an exposition of the main argument of the book in a form which was considerably more systematic and coherent than the original version. Horner beat the drums for paper credit, trumpeted it as the most valuable unquestionably of all the publications which the momentous event of the bank restriction had produced. The great fame and influence of paper credit was unquestionably Thornton mediated through Francis Horner. It was also important to realize that Horner, though chairman of the later Bullion Committee of 1810 and 1811, which recommended resumption of the gold standard, agreed with Thornton in his anti-bullionist stance of 1802. While Horner hailed Thornton's work as decisive, he paved the way for his and Thornton's later change of mind politically by writing that he was not sure which factors, the monetary or the real, had been more decisive in the inflation and the depreciation of the pound. He expressed his fundamental theoretical confusion, along with Thornton's, by declaring himself agnostic on the causal issue, the matter to be decided later by more empirical data. In short, while Thornton, in his paper credit, carved out the new moderate anti-bullionist position, his follower, Horner, was what might be called a moderate-moderate, squarely in the middle of the issue. We might also note that Horner took his stand squarely with Thornton against Boyd on the issue of defining the money supply. Rejecting Boyd's lucid circulator versus objects of circulation, Horner perpetuated Thornton's unfortunate and fuzzy view that there is no definite boundary between commodities and means of exchange, so that everything is a mishmash of degrees of convertibility. 6. Lord King, The Culmination of Bullionism when the British government asked Parliament for a year's extension of the bank restriction in April 1802, it had to justify the renewal of suspension on some ground other than the war with France, since the Treaty of Amiens had been signed the previous month. Prime Minister Henry Addington, 1757-1844, argued that since the balance of payments remained unfavorable to Britain, the suspension of specie payments should be extended, presumably until the balance of trade reversed itself. When the renewal came up again in February of the following year, Addington again argued for an extension of the fiat system on the same grounds. 
He was answered trenchantly by the great opposition leader, Charles James Fox, who pointed out that perhaps even it might happen that the unfavorable turn of the exchange against this country might be owing to the very restriction on the bank. Not only that, but Fox saw incisively that the outflow of gold was essentially a Gresham's Law situation, where money undervalued by the government flows inexorably out of circulation to be replaced by overvalued or bad money. He essentially showed that this process applies to paper fully as much as to bad gold. In 1772 to 1773, when there was a great quantity of bad money in the country, the course of exchange was then also much against us. As long as our currency continued bad, the exchange was against us. So it is now, because paper is not much better than bad gold. May it not therefore be expected that, as in the former case, when our currency was ameliorated, the course of exchange turned in our favor, so also if the bank now resumed its cash payments, the same favorable circumstances might attend the change? During this debate a new voice entered the bullionist controversy, with Peter Lord King, 1776 to 1833, denouncing the restriction in a speech in the House of Lords on 22 February. Taking the lead of the bullionist forces, Lord King zeroed in on the increase of the quantity of paper money during the restriction as the culprit. From the time the restriction was first imposed, the course of exchange began to turn against this country in various proportions to the quantity of paper in circulation. In May, Lord King repeated these arguments in arguing against a bill to extend bank restriction in Ireland. Later, in May of 1803, King elaborated his views in a highly important pamphlet, Thoughts on the Restriction of Payments in Specie at the Bank of England and Ireland, and then followed with an enlarged second edition of the pamphlet the following year under the title, Thoughts on the Effects of the Bank Restriction. Lord King's thoughts was widely read and highly influential, and with this pamphlet King took his place as the leader of the bullionist camp just as Thornton, who continued to support the renewal of restriction, was established as the leader of the moderate anti-bullionists. Lord King was a young nobleman of distinguished lineage. He was the great-grandson of Peter, the first Lord King, who became Lord Chancellor of the realm. The Whig and classical liberal tradition of the King family was emphasized by the fact that the first Lord King's mother was a cousin of John Locke, and that the first Lord King was a protege of Locke and a leading Whig and member of Parliament. Peter King was educated at Eton and at Trinity College, Cambridge, taking his place as a follower of Charles James Fox and an important Whig in the House of Lords in 1800. In addition to his leadership of the hard money forces in Britain, Lord King, though a great landlord, was a lifelong militant enemy of the Corn Laws. 
A critic of the established church, King was a principal battler for the unpopular cause of emancipation of the Catholics of England, as well as an opponent of the oppression of the Catholics of Ireland. In 1829, Lord King wrote A Life of John Locke, revised and expanded into two volumes in the following year. Lord King began his thoughts with a chapter on paper money. Unfortunately, King accepted Smith's fallacious argument for paper money as providing a highway in the sky, but at least he rejected Smith's idea of an automatic reflux of any excess paper to the banking system. Instead, King applied the quantity theory, or, to put it better, the supply and demand theory of money to the case of convertible paper. King, in a statement which Nassau Sr. later referred to admiringly as Lord King's principle, stressed that it was important for paper money not to be issued to any extent greater than its exact replacement of the quantity of gold coin in circulation, and that this equivalence is maintained by the immediate convertibility of paper into gold. King then moved to rebut, one by one, the pro-restrictionist arguments that the Bank of England notes were not excessive and therefore not depreciated. The idea that the bank had not exceeded some abstract proportion of money to industry or some arbitrary optimum money supply was effectively shot down, King demonstrating that there is no rule or standard by which the due quantity of circulating medium in any country can be ascertained, except the actual demand of the public. King then shows trenchantly that the demand for money, like the demand for any product, is variable and uncertain. The requisite proportion of currency, like that of every other article of use or consumption, regulates itself entirely by this demand, which differs materially in different countries and states of society, and even in the same country at different times. It is manifest that the proportion of circulating medium required in any given state of wealth and industry is not a fixed, but a fluctuating and uncertain quantity, which depends in each case upon a great variety of circumstances, and which is diminished or increased by the greater or less degree of security or enterprise and of commercial improvement. The causes which influence the demand are evidently too complicated to admit of the quantity being ascertained by previous computation or by any process of theory. King goes on to conclude that if the above reasoning is well founded, it must follow that there is no method of discovering a priori the proportion of the circulating medium which the occasions of the community require that it is a quantity which has no assignable rule or standard, and that its true account can be ascertained only by the effective demand. Next, King was the first to see the importance of Thornton's devastating critique of his fellow anti-bullionists' extension of Smithian real bills doctrine, and he put the critique even more strongly. 
Putting their discount rates below the free market interest rate can permit unlimited extension of bank credit on real bills. Furthermore, the bank possesses no real means of distinguishing between real and fictitious bills, and merchants can always be induced to borrow far beyond real demands of the public by artificially low interest charged by the banks. In the case of inconvertible paper money, King concluded, there is no way to discover the real demand for money by the public, or to figure out when paper money is excessive or not. Without convertibility, paper circulation is deprived of this natural standard, and is incapable of admitting any other. Hence, banks or governments entrusted with the task of finding the optimum level of money and credit are doomed to committing perpetual mistakes. Building on Boyd's pioneering work and the contributions of Thornton, Lord King then set out to develop the culmination of the complete bullionist theory of inconvertible paper money, a theory consisting of a systematic and forceful development of supply and demand analysis. He first notes that inconvertible paper is subject to two distinct but related influences towards depreciation, want of confidence on the part of the public and an undue increase of the quantity of notes, In every instance of inconvertible currency, he notes, both factors have soon gone to work. How does one know, King went on, when depreciation of inconvertible currency has occurred? Walter Boyd had asserted that one test of depreciation was a rise of the free market bullion price higher than the official mint price. King reinforced Boyd's insight by pointing out that bullion value tends to be stable in the short run, making any deviation of the two the result of a change in the value of the paper. King also provides a rigorous grounding for Boyd's second proffered test, the depreciation of the pound compared to other currencies. For a specie-convertible currency cannot depreciate, since any surplus can be exported. But inconvertible paper cannot be exported, and will there remain in that country, and if multiplied beyond the demand, must be depreciated in the degree of its excess. Furthermore, In the course of commercial dealings, this increase of quantity is soon discovered, and prices are increased in proportion. A similar effect takes place in transactions with foreign currencies, according to the status of their respective currencies. King goes on to develop a concise statement of the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates under inconvertible currencies. While in the above passage King appeared to adopt the mechanistic proportionality quantity theory, he made it clear later in the pamphlet that this proportionality, if it occurs at all, only does so in the long run. For King, like Boyd, was a complete bullionist, and presented by far the best and most developed statement of this position in this entire period. King demonstrates that the inflation process necessarily involves a redistribution of wealth and income. 
developing hints of process analysis from Hume, King writes that the proportional effect of an increase in the quantity of paper money on prices is far from immediate, and that some time must elapse before the new currency can circulate through the community and affect the prices of all commodities. But while Hume hailed this interval as spurring business activity, King correctly focused on the coerced advantages that this process gives to the early as opposed to the later recipients of the new money. It is this interval between the creation of the new paper and the rise of prices which may be a source of advantage to the persons who obtain loans from the bank. The merchant, to whom the notes are immediately issued, employs them in the purchase of goods at the prices which they then bear. But by the very effect of these notes, when they are afterwards circulated, the price of the goods is enhanced, and the merchant has the advantage of this rise in addition to the ordinary profits of trade. If he is an exporting merchant, he will receive, beside the usual profit, the amount of the depreciation which will have taken place in the currency between the time of purchasing the goods and the arrival of the remittance in return. King also calls the depreciation of Central Bank of Ireland notes like an income tax, which levies not for the benefit of government, but of the proprietors of Irish bank stock. And on the Bank of England, he noted that the undue advantage that has been obtained by the bank in the exact degree of the excess of their notes has been more than offset by the loss and injury to the public, as in all cases of depreciated currency. Hence, an indirect tax is thus imposed upon the community, not for the benefit of the public, but of individuals. It is levied in the most pernicious manner, and is of all taxes the least productive in proportion to the loss and inconvenience sustained. In short, King recognizes that the privileged beneficiaries of inflation and depreciation are largely the central banks themselves and their stockholders, as well as merchants who borrow from these banks and exporters who benefit by the depreciation of foreign exchange. All these are bought at the expense of the public. King also perceptively notes that it is precisely these groups who had been the main apologists for the bank restriction. He suggests that these London and Dublin merchants had probably never read Hume, nor precisely traced the theoretical steps by which they obtained the privilege of bank inflation. But their experience has undoubtedly led them to the same conclusions, and there can be no doubt that since the period of the restriction, discounts have been obtained from the bank by commercial men with less difficulty, and that these accommodations, together with the profits derived from hence, have given their minds a strong bias in favor of the measure. Furthermore, Lord King's mordant analysis of the advantages accruing to the bank as against the public by inflation of its notes led him to denounce per se any exclusive privilege in issuing notes granted to the Bank of England, 
for such a privilege would be as unjust and impolitic as to grant a monopoly of any other branch of skill and industry to any private merchant or company. Tied in with his rejection of the mechanistic proportionality approach, Lord King conceded that real factors can have subordinate and temporary effects on depreciation and the exchange rate. Indeed, it is precisely this understanding of the temporary effects of real factors that helped lead King to reject the idea of strict proportionality, and hence of any precise quantitative measurement of the degree of depreciation or of the excess of paper money. As King wrote, nor will the most careful reference to the two tests of the price of bullion and the state of the exchanges enable us to ascertain in what precise degree a currency is depreciated, though the general fact of a depreciation may be proved beyond dispute. Indeed, he gently chided Boyd for unduly stressing such a measure of excess, and thereby having given an advantage to his opponents by insisting too much on the degree of depreciation. Finally, it is unfortunate that King followed Smith's and Thornton's confusion of bills of exchange and other evidence of debt with money, and rejected Walter Boyd's clear-cut distinction between them. Lord King's contribution immediately vaulted him to the front rank of bullionist theorists, and when David Ricardo entered the fray almost a decade later, he hailed King's booklet as having had a great influence on him. For some reason, however, King's vital contribution has been grievously overlooked by most later historians, and even in Nassau Sr.'s day, in the mid-1840s, Sr. found it necessary to chide posterity for neglecting Lord King's great achievement. Indeed, Sr. lauded King's work as so full, and in the main so true an exposition of the theory of paper money, that after more than forty years of discussion there is little to add to it, or to correct. Senior's reminder was afterwards echoed by Henry D. McLeod and by Francis A. Walker, and as late as 1911, Jacob Hollander in his famous resurrection of monetary theory between Smith and Ricardo briefly hailed King's pamphlet as a remarkable contrast to the prolix obscurity of Thornton's essay and the heated temper of Boyd's performance, and fitted to become, as it speedily did, the epitome of what had already been written in sound criticism and in reasonable interpretation of the bank's course, no less than the inspiration of future effort in the same direction. Yet, unaccountably, appreciation of King's contribution promptly dropped completely out of sight once again, only to be resurrected in the seminal dissertation of Professor Salerno. Perhaps the most important immediate impact of Lord King's thoughts was on Francis Horner, for Horner was promptly converted by the booklet from his previous moderate-moderate position to his permanent stance of moderate bullionist. 
The conversion probably rested not so much on King's theoretical analysis as on his thorough marshalling of the statistics of the restriction period, which convinced the theoretical agnostic Horner that the facts were on the side of the cause of price inflation and depreciation from an excessive issue of paper money. Reviewing King's thoughts in the July 1803 issue of the Edinburgh Review, Horner abandoned his previous policy agnosticism on the restriction to plumb squarely for redeemability. From the very first, he now wrote, there could be no doubt of the impolicy and injustice of the restriction. But whereas before he felt that the facts were too complicated to decide whether Boyd had been right about the restriction's inflationary impact on prices, Horner was convinced by King that Boyd had been right. He now concluded that, throughout all these changes, one uniform effect may be perceived, which, with the evidence by which it is proved, and the reasonings by which it is explained, is very ably and perspicuously described by Lord King. 7. The Irish Currency Question much of Lord King's strictures were directed against the Central Bank of Ireland as well as of England, and indeed during 1803, as the restriction was extended into the future with the resurgence of war with France, attention shifted to the rapid depreciation of the currency of Ireland. When Britain imposed the restriction in 1797, it also suspended specie payment for the Bank of Ireland and for the banking system of its Irish colony. It did so even though the Irish banking system was then in relatively sound and uninflated shape. The Bank of Ireland, however, quickly took advantage of its newfound privileges to inflate the supply of money and credit sharply quadrupling its note circulation over the next six years. By 1803, therefore, the Irish pound had fallen over 10% below its gold standard parity of 108 to 100 with the English pound. It was particularly evident that the problem here was the Irish supply of paper money and nothing else since Belfast, in the English currency orbit, with no central bank of its own, remained at par with the English pound, and since the Dublin pound had depreciated to the same extent in Belfast as it had in London. When the extension of bank restriction came up in Parliament in February 1803, an extension defended by Thornton, a bullionist critique of the Irish situation was launched by Lord King, who continued the same discussion in May when an extension of Irish restriction arose in Parliament. With attention turned toward the Irish problem, the House of Commons in March 1804 established an Irish Currency Committee to investigate the matter. More precisely, the Select Committee on the Circulating Paper, the Specie, and the Current Coin of Ireland. The Bank of Ireland officials, desperately trying to defend their record, proclaimed with increasing absurdity that the depreciation of the Irish pound was due not to excessive issue, but to the mysteriously unfavorable balance of payments out of Ireland. 
The committee, of which Henry Thornton was a leading member, issued its report in June and gave short shrift to the anti-bullionist rationalizations. It adopted squarely the bullionist insight that the depreciation of the Irish pound was due to excessive issue of paper and extension of credit by the Bank of Ireland, and that this excessive issue had been made possible by the restriction. The committee report presaged the famous Bullion Committee report six years later, and was notable also for the virtual conversion of Henry Thornton, following Horner, into the moderate bullionist camp. The report declared that the great and effectual remedy for Irish currency ills was repeal of the Restriction Act, from whence all the evils have flowed. But it then drew back from such a radical solution to opt for an intermediary solution, for the Bank of Ireland at least to make its notes redeemable in the far less depreciated Bank of England currency. This, in fact, was also the intermediate solution proffered by Lord King. Above all, the committee warned that the Bank of Ireland must limit its paper issue in all times of unfavorable balances of trade, and that all the evils of a high and fluctuating exchange must be imputable to them if they fail to do so. Joining the bullionist camp around the Irish currency question were two important members of the Anglo-Irish establishment. A month before the appointment of the Irish Currency Committee, Henry Brooke Parnell, 1776-1842, the first Baron Congleton, published his pamphlet of Observations on the State of Currency in Ireland. Parnell, the son of Sir John, Chancellor of the Irish Exchequer, was educated at Eton and at Trinity College, Cambridge. An influential member of Parliament from 1802 on, Parnell's application of bullionist principles to the Irish question was largely influenced by Lord King. Parnell brought charges against the Bank of England of inundating the country with its paper, of diminishing the value of the greatest portion of the property of the country, of establishing a ruinous rate of exchange, and of bringing upon the state all the calamities attending a depreciated currency. As an intermediate remedy, Parnell also recommended King's proposal to make Irish paper redeemable in Bank of England notes. So compatible was Parnell's booklet with the Irish Currency Committee report that the third edition of Parnell's essay placed a summary of the committee's evidence in its appendix. The committee report and the King proposal were also backed by another member of the Anglo-Irish establishment, the young Irish attorney in London, John Leslie Foster, died 1842, in his pamphlet, An Essay on the Principles of Commercial Exchanges, 1804. Foster, the son of an Anglican bishop and graduate of Trinity College, Dublin, later became an Irish judge and a Tory member of Parliament in England. There is also the curious case of James Maitland, the 8th Earl of Lauderdale, 1759-1839, a Scottish attorney and first a Whig and then a Tory member of Parliament. 
On the one hand, Lauderdale was a fanatical underconsumptionist and opponent of saving, thereby anticipating Keynes in his Inquiry into the Nature and Origins of Public Wealth, 1804, and in his argument against debt repayment and for government expenditure per se, Three Letters to the Duke of Wellington, 1829. On the other hand, Lord Lauderdale was a sound hard-money man, endorsing the Irish currency report in a hard-hitting pamphlet. Not only did Lauderdale agree that excessive paper issue of the Bank of Ireland had led to the depreciation of the Irish pound and the premium on gold, he went beyond the report to insist that outright contraction of Bank of Ireland paper was the only effective remedy for the existing problem. In his Thoughts on the Alarming State of the Circulation and on the Means of Redressing the Pecuniary Grievances of Ireland, 1805, it is certainly unusual for one person to be at the same time an arch-underconsumptionist and an ardent hard-money deflationist. While the King and Committee solutions did not triumph, the Irish bank officials apparently understood the situation far better than they had let on, for they soon managed to defuse the problem by pursuing harder monetary policies and thereby bringing the Irish pound back to par with England. 8. The Emergence of Mechanistic Bullionism John Wheatley after 1804, the Bank of England dampened its expansionist policy for a few years, and inflation and depreciation abated as well. As a result, the bullionist controversy about England and Ireland died down. Phase one of the great bullionist controversy was over. There had appeared on the scene three schools of monetary thought and opinion— First, the anti-bullionist apologists of the British government and the Bank of England, whose views can scarcely be dignified by the name of theory, and who simply denied that monetary issue had any relation to the evils of inflation and depreciation. Ranged against them were, second, the complete bullionists, headed by Lord King and by Walter Boyd, who trenchantly applied supply and demand for money analysis to the new conditions of irredeemable fiat money, and who attacked the Bank of England's over-issue as the cause of the evils, with real factors also playing a temporary and subordinate role. In the middle were, third, the moderates, consisting largely of Henry Thornton and Francis Horner, theoretical agnostics who claimed that either monetary or real factors might be responsible for any given inflation, and emphasized empirically and ad hoc which set of factors might be the culprits in any given situation. Starting as a moderate anti-bullionist, the empirical weight shifted quickly for Horner, at least, to enter the moderate bullionist camp by 1803. Before Phase One had ended, however, a fourth school of thought, and the third strand of bullionism, had emerged—mechanistic bullionism. 
The great error of mechanistic bullionism was not simply to neglect all real influences and to insist that monetary factors and monetary factors alone determined price levels and exchange rates. If that had been the only flaw, the error would have been a relatively minor one. The main problem was that the mechanists were also moved to neglect all other causal factors than the money supply, many of them of great importance. In brief, they neglected the demand for money in all its subtle variations and such vital distribution effects, even in the long run, as changes in relative assets and incomes and changes in relative prices. In sum, the mechanists claimed that in the short run and in the long, the only causal factors on price and exchanges were changes in the quantity of money. Hence their erroneous and distorted view that changes in price levels are exactly quantitatively proportionate to changes in the quantity of money. The mechanistic bullionist view, presumably emerging in overreaction to the moderates, was first presented by a man who was neither a member of Parliament nor otherwise in the public eye, the attorney John Wheatley, 1772-1830. In his first of many contributions to monetary economics, Remarks on Currency and Commerce, 1803, Wheatley set forth the long-run bullionist and monetary approach in its starkest and most simplistic form. Any discussion of temporary adjustments or even temporal processes was cast aside in order to linger exclusively on final equilibrium states. To Wheatley, all export or import of gold was exclusively determined by its demand and price, that is, by monetary factors, and bullion prices and exchange rates were solely determined by monetary considerations. Real factors play no role in these matters, even temporarily or in the short run. Hence the effect of the supply of money on price levels or exchange rates is strictly and precisely proportionate. Overall prices move not only proportionately but also uniformly in levels, with no changes occurring in relative prices. Thus Wheatley the increase of currency by paper must cause the same reduction in the value of money in proportion to the activity of its circulation as an increase of currency by specie. But if paper depreciate money, it must advance in similar proportion the price of articles of subsistence and luxury. From these principles it was easy for Wheatley to deduce that it was impossible for an expansion of the money supply ever to stimulate the economy, since, by definition, the wages of labor are augmented only in proportion to the increase of currency, and since wages rise proportionately to the money supply and to all other prices, they can purchase no greater quantity of products after the addition than before it, and therefore no greater stimulus can in reality exist, and therefore no greater effect is likely to be produced by the deception. A heroic conclusion, no doubt, and surely true in the long run, 
But such blithely dogmatic statements omit the whole point of monetary inflation and its short-run stimulus. For example, making prices rise faster than wage rates. Moreover, since Wheatley had an exclusively long-run and therefore monetary theory of exchange rates under inconvertibility, he again blithely assumed that the value of any given money was always and everywhere equal, that is, in the long-run equilibrium, and that fiat money exchange rates always trade at precisely their purchasing power parities to their respective monetary purchasing powers. Hence, for Wheatley, not only was a depreciated exchange rate and a premium on specie bullion an unmistakable system of currency depreciation, it also provided an exact measure of that depreciation. In contrast, King and Boyd, let alone Thornton, only saw currency depreciation when such phenomena existed for any considerable time, Boyd, or were long-continued, King. And neither of the latter claimed that such premia or discounted exchange rates provide a precise measure of depreciation. While John Wheatley did not enjoy anything like the prominence of his fellow debaters on bullionism, he was by no means an insignificant figure. He was born in Kent to a prominent landed and military family of the county, His father, William, was a high sheriff and deputy lieutenant of Kent. An older brother, William, served as a major general in the French Wars, and a younger brother, Sir Henry Wheatley, was attached for many years to the royal court. Wheatley received a B.A. from the aristocratic Christ Church Oxford in 1793, and was then admitted to the bar. His wife, Georgiana, was the daughter of William Lushington, prominent London merchant and a member of Parliament for the City of London, and brother of Sir Stephen Lushington, formerly president of the Great East India Company. Oddly enough, William Lushington, as chairman of the Committee of the Merchants of London, had petitioned the Bank of England in March 1797 to be more expansionist in its discount policy. Wheatley's remarks were attacked in the Edinburgh Review by the prominent Whig leader Henry Brougham on familiar Thorntonian grounds. But while Wheatley followed up his pamphlet with the first volume of An Essay on the Theory of Money and Principles of Commerce, 1807, his timing was poor, since there was little interest in the bullionist controversy at that time. Wheatley compounded his tactical problems by writing nothing on money for the next nine years, during a time when the bullionist controversy was at its height. For all these reasons, Wheatley's stance was largely overlooked, until in 1809 David Ricardo assumed the leadership of the mechanistic bullionist camp. Wheatley's influence, furthermore, was scarcely helped by his being in chronic financial difficulties virtually all his life. He acted from time to time as agent for the Lushington family in their West India dealings, but financial troubles sent him wandering abroad, and the publication of the second volume of his essay in 1822 was followed promptly by migration to India, where he continued in financial distress— 
and thence to South Africa with similar problems. But throughout these problems and wanderings, he continued to publish pamphlets calling ardently for freedom of trade. John Wheatley's exclusive emphasis on the money supply and unitary price levels foreshadowed the modern severe monetarist and macroeconomic split between the monetary and real realms. More pointedly, his mechanistic emphasis on the price level also foreshadowed the unfortunate Fisherine, Chicagoite, and later monetarist preoccupation with stabilizing the price level and with fanatically opposing any and all changes in such levels. Even in his early books of 1803 and 1807, Wheatley denounced the alleged evils of falling prices as well as of inflation, and indeed claimed that falling prices were even more damaging. Indeed, the influence of Wheatley's early tracts was gravely weakened by his being soft-core and timid in drawing any policy conclusions from his hardcore analysis. Instead of returning to the gold standard, Wheatley could only suggest the withdrawal of note-issue powers from the country banks and the redemption of all small banknotes under five pounds. In his 1807 work, he urged that long-term contracts be made in accordance with an index number of price levels, and in his later works, when this plea went unheeded, he began to grow hysterical about the alleged evils of price declines and their injury to the poor. By his 1822 volume, Wheatley had gone so far as to urge the postponement of resumption of specie payments until more supplies might enter the country to prevent prices from falling. Indeed, by this point, Wheatley was ready to abandon the gold standard, in his frenzied opposition to falling prices— Yearning for fiat paper stabilized in value by the government, Wheatley wrote, If paper were kept without increase or decrease, it would be a better measure of value and medium of exchange than gold. And by the time of his last work in 1828, written in South Africa, Wheatley called only for fiat paper expansion of the money supply, else irremediable poverty is fixed upon as our eternal fate. In this way, as in the case of all too many monetarists and mechanistic quantity theorists, Wheatley began as an ardent hard-money bullionist and was driven over the years by his frenetic hatred of deflation to wind up as a fiat-money inflationist. <laughs>